Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. I'm a fan of classic movies. Hello and welcome to Overlapping Dialogue, a podcast of double features dedicated to programming the finest, most eclectic, and downright bizarre film pairings and cataloging the discussions that ensue. We're your gruesome twosome, Kyle Levi Huffman. I'm Kyle. And I'm Levi. And welcome to episode 80. I'm back I'm back on my numbers. I know my numbers yeah. this time. Oh, okay. Of Overlapping Dialogue. A little bit of a bittersweet episode for me, I'd say, because we're coming to the end of the 90s. We've been, of course, doing the 1990s for quite a while now. Yeah. Long way we've come since the days of Dick Tracy and Havana, you know, just seems yeah. just like yesterday. Well, you know, the good news is... Of this pair that we have today, we have a genuinely great movie. Yes, at least out of the two, and then election, and night. then <laughs> no, and then American Beauty. Yes, but um, so the movies today, of course, yeah. are Election and American Beauty, but both with, from nineteen ninety nine. Yeah, but with Dick Tracy and uh, Havana, which Havana is like a cat okay. hair away from being not good. Yeah, I think we, I think like, we said it like yeah. kind of barely squeaks it's like, by. Being. It's the most barely good movie <laughs> of the decade I can think of. And then Certainly Dick of these Tracy, series of movies we've And then done. Dick Tracy's yeah, not. Yeah. But then we kind of went through a period there where we were watching a lot of great movies. And movies that I feel like are actually more emblematic of the 90s and Y2K than the year of 1999 was, which we're going to talk about in depth in a bit. Um, as far as movies like uh, Until the End of the World. Uh, and, of course, we didn't cover it, but uh, 1995 Strange Days um, and other movies. I don't remember everything we did, honestly, off the top of my head right now. But other things we've talked about that I feel like are randomly more emblematic than 1999 will prove to be. Just uh, in but, case uh, yeah. you haven't listened for a while or for whatever reason, just to go through and just briefly yeah. mention all the movies we did real quickly. Dick Tracy, Havana from 90, 91, A Brighter Summer Day and Until the End of the World, Hard Boiled and Basic Instinct from 92, Fearless and Groundhog Day, 93, River, Wire, River Wild and Wolf, 94, Kids and Goldeneye, 95, Lone Star and Hamlet, 96, My Best Friend's Wedding and Face Off, 97, and then 98, Last Days of Disco and American History X. I would say, you and know, and then in the midst of that, we did that Independence yes, Day commentary. Uh, commentary. I'd yeah. say, you know, I don't know. I guess we're biased in this because we picked it. On the whole, I look at those movies and go, those are more pretty good movies than not. You know? Yeah. I mean, there yeah. are things that we wanted to pick that Kids was one kids that, was that we no, were not a huge yeah. fan of. Um, Face Off is fine, but we just well, wanted you know, to American watch History X was a movie we weren't really sure what we'd right. think of, and we actually liked more than we didn't. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, really out of all of those movies, to me, a movie that is most emblematic of the 90s is a, is uh, Until the End of the World. Other than that, I mean, Kids is a version of that, I think. Um, and maybe uh, Fearless in certain ways and Basic Instinct. Uh, but other than that, for the most part, these movies are just happen to be made in the 90s, I think, more than are about them. I do think that these two movies we're going to do today, though, are very much about the 90s in certain ways, although Election could be... Uh, well, it's weird, because also American Beauty is so broad, it could easily be about any Well, and time, also, but, like, there's a lot yeah. of parallels one can make with Lolita as well yeah. with... Um, American right. Beauty. So. so who's the Peter Sellers role in American Beauty, do we think? It, from Lolita. I think, weirdly, I've not seen Lolita in a while. It's not good. I want to read way. the book, actually, yeah. by Nabokov. Um, I yeah, think I, weirdly, I just said that, by the way. Be, that I think, weirdly, good, it would so. be Wes Bentley's character, although he's he's a younger character. And he's the yeah. one who, quote, really sees things as it is, like as, as the narrative positions it. Yeah. So. And, uh, but yeah, Lolita, not good. I want to say that again. Um, but and I know yeah. there, and I said this last week. I know there are people screaming, "Why did you pick American Beauty for 1999?" There are so many other great movies, and we're going to talk about some of those movies, as Levi said, in a little bit. Um, but I think these two go really well together thematically, mm-hmm. um, as you said, Election and Election's always been a movie that I really liked. But seeing it again, I mean, I think it's, you know, I'll give it like four and a half out of yeah. five stars. It's not not absolutely absolutely everything about it doesn't totally work. But in the weird way, it's almost as close as perfect to a movie can get as far as yeah. what it is and knowing what it is. And, and sticking, in being you know. a uh, flashy, yes. independent movie of the 90s that is very much like we're do- an MTV movie, ultimately. Well, yeah. And the, uh, and the trailer you're going to yeah. hear later, which we saw for the first time and you'll listen to later, is a very Gen X yeah. play on MTV kind of trailer and right. you know the movie makes yeah. a big deal about being an MTV production you yeah. know too but to be it. a movie like that and to be that it is still that good yes. whereas American Beauty is flashy in a different way and was the big is, Oscar winner made right, big that money is emblematic of the time in another way that's also that's very not good and, yes yeah. so so we're going to get into all that. Before we get into the Blue Plate Special, I just want to mention, it will already have kicked off by the time you'll be listening to this podcast, but the NFL season, the 2023 mm-hmm. Well, NFL it has season, officially kicked off right around the corner. Yeah, obviously, the Detroit Lions yeah. won. We're recording this on Saturday, yeah. September 9th, but the Detroit Lions have already won game one against the defending Super Bowl champions, the Kansas City Chiefs, which was a little bit of a shock. Um, Do you have any thoughts on that game in particular? Because I actually well, I watched the first half. Yeah, Um, I didn't see much. I don't really see any of the second half. Yeah, Um, either. It is one of those things. I know Kansas City. Kelsey was hurt. I think he could have played, but they're like wanting to make sure he's rested up and not aggravate an injury. Back in the old days, he would have just played. And I'm not even saying that was a good thing that they would have back then. I'm, you know, now we're a lot more conscious about the health. Well, also now, and also they have a defensive player. Um, I think Dennis Clark, I think is his name, that was. This has a holdout right now, and this is probably going to speed up his contract. Yeah. So they were not absolutely at one hundred percent. Yeah, and and known. also, I mean, it made sense for them to not play him because it's like, oh, it's Detroit, whatever, you know. Yeah. But uh, it yeah, they wasn't only lost by a point. So I mean, right. Well, their defense out. played good, but I think I just was particularly wowed by Jared Goff, who everybody kind of has written off in the past few years since his. Uh, 
failed Rams, uh, his yeah. kind of failed Super Bowl appearance. Um, Especially after uh, they won one with Stafford without yeah, him, and right. then they kind of cast him uh, aside. But then more, that, you know. what was so funny about that though too, is I think that's in my recent memory the worst I've seen a Super Bowl uh, team do the ne- in the yeah. succeeding season was well, the terrible. Rams, yeah, yeah. Uh, and after they won. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that everybody has been saying, "Oh, it's Detroit's year," blah blah blah. Which you know, I and well, they're saying about the Jets now too, which is always laughable. But I'm always wary of that when that happens because I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, who cares? That's They're going to screw up. It, it won't turn out the way it needs to be. But now the Cowboys, of course, do this every year. But, you know, there's certain fandoms that do that. Cleveland's done that in the last so many years. But as far as now, I was very impressed by his uh, – medium to long range passes which just looks so effortless yeah. i mean it compared to you know uh mahomes who literally put everything he could out there it's just he didn't have good receivers and then not having kelsey and tight end they just really blew There's some also, big passes yeah, there was I a, saw there was a play really that like i didn't even see the full length of it but i saw the memes the next day when i woke up that like it was um, in a Kansas City receiver's hand. It wasn't like necessarily one of their marquee receivers. Yeah. I can't remember his name. It was like directly in his hand. And he just dropped it. And it like, said, the caption yeah. said, this ended up being a pick six. And I remember being like, what? Like, I yeah. mean, it's like right there in his hands. And I guess Detroit player just grabbed the ball out from under him and run it yeah. to the house. And, and then so, there I mean, were, yeah, like I that. thought you were going to refer at first to there were a couple where it literally just went in their hands and it's like they just dropped it. Like they it just did have, like, I think. I set some record for the Mahomes era of most drops by Kansas City receivers. I yeah, saw that so yeah. that was something that was all on them. I don't know what was going on there. The, the receiver core was just awful. It's also game, awkward but. though for Super Bowl champs. Like you get the rings, yeah. the big banner. I mean, you're you get the first game of the season. I mean, there is a lot of pressure. Oh yeah, yeah. To, on that Super yeah. Bowl champ to oh, like, oh, come out and, yeah. and Detroit and, is like they're on yeah. the other end. Like we got to go in there and we got to upset them, and that's like their biggest game of the season. You know, playing is, in Kansas you know, City too, right? So, and so yeah. they, I mean, it's a mix of things. Yeah. I mean, I, oh, I think yeah. nobody's saying, "Oh, we're going to City." Ain't no, absolutely not. Year, they're, you know? they're probably going to at they least be easily in the AFC Championship yeah. game. Middle. So, and they're definitely winning their division. Uh, no, no, no well, question. I was, getting, I was getting ready to ask but, you as a Raiders fan, yeah. how are you feeling about? Uh, well, I feel pretty, knowing that again you're playing in the yeah. a Super Bowl champ. Well, division. I feel pretty good in the sense that uh, Garoppolo did not play, and he's injury prone, so he scares me to he's death. He's the new quarterback this year. Uh, Carr is now in yeah. New Orleans. Well, and he was that way too, so yeah. there were not really a whole lot of difference. It, to me, I'm worried about him, but I, and I, I feel awful because I can't remember his name now. They played the, uh, and I didn't get to watch any of the games, but in the preseason games, they played the other. Uh, they're kind of second string quarterback, and he was like really good. Was putting up like thirty points a game, yeah. like you know. And then they lost to Dallas, so they went like two and one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, I was very impressed in that showing, at least from stats. Yeah. I didn't actually watch the games, so we'll see. I mean, you know, they're a team that they've had that stigma of being bad for so long that. Really, for the past decade, they've run about 500 most seasons. I mean, they're pretty in the middle, usually. 
They are in a um, tough division, obviously. Yeah. Not only the Chiefs. The Broncos are probably going to have a little bit of a bounce back here now yeah. that Sean Payton is the coach. Yeah. Uh, as we know, the Chargers are consistently okay. That might be, though, the saving grace for the Raiders is that the attention's not as much on them and that they – yeah, because everybody's you looking know. at Justin Herbert right now. Yeah. Like, when is that going to pan out? Is, yeah, is he's the one of the Chargers, hot young quarterbacks. Yeah. Everybody expects got the to make biggest, a big jump. He yeah. got, like, the biggest contract in history, I think, just recently. And then, uh, except I know Joe Burrow literally days ago. Oh, did his go bigger? Oh, that. okay. Well, I didn't Which know that. Is, I mean, yeah. I'm sorry. Nothing against Justin Herbert. He's a good young quarterback. Mm-hmm. Justin Herbert's getting the fastest well, contract. Joe Burrow was literally just about, at a Super Bowl. Well, two it's years also ago, all so. about the timing of when yeah. these contracts get done because the way the cap works, like these numbers are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And so, like, of course, Mahomes he got like the fattest contract ever. Yeah, and he's obviously he's got two Super Bowls to back up. I mean, Mahomes is the new Brady, the new Manning. Yeah. He is the new star of the league. Like, but then you get these quarterbacks that like. They're good, but just because they want to keep them and the bar keeps getting raised, that Justin Herbert all of a sudden for a while had the fattest yeah well contract that, ever right. which just makes you shrug and roll yeah. your eyes well a and bit. that's what's and funny again, he's good but yeah just, if you look at you soccer know. numbers uh, you know association football as i'm continuing to call it because that's what's literally called but uh i mean those numbers are nothing compared to those obviously because they're so and then even basketball mm-hmm. so that's one thing i have always pre- yeah that's something i have always preferred about uh american football is the salary caps are lower uh, but they're they're getting bigger and bigger though it seems like and and well the thing too about the they, NFL is compared to any of those other sports yeah. is they got seventeen regular season games yeah baseball literally they play hundred and plus games NBA they got eighty two games uh, forty Premier games League in soccer. or whatnot they yeah, got 40. more so I mean yeah. NFL like they have to make as much money as yeah. they can in the stretch that they right. can because and obviously of all those it's the most injury prone. Yeah, sport. No, so, so it makes sense, but yeah, that's the thing. It's like these people. These and you gotta pay eleven guys right. per offense and defense. You know, so yeah. that's even. More and then money. because then you have situations, and I don't even want to get into this right now. But obviously, obviously Chelsea's not doing good because, as we know, any team I pick immediately starts doing bad right after. Um, so yes, uh, uh, pride of London fans. It's, it's me. Grayson Huffman effect. Uh, yeah, the Grayson Waller effect. Uh, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you feel the, any kinship with him? No, he's a total man? sob idiot. I hate him. Oh, okay. Anyway, moving on. Uh, LA Knight had a good little roast up last yeah. night. So yeah, kind uh, of my mush mouth or something. Yeah, I can't yeah. got a mush mouth on the right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a cross-eyed something on the left. Yeah, uh, but anyway, that what you they literally have spent a billion dollars. Todd Burley, like I think, or half a billion dollars. I can't remember the number. Somewhere in there, something obscene, and and they're uh, first in the Premier League with uh, possession, first in the Premier League with passes, and first in the Premier League with touches. So I guess the, and the, they are eleventh or twelfth in the league with five goals. What is that? Why? And they've spent that much money, and it's like, what do we need to do now? Admittedly, I mean, those stats just scream missed opportunity. Right. Even if you've not even watched the games, yeah, I know no, you have because if so. you watch them, if you watch, because I've watched these. They are, they are in the midfield or down in the box well, almost all the game. all the time, yeah. and they just cannot score. Connect, yeah. They just can't do it. And they did that the same thing last year when they had Joao Felix there, and when uh, even when like Pulisic was still playing there a little bit, they couldn't get him to get in there. And Kai Havertz, it was the same thing. And so they've sold a lot of players that went places. 
but now it's like they just they just can't get it going. And notably, it should be said they have bought some players that are injured right now. The Cuckoo's one, and also Reese James, who they literally just made captain, was injured again. Yeah. So there are injuries and those things happen, but it's just a massive question mark there that makes no sense, literally at all. Yeah. To the point where I am starting to get worried. Are we getting into relegation zone already? Now, obviously, there's only been like four games, so. Yeah. You know, but it is. Do you think is, this little break might do them some good? I hope so. I mean, it, I feel like once they eventually. What were you saying? That it's like basically just the international break right, yeah, that's so, going on. Yeah. Which we're wondering if it's because of American football. Maybe they're doing that or what? I don't know. It might just work out. Or it might just time. be that. Yeah. But anyway, uh, enough about that. The point is with the Raiders, too, there, there should be enough there to work out but as we've seen like i said with similarly that doesn't mean everything and what's strange about football too is is that sometimes we base it all on these quarterbacks and it's like well that doesn't matter because if you look over it was the same thing happened with going to the jets for example you had aaron Rodgers, aaron Rodgers at green bay the last so many years and it was just like nothing was working there now admittedly he was really mad at the Matt Lafleur, right, right, and 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 probably the GM and and the whole organization. He had a lot of problems with, so that can affect all that. But it's like, okay, so what's the definite? He's going to do great over here, though. Now all of a sudden, and about that, that's going to be weird to see Aaron Rodgers not in a Packers uniform. Um, and again, it's 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 endlessly fascinating me that he's literally took the same path that Brett Favre did win one Super Bowl early in your career and then have a really awesome career that you never totally get to yeah. the next level mm-hmm. again. Because even Peyton and then, Manning you know, didn't end up as a that. New York Jet. Right. And then literally that's that you know, obviously far first team he went to was the Vikings. But yeah. um I just don't understand and I know it's more than about just the team, but how do you move on from the Green Bay Packers, probably the greatest franchise in the National Football League to the New York Jets, who like their only massive success was Joe Namath, Which and that's was like been fifty plus years ago. ago. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's the same thing with Jim Brown at Cleveland. It's like there's, or you know, because even like you'd say with the the ball, what used to be the Baltimore Colts, and are now the you know the Indianapolis yeah. Colts. You'd have had Johnny Unitas forever ago, and then now have and then had Peyton Manning, but yeah, it's like. Yeah, that just happens with some of these teams where it's like, what is going on there? Um, but yeah, especially with Green Bay, it's like, I don't know. Yeah, like you said, I don't know how you go from that to that. Again, I know it's about more than just the city and the franchise and the fans, but the franchise. And again, I'm a I'm a Panthers fan. I'm not like a primarily a Packers. fan. I was going to ask you in a minute uh, when, once we're done with this yeah. what your opinion. Is uh, but like season. when I think of just the NFL and the cachet and the history and the culture. The Green Bay Packers, to me, are like at the top of the list in terms of iconic American sports franchises. And then to yeah. go from that to the Jets, I'm just like, Them what, are and you like kidding me? The, like, and the Washington, even what are the, now commanders. But, I mean, even yeah. the Dallas Cowboys yeah. in its own way, yeah. which we're no fans or, of. But even uh, that, I or mean, Chicago. Or even, even the San Francisco yeah. 49ers. Yeah. I mean, those like classic franchises. New England Patriots, have obviously, they're a part of that too. But um, as a Panthers fan... A lot of people are saying it's going to be a little bit of a down year. Probably will be a tough year. Uh, obviously, rookie quarterback. I feel good about him. He didn't have the best preseason, but it's preseason, so whatever. 
Um, the saving grace is uh, the Panthers play in the NFC South. And the NFC South right now is in a huge state of flux. There is no clear number one favorite. If I had to bet, it would probably be the New Orleans Saints just because they have a, they've yeah. got a little bit more horses. Derek Carr, who I've always rooted for, is a is a secondary Raiders fan. Yeah. Uh, and that's the thing, too. I know you and our dad, who are huge Raiders fans, felt glad that Carr left. I don't know if Garoppolo is going to be a no. huge improvement. Well, However, yeah. the Garoppolo's problem is more injuries. Yeah, Carr's problem is more inconsistency. Yeah. Now, those things are, are might seem interchangeable, but they're different things. I do like Garoppolo, though, and yeah. when he plays, he's usually good, so yeah. I think that bodes well for the Raiders. But yeah. it, it's going to be weird now, like rooting actively against Carr the whole time as he's a, a saint now. Yeah, because for me, let me say that I never disliked Derek Carr exactly, but it was just that unreliability that I was just tired of. And now, like I said, we switched it for <laughs> the, you know, uh, this, which is going to be its own problem of Garoppolo hopefully won't be injured all the time. Which that seems to be the case with, uh, really since Steve Young ever a- after that with any 49ers quarterback no. situation has just always been a hot mess of like either they're injured like Alex Smith or Garoppolo or they're uh, Colin Kaepernick and so it's just yeah that's just a nightmare. So as a Panthers but, fan, I'm feeling okay. Um, they play Atlanta week one. By you, by the time you've heard this, you'll know whether they've won or not. I feel pretty confident they would. I, I feel like they could easily it's gonna beat be, Atlanta think, any day. Well, that's but, the thing. Like yeah. Atlanta and uh, Tampa, Tampa Bay, especially. You talk about riches to rags. I mean, yeah. As far as they were, in, they won a Super Bowl a few years ago. Now they're kind of at the bottom of the well, and, that, and that's what I was going to say too about about uh, Rogers. Everybody thinks he's going to do a Tom Brady and go to. Tampa and or in this case go to yeah, the Jets right. and win a Super Bowl and it doesn't really work. The that Jets way, were so. a little better last yeah. year and Robert Sala is a good coach, so I do think they're going to be a little better than they were. But again, yeah. I still expect the Bills to win that division. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You know. Well, and, and even the other, the only other real competitor in that division is Miami. And they've been uh, better too, yeah. Yeah, because so. they've got that young coach who looks like a twelve-year-old, yeah. <laughs> and, and then they've got he's got a really weird and, rye personality. Yeah, and he the, vapes on the sidelines too. Secretly. Yeah, I, I, I worry about Tua though because yeah, I really want to see him succeed, but he is just that, that is unfortunate. Well, there was a lot of crap that happened yeah. before about the Miami playing him when he was already yeah. concussed, and so that's yeah. not good. So knowing a lot of Miami fans, and I'm no Miami fan, but like. Randomly, Hudson Middle School is rife and infested with Miami fans. Randomly, is it like is so, it they're like all into Tua? Is that like no the draw it's or like randomly? Been, well, one person I know, a guy I worked with, Josh Millsaps, he's a big fan of him. He has been forever. He's just a Miami sports fan in okay. general. Was he and from then, Florida? No, 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 okay. at all. So I, that's what I've wondered because he went to like Mars Hill, I think, or something. Yeah. So yeah, I'm not sure. I, I've asked him that before, and I can't ever remember why. Anyway, so he's a big. Maybe it goes back always, to being in the Marino years ago or something. That might be know. part of it. Yeah. But he's real big into the U, too. So. Yeah, right. But anyway, right and things. then uh, uh, Tony Burchette, our uh, janitor, I'm not really sure why he is. And then randomly a couple students I know are. Yeah. So it's just kind of like, huh. what is going on there? But anyway, so yeah, as a kind of uh, onlooker from afar, I, w- I would like to see them succeed in a division that has been so for many years was very uncompetitive because of the New England uh, that now it would be interesting to see them and and the and Buffalo 
if you had Buffalo to, keeps not getting yeah. there, obviously. Yeah. So that's another. If you had thing. to make a Super Bowl prediction, who are the teams? Well, I haven't wins. paid as much attention in the off season uh, yeah. to who has been predicted. Obviously, the big predictors are teams like Kansas City, uh, Philadelphia, Forty uh, Nineers, and the Forty Nineers, yeah. and even Cincinnati again. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I would ca- I'd be cautiously optimistic to hope it would be somebody like Buffalo finally getting there. And not only that, finally uh, winning those poor right. fans. They've been through the ringer. Four times in a row in the 90s and lost all of them. Mm-hmm. A couple of those probably to the Cowboys, I guess. Yeah. Uh, more than one, which is yeah. one's bad enough. But, yeah. Uh, as far as, yeah, the uh, NFC is always more of an open question. Uh, it, you know, obviously I said the 49 or sorry, yeah, the 49ers would be one or the Eagles. The Eagles. Uh, we could yeah. very well have a rematch of the Super Bowl again. I mean, it could be. Yeah, I mean, I don't know again. because there's a. It seems like the quality of teams, especially in the NFC, has really plummeted over the past so many years. Because it used to be the opposite. It felt like there for a while yeah. there, there were so many like New bad England that AFC dominated teams. the AFC. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so and the Pittsburgh for a while. Uh, what did in the kind of two thousands and mm-hmm. early twenty tens. Uh, and the Broncos were kind of good there for a little while, but yeah, now it's just nothing. It feels like, and it's just kind of Kansas City. Yeah. Um. And sometimes, and another team I'd really like to see do well is Tennessee because yeah. they're kind of a regional. Yeah. Team they're always in there doing something. Uh, they're always consistently but, fighting or winning the AFC yeah. South. Depends on where. But I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I I'll just go ahead and yeah. If I had to guess, let's just I I would guess rematch of last year's. 49ers, maybe we'll see if they're more consistent with the yeah. quarterback situation, hopefully, this year. Well, that was but. part of the problem last year was they were trying to figure that out, and then Brock Purdy was kind of, from what I remember, it seemed like he was kind of a late This uh, is the third choice. choice. Yeah. And then he got injured in the last, so I haven't heard his, uh, I guess he's I healthy he's now. he's the starter. He's yeah, the but starter I know he now. got injured in that uh in the NFC championship because Trey Lance, yeah. who they who they drafted a few years ago, he was he was going to be the guy. Yeah, he got traded to Dallas because he got injured. Oh, really? Part of last, so he's like the backup in Dallas now. So, yeah. So all right. So anyways, that was a lengthy intro, but I thought we'd talk a little bit about the NFL season. Glad to have football back. Mm-hmm. So, but what else is back? You know what it is. You know what time it is, baby. We gotta. We just gotta get into. That blue plate special. Hi, Audrey. Hello, Mom. Have a cup of coffee, please. Sure. I'll have what she's had. All the NFL sponsored beer commercials that'll make you want to lose your lunch are right here. <laughs> well, you ever thought, by the way, yeah. that there's literally a uh, punk rock uh, person named Lydia Lunch? No, that's not. And you know what's eye. funny about that too is if you ever go and read the Kim Gordon uh, memoir, she talks about I never trusted Lydia Lunch. It's like <laughs> okay, because she kind of. Uh, she did. I just love the idea of a person with the last name Lunch being like a conniving, backstabbing individual. Yes, I, I mean, yeah, but she was. Uh, she did a vocal uh, 
she was featured vocals on uh, Death Valley 69, and then she was on the cover of Evil. Anyway, continue. Uh, this is going to be kind of a, a kind of a brief thing I just wanted yeah. to mention. We mentioned this actually on the last podcast that we were about to go see American Graffiti re-release. Yeah. Um, and I, just this past week, all by myself, uh, went to go see They Live you re-release. You seem to find yourself all by just, yourself at the They Live. I was thinking like, that. Scott um, Father at They Live. Me and Levi yeah. were the only people uh, who decided to go see American Graffiti in the re-release. How did that feel, Levi, to see that movie on the big screen? Now, famously, famously, everybody's talking about it, our second episode. Yeah. Of course, we did a commentary on American Graffiti, so go back and listen to that if you want to know our thoughts on it. Amazing movie. Yeah. Uh, one of the best of its era. We love it. Huge fans. It was really great to see it on the big screen. Yeah. How was it for you to see it? And then also, what did it mean to you that we were literally the only people in there? I felt it? like that made sense to me because I know that's kind of a crowd movie because it made a lot of money, obviously, when it came Huge out. And, was, and we talked all about that, but... I don't know. There's something about that movie to me, uh, and maybe this comes from watching movies a certain way. There's something about that movie to me that's always felt very personal and kind of quiet and secret, which is strange. Yeah. Maybe that's partly because Star Wars is so big that, it's that then by, the yeah. fact that American Graffiti is my fourth favorite movie and I think is better than that, mm-hmm. that to me it feels like, oh, a secret movie that like people don't know about. Well, also, this speaks to our um, generation. We obviously were cinephiles of an era where we primarily seen a lot of older movies by, of course, seeing them on home video and literally by yourself more. You know what I mean? So that might speak to that right. too, as opposed to in the day seeing it with a crowd would have been, yeah. you know. But I Back think, when people went to movies consistently, yeah. you know, a little more so. Yeah, but know. I feel like also part of that is is that it just the movie feels very personal and inward, which yeah. is weird for a movie that's so loud. Uh, but It has the soundtrack and right. the sound design that it does and the yeah. cars. And, but know, a lot of my favorite moments in the movie are the more quiet or kind of people by themselves, which doesn't happen because people are with people the whole movie. But yeah. there's little moments throughout that... Because my whole favorite scene in the movie is when... Uh, Paul Lamatt's character says goodbye to the Michelle Phillips character uh, leaving and going into her house, and he kind of just sits there for a second after that. And that that whole scene anyway before that, but it's probably my favorite moment in the movie. But also, just seeing the ending on the big screen was yeah. such a big moment, not only for what the moment, the, yeah, the right. ending means, but also the visual of yeah. just the blue sky and... And the Beach Boys song yeah. playing, and just so felt so big in a way that it always does feel. But, but to uh, actually see it on right. the screen, so yeah. the whole movie was great. But if <laughs> it's weird to say, like, oh yeah, the whole rest of the movie what was obviously great with that, but that kind of was the moment I was looking for going to it, and it lived up to that. But yeah, I felt like it felt good to just see it with just us and just. And itself. I mean, it's one of those things like we didn't like talk the whole time, but we. When you're only in a movie with another person, then you get a little obviously movie more leeway to kind of talk about things yeah. about it. And so that was special for me for us to yeah. do that. Um, Even though, again, there is part of these like, yeah, no, but more people yeah. were out seeing this. Well, yeah, and know? that's the shame, too, is I, I uh, was telling the kids, I was like, American Graffiti's playing? Because I got a poster of it in my room now. I was like, and they just kind of went, I'd say, it's, I'd say, I'm going to the movies tonight. And they're like, what do you want to see? And I pointed at the back of the room, and they were confused because it was an older movie, and so they were like, what? Like, mm-hmm. and 
anyway, but uh, yeah, like and it, another thing that was weird about that, it was like at the, it wasn't, it was like kind of in the corner of the theater, off to itself, I mean, uh, yeah, and it, it like felt very away from everything. Right. And there wasn't anybody there that night anyway. Really, it was pretty dead. It was a Wednesday, uh, and so yeah, but. That was just kind of a weird experience in that regard of just no one was there and it almost you could hear the movie down the hallway if you went to the bathroom like yeah. it was just strange so it felt like it took up a lot of space that no one occupied. It was, it was obviously a different movie but similar enough experience with seeing they live. Uh, I was in a position to see and you were that. the only person in that right? Yep. So yeah. Uh, and what's funny was when I bought my tickets for it the row behind where I picked was a, a seat that said it was taken. And I instantly thought, I bet that's one of those broken seats that they, yeah. they reserve as, you know, oh, well, it's broke, so nobody can sit there. And indeed it was. It was literally yeah. the same seat I've seen before. It's like snapped. And it's just sitting there. Oh, that it's just one. Like, yeah. You know, it's just like, okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, They Live. That's not a movie that I'm overly familiar with. I know I've seen it. I think I'd only seen the whole movie once before. Um that's when and I've seen it. Yeah. It's been so memefied and so, and I think you know the legacy of the movie is far richer than when it came out. I think it was a modest enough box office movie, but I mean, it's you know, has become this kind of subtle countercultural phenomenon yeah. of a movie. So much so that I sometimes roll my eyes at the pontification about it. And seeing it again, even though I quite liked it more, it is very much the movie of like a of a very clever stoner being like, man, like society and TV sucks yeah. and Reagan sucks. And by the way, I agree with pretty much all yeah. that, but there is a little bit of like, okay, stoner mentality about it. Um, but actually I really liked it a lot more the second time. And something that really stuck out to me, um, Roddy Piper, of course, being the lead role in it. Um, I was telling this me about one, this, like real effing ugly. <laughs> was how funny it is that how quiet he is in the early portions of the movie and how nonverbal. And if you know anything about Roddy Piper, that's not what you associate him with. If you've seen anything from his wrestling days, or um, watched him on Bill Maher, or that <laughs> the whole time. Also throughout, yeah. I was thinking about broken ribs when he's yeah. talking about like all no, the, broken wrist. Oh, yeah. wrist. That's yeah. what I said. Yeah, but his accent. Anyways, um. Uh, but then after he gets quote woke, um, and then, you know he after he puts the glasses on and sees what's up, um, how he just the rest of the movie is like a motor mouth, and I just find yeah. that to be kind of hilarious, yeah. you know. And also, very famously, you'd see it on the big screen, the the legendary fight between him and Keith David that is still going on in some roundabout way that never ends, and I love how that fight is how brutal it is, and then. And this makes sense, I guess. But after he puts his glasses on, it's like, oh. And it's like instant forgiveness almost of like, oh, wow, okay, I get now what. what but just, I just, you know, uh, yeah. see that on the big screen. And, and, then, and also the fact that Keith David's holding out that long of like, just put the glasses on. And it's like, starting that what can hand. literally happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. You either put those glasses on. Or start eating that trash can. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's like, why don't you just put them on so you can see? Why is it that big of a deal? Yeah, right. I know that he sounds crazy, but it's just like, just do the thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I imagine that that scene would have been great to see. Because I think about this scene all the time. The whole, uh, I'm here to chew bubblegum and yeah. kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. But like... 
another thing that stuck out to yeah. me about that scene was yeah. watch think well, actually you're seeing it again and thinking about the logic is that he's literally like running from the cops yeah who are actually zombie yeah. alien yeah whatever they are mutants basically and then he comes in on accident. He just literally in runs in. Yeah. And it has to be a bank. <laughs> and there's a moment where he looks around. And he's like, "Oh crap!" Like, and people are looking at him. And then he just decides. Well, that's what he I was going to say. Is like, decision, okay, I'm going to wipe right. out these people yeah. while I'm in here now. Well, that's like, what's funny too. Is like if you watch the uh, that scene, just thinking about it from the perspective of the people in there who are not the aliens right. they would literally be like what the hell is this guy doing because he don't even want any money yeah. he's just blowing people away like and yeah the and then there's that that moment right after he says that there's that it always makes me laugh i don't know why that shot of that cop the like security guard who's an alien who's like or something yeah. and like he blows him yeah. but yeah it's like i've always thought about that scene that it's like he just walks in and there's these normal people in there just doing bank stuff. Yeah, right. And he don't even want any money. He's just shooting people and they've got to be like, what is this guy doing? But but yeah. that, that just struck, stuck me, struck me this time. Is yeah. He comes in like kind of by accident and then just makes the decision, all right, <laughs> I'm going to say yeah. this big yeah, line right, yeah. and just because, start shooting and Yeah, because <laughs> the biggest moment in the movie is him just like, oh, okay, well, whatever. <laughs> it's yeah. like the biggest scene in the movie just kind of <laughs> happens like – Start eating that trash can, yeah. But uh, and so, but do you know yeah. what I mean? Like the legacy yeah. of the movie sometimes yeah. is a little oh, yeah, no, it is. worthy. But the yeah. movie itself is actually really good. I saw that movie my freshman year of college, and I'd always heard about it. And uh, but yeah, that it. Uh, I think it is really good. But you know what's funny about John Carpenter, who I want to say, I want to be very careful about how I say this. Who I think is a very slightly overrated filmmaker, oh, who I love. I would agree I love with all deeply. that. Yeah. Um. But his movies, interestingly, and this has no bearing on that, don't you find it interesting that he is randomly one of the most unsuccessful uh, genre filmmakers of his movies always just barely made money, it seemed like, except for Halloween. I was going to say, I guess that one is the exception that allowed him to do and get Mm -hmm. away with as much as he was in the 80s, because the thing famously... Yeah, didn't, well, didn't, didn't do very, do very well. Escape from New York, I think, was okay. Yeah, it was a lot of movies that did like, fine. It yeah. was like that, and then... Just enough to get to the next right. thing, pretty much. Uh, and then even They Live was similar. And then I remember particularly, I think it did actually make all right money, but Big Trouble in Little China was kind of like a nail in the coffin for him in Hollywood. I, I know that was kind of the movie he was, I'm done yeah. making Hollywood movies. Um and no, because I really like a lot of his movies. Even yeah. Chris, Christine, I think, is pretty good. The Fog, the I really fog, like. Yeah. Uh, but so that's not to say his movies aren't really good. But it seems like it's strange. I think it's that people have come out in yeah, the years since aged then really well. to be. Oh, and they have yeah. definitely. Yeah, as far as for genre movies, especially yeah. uh, of the eighties. Uh, because it's weird. It's like, I think he's one of the best '80s directors, but he's slightly overrated, which says something about the '80s, which yeah. we continually say, you mm-hmm. know. Because uh, he's no, I, you know, he's no Ivan Reitman or some like, oh, just I'll make crap, whatever, you know, like in the '80s of like Ghostbusters or whatever. Um, and that was one thing but, about They Live. I think that the effects are pretty good. I mean, they yeah. like age really well. I mean, and obviously it's not CGI, so usually that means it is mm-hmm. going to age better. Uh, the satire is very 80s, but it feels very like speaks to a lot of even a 
uh, post digital world that we live in. Too, yeah, it I feels mean. very Running Man to yeah. me in memory. There's a, because like both movies are like there's the network, like yeah. there's the secret network, and there's a guy with a big beard and hair, and he's mm-hmm. like, and he's like, we've got to we've got to punch through the network. And I had or whatever, I had yeah, actually you know. forgotten how yeah. exactly the movie ended. I remember. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that Piper's character, spoiler alert. He's killed and he yeah. dies, but that he he stops the broadcast from going out, and people are able to see the aliens, yeah. the aliens for what they are. But I had kind of forgotten <laughs> the, the exact very moment, final moment. The movie yeah. ends almost like, oh wow, okay. Yeah. And yeah. I do think that um, that they live and indicative of a lot of other Carpenter things. It does satire really well. And I say all that because I have satire more on my mind because, as we're going to talk about later with American Beauty, which is, I think, a very bad satire, uh-huh. uh, it really gets the tone right. Mm-hmm. And, spoiler alert, American Beauty doesn't really get the tone right. But I think that something like They Live really does. Yeah. It knows it knows that it's about a big some big ideas, but also isn't afraid to have some very serious stuff in it. Start eating that trash can. Yeah, take it well, that's too, what, too seriously. Yeah, that's you why I, mean? I love a movie like Big Trouble in Little China, which undoubtedly has a lot of orientalism and issues with that which as we've said random a random amount on this podcast the 80s had a massive orientalism problem in movies it was just like rife with asian stereotype and we've talked a lot about that by now mm-hmm. but that movie hits this sweet spot where it's like oh but it's all kind of like a like a joke, anyway. You know what I mean? But not at the well, expense also, the of single most the preposterous culture. person in that movie is Kurt Russell. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, I mean, like, yeah. it ain't just, right. you know. So, so that, but, that, that all, but that's also, I think, a celebration of kung fu movies and uh, Chinese action cinema that was not as, like I said, common, that was randomly being found by, like, Olivier Assayas in. Yeah. In the eighties, in writing for Cahoots to Cinema, really making Hong Kong and Chinese movies a big deal in right. France. But that randomly around that same time, like I said, a lot of these movies kind of breaking through in America through that. But like I said, I feel like that movie hits a sweet spot of it. It's all goofy and kabuki and cartoonish, but it doesn't feel to me like it's at the expense of the culture so much as it's just an emulation of that genre. Yeah. Um. But that yeah, a movie like that isn't afraid to literally have the ending be like, oh, there's like a werewolf demon thing on the truck, yeah. like like what you know. Um, this is a very and, very minor yeah. thing to mention, but one thing I because again I've only seen They Live once and it yeah. was some years ago rewatching it. Um, the moment um, where like you know that there's like it's like something weird's going on at this church, you know? Yeah. And, and I was thinking, and I couldn't, again, I hadn't seen it in a while. So I was like, Oh, is he going to make some big thing about how old oh, religion is well, yeah. up here to the masses? And again, whatever, if that would have happened is, you know, I'm talking, I'm yeah. saying, oh, this is a Christian, of course. I'll be like, okay, we're used we to that again. crap. So, yeah, but actually the, and I don't even think he's, you know, very much a Christian no, or necessarily a religious yeah. person. However, it turns out the church is the source of truth yeah. and the source of enlightenment, which I found, and it, you yeah. know, because actually they're housing the, the glasses right. that they're making and all yeah. that. So I just thought that was actually an interesting. And again, he's not, I don't think, very religiously minded yeah. or Christian necessarily. But I, I did had think remembered that, was, that though uh, that that was a whole was part like, of the movie. A yeah. part I was like, okay, all right, we're gonna see that too. But actually, he didn't exactly mm-hmm. do that. So, um, but yeah, there's a lot of movies like that of around that era of Repo Man is similar in a lot of ways. I think to that. Yeah. 
uh, stylistically and kind of tonally. Also, uh, the howling, it reminds me a yeah. lot of, especially the ending yeah, we've talked that's, about. That's what and, uh, reminded yeah. me of that. Uh, and Joe Dante's another filmmaker of the 80s, I think, is really great. So I think it's kind of those are the one, well, obviously, Spielberg. Carpenter, though, very but, clearly had yeah. these more, he had more teeth. I mean, he wanted to make movies about very yeah kind of big specific things i right. mean somebody like dante or landis i think they were more yeah. in it for and again I, I respect both especially dante but his movies were more political i think yeah very more explicit yeah, political, uh, so. than, than landis which i don't really want to hear politics from john landis so actually it was a good thing because <laughs> uh, it turned but out but just yeah. to wrap up this yeah. discussion about these movies you know i've more recently bought a 4k of they live and hadn't mm. rewatched it yet and i think on paper somebody would say oh just watch, stay at home and watch the 4K. No. No, I no. want to see it on the big screen. And I only didn't go. I, yeah. I don't have a guarantee that that will ever happen yeah. again in my life. And so yeah. that's why I wanted to do that. Yeah, and, and I only I didn't really go because, had, well, I'm a soccer coaching, coach, yeah. assistant coach of soccer sure. now. So I uh, didn't have time. Sense, yeah. But, uh, yeah, because I really wanted to see that because I've always remembered liking it. But, yeah, and I mean, like, that's one of those few, you know, and as another thing to talk about. As far as wrestler performances in movies, that's like a whole thing. Hulk Hogan did that a lot in the 90s, Suburban Commando, notably. <laughs> I was frozen today! A which small was role, but Rocky III. Uh, oh, right. He's at the beginning. Uh, that was right when he was yeah. at the height of Hulkamania. John Cena, obviously The Rock, Stone Cold Steve Austin. I feel like this is def- my favorite, by far, wrestler performance in It's movie definitely like the most that. left field, I yeah. think. And, um, because it only- is Roddy Piper, very definitively. Yeah. But it's not like overly I so. I might be wrong about this, like, but I think that was originally supposed to be a Kurt Russell performance. Yeah, I can see he, that. He, uh, I don't know if his scheduling or whatever. I'm was, actually glad that didn't happen. Yeah, I, feel, I think it's best for everybody. Because that yeah. is what I think of when I think of They Live. Well, it also, him, it doesn't, you know. I think if it was Kurt Russell, but it would have been good, Yeah, but it would have got lost in the Russell-Carpenter collaboration. Yes, right. It would have just been another one of those movies, which yeah. is fine. But being a like Roddy Piper, yeah. gives it this distinct right. personality. And, and Kurt Russell's you know. definitely the right guy for something like uh, Big Trouble in Little yes. China. Yeah. So I, Nobody, think, I don't really right. know if anybody else could have done that, yeah. you know. So yeah, but uh, but anyways, it was yeah. really cool to see this on the big screen and taken in. Yeah, um, I want to talk a little bit about a new story that had recently come out. Um, that that man, they really are getting too much with that picture. Look at that. Yeah. Uh, this this was published by Vulture this uh, past week, I believe. The decomposition of Rotten Tomatoes, the most overrated metric in movies, is erratic, reductive, and easily hacked, and yet has Hollywood in its grip. This was written by Lane Brown of Vulture.com, and it opens with this whole anecdote about, in 2018, um, a movie publicity company called Bunker 15 took on this new project, Ophelia, which I... Had really forgotten about. I remember um, that it was yeah. barely. It was this movie that was basically. It says here a feminist retelling of Hamlet that Daisy yeah. Ridley who right. was in. Uh, yeah. Um, and the, the movie had early on started off with a negative Rotten Tomato score, but that the publicity company behind Ophelia again Bunker Fifteen basically subtly got in the ears and paid certain critics. Yeah. Who had a were not big critics. I mean, right. we're not talking about like. Owen Gleiberman yeah. or Kyle Newman or uh, Matt Solar right. like or you know yeah, people yeah. you'd really know, but basically people who have like have some bare bare minimum online film presence and film blogs right. yeah. to write positive reviews mm-hmm. for it, 
and that they didn't exactly tell them to write a positive review, but they gave them little money and kickbacks to for them to basically, you know, under the table, giving them right. money to give them positive reviews. And that was all the basis of what it went on to basically excoriate um, Rotten Tomatoes as a metric. It had some quotes from some prominent individuals. Here's one from Paul Schrader. The studios didn't invent Rotten Tomatoes, and most of them don't like it, but the system is broken. Audiences are dumber. Normal people don't go through reviews just like they used to. Rotten Tomatoes is something the studios can game, so they do. Um, and they even talked a little bit, jumped to saying, um, in a recent interview, Quentin Tarantino, uh, whose next movie is called The Movie Critic, he obviously... He's of a generation where movie critics were certainly... One of the reasons he got into movies, he very famously was uh, loved Pauline Kael and had a huge affinity for her. This is, And Tarantino, he's pretty plugged in, right? I think we would agree. Yeah. This is what he says. Okay. Today, I don't I don't know anymore. Talking about he doesn't read critics' work. I'm told Manola Dargis, she's excellent, but when I asked uh, what are the three movies she loved and the three that she hated in the last few years, no one can answer me because they don't care. I don't really um, think that's a relevant question, uh, but okay. Uh, well, I'll give you one but other anyway. little quote before we get into talking yeah. about this. To filmmakers uh, across the taste spectrum, Rotten Tomatoes is a scourge. Mark Scorsese says it reduces the director to, quote, to a content manufacturer and the viewer of an unadventurous consumer. Uh, I love, by the way, it's going to follow a Martin Scorsese quote with a Brett Ratner quote, so that's always a great one. Is he still not <laughs> officially canceled, by the way? Well, he's quoted in this story, so he was at least talked to, talked to with that. Um, Brett Ratner has called it, quote, the destruction of our business. I'm glad Well, maybe Brett he Ratner said that years stuff. ago or something. I, that might have been one of those. Now I'm imagining yeah, him as like... that's actually from an uh, Entertainment Weekly article from 2017. As this like... Ex- oh, right before. Yeah. Uh, as like, uh, now I'm imagining him as like an exiled hermit on his like, oh, we went to ask him about Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. but no. But so, um, after this story came out, there was like... A lot of the Marvel slash DC slash Star Wars crowd, they're like, see, we knew Rotten Tomatoes was a scourge, but the whole point of the story was critics were being paid to give higher reviews for independent movies where Rotten Tomatoes scores are more important for independent movies than they are the big new Marvel, DC, Star Wars, whatever. And so they literally took the story out of context and said, oh, see, critics have it out for our kind of movies how do you what what what's your own perception of what Rotten Tomatoes means in 2023? Anyways, can I start with thing? the name, which is an implication of something I yeah, loathe, sure. which is the idea of because obviously that's referring to the idea that in uh, ancient times, I suppose, yeah. uh, like 2018. No, just kidding. Pre Yeah, well, post. Yeah. I guess I don't know. Whenever that happened. Yeah. Uh, but in like you know ancient times or medieval times, when people were unhappy with a performance, they would quite literally throw vegetables and tomatoes at people. That's seen in Batman Returns, right? Which, <laughs> which what? is referred to in the movie as a joke by saying, "Who brings lettuce and tomato to a speech?" Yeah. Like you know, <coughs> before a guy who was just running for mayor uh, yeah. decides to machine gun blast the and then jump. The crowd. Oh, that my favorite moment of that is after he does yeah. it, he throws it down and kind of jumps onto some people. <laughs> And tries like, to run and runs away. Which yeah. is because of the fat suit that he's in. Yeah, he right. basically falls <laughs> more or less than jumps. But anyway, uh So yeah, that's yeah. what's referring so, to. So that yeah, practice. so that already is a prop because we're of the idea of buy the ticket, take the ride, you know, of like 
anybody that has something to say in art should not be physically assaulted. Is that a basic statement we can uh, yeah. get to? Uh, okay. We can agree on that. Uh, like, even somebody like like David Ayer, and thank God for him, as we know. Uh, <laughs> I would never, like, throw something at that guy. You know? Oh, it's like, yeah, yeah. I would I just... Mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's clearly yeah, it's not... Like, yeah. So, like, that's one of those things where it's like, any artist who gets to a certain point, you have to respect to say, they made this thing, I can hate the thing, and I can hate them. But whatever now i'm gonna move on right you know whatever so that inherently as a name i think represents what a cancer all this is and ultimately you know because everybody says they hate it rightfully i think well but but people have different reasons for hating it specifically but my ultimate actual reason for why i don't like it is what it actually does and i think most people don't understand this normal people is that it's merely an aggregate for positive reviews so sometimes you get a movie that's like 90-some percent. Yeah. That does not take into account the rabidity of or the severity of the review. To that point, real you know, quickly, it also yeah. talked about in the article about movies that get mixed reviews. And I think some of the movies that I think about the most and the movies that stick with me, even if I don't love them, are the ones I'm kind of in the middle on, right? And to equate it, and some people said, well, we were already getting to this with thumbs up and thumbs down with Ebert and Siskel and Ebert. I mean... That it's boiling up to. I liked it or I didn't like it. And if you actually watched their show, they had a lot of like they would talk eh, about it, though. you know, and talk yeah. about all that. And they would ultimately go one way or another. And even would sometimes, I think, on TV, resent the fact that they had to do one or the other. Um, but so some would say, well, we've already been moving in that direction for a while. But and I think Schrader was later quoted again in that article saying that it discounts. Movies that are very complicated. Paul the Robbie like, Robertson of movies. Yeah. Uh, oh, you want to ask anybody? Go ask. And also, Paul he knows Scorsese. You know, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, but yeah. like, but basically, that you yeah. know, like, I mean, again, movies that I walk away from, like, eh, I don't know, but, but as an artistic statement, I would like very much say, oh, this needs to exist. People need to see this, even if I didn't totally love it, right? Yeah. And so that's also part of the problem is that. <coughs> They're, like reviews are written, and then that somebody's looking at it and going, "Do they like it or do they not like it?" And that yeah. is such a oversimplification, oftentimes of like what the movie we talked about last time, American History X. If somebody said, "Would you give that a rotten or a neg or a rotten or a positive review?" I would give it a positive review, right? But I would have caveats. I would have yeah, but this, yeah, but that. Mm-hmm. That gets lost in a thumbs up, thumbs down, or a positive. That's why negative, reading you know? film criticism is important because it, and, right. and that's why a lot of my favorite critics don't give star ratings that I read. Most don't yeah. actually. Uh, now, the New York Times does not give star ratings, but they'll do anymore. a critics yes, pick yes, thing. Yeah, they do that now, and I say this is somebody who writes for Letterboxd and. Will, on your own blog, yeah. Right, but on my own blog, I never include what the star rating is, just personally, because I used to do that, but I don't know. Like I said, I do on uh, Letterboxd just because the feature is there. And I and I do give star ratings. I'm not going to say I don't, because I think that is but a you, good but metric. But you would admit, like I would, that, that there's more to movies than, I mean, yeah. close stars. and there's gets. movies I love that are not, that don't have good star ratings, or movies I think that are have high ones that I don't care about. Um, right. But, uh... Yeah, that's all just to say that what that doesn't... It do, there's a lot that that metric doesn't take into account at all. Also, for older movies sometimes, when they only have a couple compiled, right? Uh, it has a misleading 
percentage. Uh, like it's oh, it's a hundred percent. Well, it's like well, it's because there's only two reviews on here and they were both positive. So, what does that mean? Also, you know what I normally use it as is a tool to go find reviews for things. Like when we were doing, when we were honestly reading a lot more reviews for this the podcast, we were doing, yeah. that's I would go there sometimes and literally look for specific reviews. Uh, but otherwise, it's useless. And I mean, ultimately, yeah, the fact that they're paying people to do that. There's but I want to emphasize they're paying yeah. people to write. And it's, and it's not Rotten Tomatoes. It's publicity groups that are gaming Rotten Tomatoes yeah. to bump up the score. And they're not paying people to write negative reviews. They're paying people to write positive reviews. Let yeah. me just make that clear. To poke any holes in the conspiracy theorists yes. of the other side. That right. They, and that well, and that's who I'm about to who I'm yeah. about to lambast. So hang yeah. on. The, the other thing is, too, I think when people hear that, they want to have this whole idea or this conspiracy theory of... Because this is always my... This will kind of encapsulate my general response to conspiracy theory. Is that when people say, Oh, they're, oh these people are being paid to do this and write these reviews and they're out to get them. I think it's going to lead people to uh, forget how incredibly stupid most uh, critics are now. In the sense of that, uh, no people actually are that stupid sometimes to give good reviews for bad movies, um, or that saying, "Oh, these people that write these good reviews for these independent movies and are paid to do that are worse than these people who write good review." These, like I said, the DC and Marvel and Star Wars crowd of like, "Oh, well, what about these?" And it's like. No, you are an idiot, mm-hmm. an actual person who doesn't know what you are doing. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't ever even speak ill of, even though this is bad, I'm not saying that, but it's like you shouldn't even be allowed into the conversation to even then say, oh, well, they're being paid to do this. Go it's like, well, nobody's table. actually paying you. You're just an idiot mm-hmm. is what your problem is. Yeah, right. So that's what I think the problem with this whole story is, like you said, is that people are going to get the wrong impression and forget, no, there actually are real idiots out there. Mm-hmm. that do these things and nobody actually pays them they just really are that stupid and are li- or or like I said and that to me is almost worse than somebody just lying and getting money for it yeah uh now and obviously that is bad yeah and people should be able to have their own taste subjectively that is worse yeah but they're going to get away with just being idiots right too yeah. so and um, another thing too is and it, it talked about a ringer article that I remember reading years ago I think Sean Fantasy may have written for the ringer uh who I generally like mm-hmm. a lot, think a lot of, as far as his taste goes, um, about how important the Rotten Tomatoes score is for the box office. I think, you particularly of like independent movies, um, and specifically like low budget horror movies. You know that have a chance to make it into a multiplex to make big money, and in particular for these indie movies, you know that's that they really need that Rotten Tomatoes score because even even like people who don't look at the Rotten Tomatoes rating. On the on the gospel or on the mountain as much as we do or others who are more of a we would classify yeah. as cinephiles that look at it past that that it's so important for those independent movies because they know that their audience is already so small and that they want to have that certified fresh logo that they can put on the poster yeah. or they can put on the trailer and I just think it's so sad that those independent movies sometimes even the ones that aren't so good have to compete and be on that level to get any attention, you know, because yeah. the attention's so small right. for those type of movies anyways. Um, and so, again, you know, it's, again, it's all part of the larger thing. And, I mean, there was some, the thing that me, you, and our cousin Philip were really 
lambasting some time ago. It was a New York Times article that was written a few weeks ago, maybe a month or so ago, about um, basically TikTok critics. TikTok critics. Yep. And that's, I feel like, the next wave and the, the next generation of, the YouTube. of YouTube yeah. critics or online critics. Um, yeah, because it was like, don't call them critics. And it was like, don't worry, I wasn't going to, but okay. Well, well yeah. how would you even really rate the state of film criticism right now as you see it? Oh, it's in the toilet. I mean, would you, I mean, on uh, par with what movies themselves are, I guess, in terms of just not at a great place. Yeah, I mean, because uh, there are still quality critics, but they're more and more being put yeah. on the side and not. Yeah, just and the I loudest mean, voices wins, and especially fandoms of franchises dominate the conversation more so than right. actually. And I don't want to totally yeah. act like film critics were ever this entirely respected yeah, group. Sure. I agree. Uh, I think that's something that, but it is a certainty because I was just reading in that uh, the big the big goodbye, which I'm almost done with that about book about Chinatown, Chinatown that Sam Wasson wrote. And there's a certain place if I had the book in front of me, I'd read it, uh, just read the paragraph. But there was a part it said something about uh, people that came out to see that movie referred to Pauline Kale by her first name and Canby by his last name and talked about blah blah basically saying these were an educated populace of moviegoers that cared about movies and read reviews and talk you know um and i think there was an era of that definitively uh but now you know that's just something that i think with the explosion in particular of uh blockbuster cinema and a lacking, uh, I guess, just literary nature to popular movies has degenerated, I suppose, the uh, public's interest in reading reviews. I don't yeah. know. Um, but well, yeah, reading so, in general, much less. Yeah. Uh, so it really movies. doesn't matter. Um, I mean, now it is literally all about this kind of grassroots, more populist version of. Some guy on TikTok that I like said he liked it, so I'll go watch it. You know, what effect do you uh, think Letterbox has on this too? Because as far as younger cinephiles go, that scene is a more that scene is with more respect, I think, by your average younger cinephile right. than it is than Rotten Tomatoes or even traditional critics are. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, because obviously we we yeah. partake in Letterbox culture to an extent, as far as we have Letterbox pages, yeah, and we use them. I mean, yeah, and the thing with that too, I think that has degenerated in its own way. Well, also, it just, frankly, it, it is literally so, a social media platform, so that's its yeah. own thing, you know. But also the fact that normally when you go on there, a lot of the more favored reviews are jokes. Yes. And people I don't take the, one, the time like, to actually sit yeah, and keep, read keep a talking, review. I'm try to find one you know. Quick, yeah. uh, and, you know, I have my own blog and write stuff on there, but I always do my best to put most of if not all of it in the my letterbox review or I'll put a link. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, that just gets so old to me, that whole idea of, oh, it's just, a, you know, uh, we'll just write a review and whatever. Uh, one of the most liked reviews or most popular reviews in letterbox history yeah. is for Joker. Um, this has 29,397 likes. This happened to my buddy Eric. <laughs> now, it should be noted that my review of Joker was... And by the way, 
I was, uh, I don't know if I ever told this story on here. When I went and saw Joker, I literally was in the midst of being afraid that I had uh, uh, inhaled too much bleach while cleaning a bathroom and so had a headache, was sick to my stomach and was worried about that fact. So uh, knowing that, my review of that movie, uh, which was a a negative one, uh, was I tired, you tired, Joker wept. But, you know... (laughs) So I'm not saying that I wrote a lot about Joker, but normally that's not my impulse. My impulse is to write something longer about something. But yeah, that that's its own problem. I think with uh, in general is it's weird because and I, I think I I wrote this somewhere here recently. I don't remember in what thing it was about the idea that uh, a democratic uh, kind of criticism is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, for people to be able to voice their opinions. But it also leaves this whole void of the intelligentsia to point people in directions they need to go in. Yeah. So... A lot of people say, well, that's elitist, though, to presume that... And this goes to larger ideas. I was talking about this with a friend, actually, last night, uh, who's an English professor at a community college. Mm -hmm. The idea of, quote, great works and, quote, the canon is something that's now, we probably touched on this in the past at some point, been attacked as something that's the domain of uh, white men and that, you know, we need more voices and and that kind of thing. But the whole idea that, no, there are no, quote, great works. Young adult literature is on par with literary fiction or, like, superhero movies. Superhero movies are the Greek gods of today. You know, as we hear so often today, like, this elevation of low culture um, to being high culture. I feel like this is a part of this whole conversation. Yeah, and... Uh, Real quick, also, Joker, another... This is a one-star review. I think this is better yeah. than that is. If you've never swam in the ocean, then, of course, a pool seems deep. That, that That's matter. actually good. Yeah. Now, but, yeah, and, and, and let me say, like... And I say this as a small-letter Republican of the idea of, I think, that government should function on a certain ability of saying, okay, well, these people who know what they're doing should represent mm-hmm. the, cla- the class, everyone. Yeah, right. Uh, that's not to say, though, that I think anyone is lesser than, mm-hmm. simply that there are people who are more capable than others of knowing how to uh, express themselves and make things work. I believe the exact same thing about criticism of art, is that and one of the there most should pop- be... You know, a group of people that says, no, 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 hang on. There's this thing over here. Because guess what? You know what the best thing about that is? Is that people don't have to go see the thing. Mm -hmm. And we we obviously, uh, we talked about this back, I know, when we were talking about Jane Dillman and the new Sight and Sound um, poll. Um, We have more women and um, critics of color, queer critics, than we've ever had. And that's undeniably a good thing, right? Um, But I do think that there needs to be at least uh, a standard of quality that is set by a diverse set of critics, mm-hmm. but nonetheless... Well, one of the great reviews be, that know, we still talk about is Wesley Morris about Ted 2. Oh, okay. I mean... One of the all-time... You know, so that's one of the better Also, uh, he wrote a... Well, he's I've a great critic in general, yeah. but he wrote a really great one on uh, Let's Be Cops. Yeah. You remember that movie? Yeah, I, I read that, too, and, actually. Uh, I didn't see and the it movie. it was, like, but, all in the yeah. midst when there was a police shoot yeah. that happened to be when that came out, yeah. and... He took that movie to task in a weirdly gentle way, actually, compared to what it could have been. But yeah, sometimes it's like you know, it's like when 
like if our mother gets mad at you in the sweetest kind of voice or the sweetest thing, that's the most devastating thing that can yeah. happen sometimes and so right so like that, that so that's only to say that yes I, I champion that in every way is that yes there used to be an elite that was just white and Man, and and that was what was so big about Pauline Kale is it wasn't so much her taste which is very she was I mean she was the Armin White or Rex Reed of her era of someone who was like always oh well no but then no there were movies she was like no yeah this is good and it was the godfather you know so it's not to say she was always right it was the fact that wow at that time a the woman could break view, through yeah. and and say this you know and that's something that frustrated me about uh um among many things about uh, I'm thinking of ending things was that whole scene of uh um the woman under the influence, Pauline Kale, woman under the influence so thing. So insular, by the uh, way. Yeah, and it's like, I love, I think woman under the influence is one of the best movies ever. Love yeah. it. Pauline Kale can think whatever she wants about that. Mm-hmm. Because she was a female critic. And if she wants to say, I don't think that females are represented well in this movie, that is not in any way my business. And I'm still going to love that movie, and I'm still going to love reading her reviews. Yeah. So it's like, that's just a stupid example. Uh, yet another thing in a movie that's just kind of ridiculous and obtuse. And I know, um, and I, but, I know that I know a movie yeah. like that in particular. I know we're going off a tangent here. Yeah. I know a movie like that is meant for a very particular audience. But that's one of those things. Like, how many people are really going to watch this and connect to this? Yeah. There's going to be all these people watching. Oh, a Netflix movie. Oh, it looks kind of kind of weird. And watch it and be like utterly lost in a scene like that. That Jesse Buckley like, smoking a cigarette and like talking about some movie they've never even heard of. And again, and, I'm not saying you yeah. can't make specific cultural references, but that 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 whole that's part of one of many off-putting things about that movie. I thought, but yeah. Anyways, well, and also there's a there's a problem with that movie because it's almost uh, Charlie Kaufman's through Jesse Plemons saying, "I don't know, I just kind of like the movie," and like, "What's this woman coming and ruining my idea of a movie?" Just a very sexist idea in general. That's just. You know, that whole movie's problematic anyway, but that's just something that always rubbed me the wrong way from the first time I saw it because I'm like, yes, I love A Woman Under the Influence, and I think John Cassavetes, especially for an early independent filmmaker, wrote and understood women unlike anyone else of that era. But at the same time, it's cooking with gas, so it's like, yeah, I could see where somebody would be like, I don't think this is right, and I'm fine with that. It doesn't matter to me. I'm still going to respect that mm-hmm. idea. Because also it's Pauline Kale who was a, you know, even despite some of her uh, lack of taste or whatever, was a really great writer of yes, a critic. Yes, yes. And it's just so it's just it doesn't matter. It's just it's just stupid. So so anyways, you know, that all anyway, that nuance and discussion yeah. we had uh, is that going to get a positive or a negative review? Well, you know, that's that's what Rotten Tomatoes. And that's is all and about, that's what so. I yeah, and that's what I'm saying is because I remember years ago we had this discussion about. You always use Melancholia as an example of like a movie that's like, eh, I don't know that I like that, but in your no, case, because yeah, I haven't seen yeah, that Yeah, yeah, I mean, but, that's one of those yeah. movies that I would maybe at that moment, and spoiler alert, it might be in our future eventually, we'll see. Uh, in the moment, I would have been like, mm, I don't think so, but would have then proceeded to talk about for an hour and a half. Yeah. Any movie that I'm talking about for an hour and a half that isn't some garbage, stupid studio movie, you know what I mean? Mm. 
that is has some nuance and artistic merit, even if I lightly unlike it, I would still if like if you know if I wrote like a a lightly negative is a strong word, but like mixed to not so great review for that movie, and Rotten Tomatoes emailed me and said, "All right, so positive or negative?" I would say positive. Mm-hmm. I would go, eh, you know what though? I'm gonna give it because I. I Part of it, I know it's part of this stupid game. Time to play the game, <laughs> but like you want to the idea. But like, of, I, but yeah. I know that old oh, a movie like this, frankly, needs to have as high of a Rotten Tomato score as it can because yeah. it's part of the part of the game of making the movie successful. Well, yeah, because because that's and so the again, I would of, give it a positive yeah. r- r- quote positive rating just because I'm like, I think this is a complicated interesting sophisticated work of art that while i might not have totally loved i think is worthy to people to see and to talk well, yeah because that's the know? whole point of any movie that you write about especially the way i look at it is it's like well i want people to go out and see this or or i'm feel like people need to know about this thing like you know so but if it's the new transformers yeah. movie who cares yeah. i mean like you can just say even if you thought oh that was a good enough time it's not going to stick with you i mean it's not going to be anything that's meaningful and so you might quote give that. Oh, I might give the new Transformers a very light three stars, which would quote classify as positive, right? Yeah. But then I would maybe give Melancholia two and a half stars or two, but I'd still be like, but that's the one that you need to see. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that that's the fa- the fallacy of things like Rotten Tomatoes yeah. is that it boils things down to these easily simplified ideas yeah because the sad thing is too i mean i remember i wrote you know randomly pretty long review for uh dial of destiny Mm -hmm. uh but i don't really ever think about that movie you know a movie like that's Uh, packed with so much context and history too and so i wrote a lot about that and then could hardly find the words to talk right about eight men out which i watched literally right after that around the same time but that doesn't mean anything you know Mm -hmm. so yeah, and it's a far, far clearly better movie. You yeah, know, you would say film criticism, and and this is ultimately in its own way what uh, the one thing I definitively agree with Pauline Kael about in her art, her uh, essay "Circles and Squares" uh, that she talked about Andrew Saris's you know criticize Andrew Saris's auteur theory, which that was like probably the most famous critic against critic yeah, divide right. ever. One thing I definitively agree with with her in that is saying that she feared that people would see film criticism or cinephilia as a science. Yeah. Which I took, and she said, it's not a science. Movies are not a science. You don't just say this thing is this because this person directed yeah, right. it, which I totally agree with. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that's totally what Andrew Sears was saying, and I don't think that's what auteur theory is intended to be. Always mean, yeah. Uh, but that's what frustrated me so much about being in film school is that everybody I knew saw film as a science, not as an experience. Or a or, puzzle that needed or to be solved. Yeah. It was a as thing. What they thought, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so that's why you have examples of people watching Pierrot Le Fou of thinking, and that's a movie I think a lot about that I don't really like. Spoiler, another movie. Who knows in the yeah. future. That is a movie that I'm like, mm, I don't know. So you inherently but, have a huge respect yes. for Godard. And, what and I yeah. went, I walked out of that movie so freaking angry. I was just so mad. I was like, I hate this. But think, thought about it a lot. 
And then, so I was like that about that. And then Wings of Desire, oh, man, really something. Oh, boo, oh, everybody, oh, like. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, it's this film. They like that because it broke rules or did this or did that. Well, also, uh, you know, this is going to get in another category, yeah. I guess. But that's a more um, uh, vulnerable movie. But yeah, versus right, yeah, versus yeah. Pierre Le is very confrontational. Yeah. That's going to appeal to 20 Right, so that's why that is ultimately, so yeah. whatever. But yeah, the, that's the thing I think we need to walk away from this from this whole conversation is that film criticism is not a science, yeah. um, and films or, are not or a science. Or sport. Or I mean, sport. I sport. Yeah. Well, usually what it is uh, for these fandoms now. Right, so it's like, that's not the point of any of that. And, this only, and then Rotten Tomatoes only encourages all that. So I know we kind of talked more about Rotten Tomatoes than we did this phenomenon, but that kind of is the point of the whole thing is just numbers either in money or in percentages being used to justify going to see something when people should just be either interested or dare I say disinterested in something you know yeah so right. whatever I think that's a you know that's a good discussion but it had a little too much nuance I think it's rotten you know that would be yeah. somebody's categorization of it anyways yeah. uh, alright 1999 in film we're going to talk about this a little bit before we get into our movies. First thing I want to do is I want to go through what the top ten movies, box office-wise, of 1999 are. Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, number one. Very clear number one. The Sixth Sense, number two. Which Four, is, by the, can I say, by the yeah. way, still, I think, the highest grossing horror movie ever made. I believe so. Which is insane that it wasn't even the number one of that year, by the way. But that What that just says about a genre movie compared to a Star Wars movie, you know. And also, a Star Wars movie. Star Wars had not been in theaters, uh, yeah, in a new form in, in 15, fifteen years. years yeah. So that meant so, a lot. Yeah, and I was there for that. Uh, Toy Story two's number three. Ooh, not it's two, not three, but oh well. The Matrix number four. Tarzan number five. The Mummy number six. Notting Hill number seven. Kind of random. World is not enough. Number eight. American Beauty number nine. And Austin Powers, the spy who shagged me. You know what's funny about that is that there's only a couple movies in there that people normally talk about when they talk about 1999, which is funny, especially the fact that The Matrix is so high as an R-rated movie, uh, obviously, other than The Sixth Sense. But you know, real quickly, also I want to talk about what some of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture in 1999 are. American, or for the year of 1999, right, right. yes. Uh, American Beauty won Best Picture. Uh, Cider House Rules was nominated, as was The Green Mile, The Insider, and The Sixth Sense. So I guess it's, it should be pointed out that American Beauty and The Sixth Sense were the only movies in the top ten that were nominated yeah. for Best Picture. Um, 1999 has since become this incredibly heralded, storied film uh, year. Um to just name a few things that also came out that year. Uh, the Iron Giant, South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, uh, Fight Club, Bringing Out the Dead, Magnolia, uh, of course, Election, as we'll talk about later, mm-hmm. Bing John Malkovich, Office Space, I believe, also came out in 99. Name some other Eyes Wide Shut. Eyes Wide Shut, of course. Uh, the Straight Story, Man on the Moon. Ghost Dog Way of the Samurai, Wild Wild West. I know I'm, I'm just naming movies at this sure. point. The Limey, uh, Summer of Sam, which is not something that I see pop up often, which I think is a yeah. shame. Yeah. Uh, the Virgin Suicides, that's another really big one. There were also, I want to note, and this will go into part of the conversation we have later, 
some uh, important, I think, foreign films that aren't brought up as much. Bo Travel and Peppermint Candy. Mm-hmm. Um, Both great, yeah. Uh, the Blair Witch Project was oh, another yeah, one. Huge. Um, I'm trying to think. There's something missing here. Uh, Let me look on my thinking of. Two things I've uh, seen. Then. Why, uh, we mentioned just, uh, the yeah we mentioned that was, oh a town to Mr Ripley that's one I know people Man on the Moon I don't know if you mentioned yeah, that I or did not. Uh, yeah. then, uh, American movie uh, Three Kings Bowfinger never forget Ten Things I Hate About You oh, that's a big movie Inspector Gadget uh, Any Given Sunday Girl Interrupted uh, October Sky. There's that one movie, Go, which I hear a lot about, that Doug Lyman oh, movie. Right. Uh, Analyze this, my favorite Martian. Right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, The Hurricane. All right. Elmo and Grouchland, never forget. 8mm, uh, The General's Daughter, Deep Blue Sea, um, Bicentennial Man. So yeah, why 1999, Willie? Why is 1999 seen as a much heralded film here? I think. One thing is obviously the 90s are one of the reasons we even did these series. It's because the 90s, obviously, by this point for several generations now, are held up as not only a signature era and moment for independent film, but for American cinema generally. And so there's a lot of... In 1999, it almost feels like is the greatest hits of some big some of the biggest movies of the 90s yeah. that are talked about. Um, that's the surface, though. What What do you think is behind the 1999 love as far as a film year goes? Uh, well, first of all, it's a more modern year. Uh, I think it's as far as a year can go to uh be more modern that is held up like that. Also, I think a lot of the people who've come around to saying this are now critics that were alive during that time and were able to go see a lot of those things, whereas that was not the case with someone like me or even older critics who have been alive longer and had seen all kinds of years of different things. Uh, so you think, this, you're, in a roundabout way, you're saying this is a Gen X slash millennial yeah, creation? I think so. Yeah. I mean, and and partly also because I think coming up to the 20th anniversary that was something people were talking more and more about uh but also i think it should be said uh that well obviously the 90s i said such a big part of independent cinema we've talked about that the entire time of this whole series that we've done i think also just representative of that are a lot of big movies from directors that uh were either just starting or they were at the end of their career or they were somewhere in the middle uh in the case of obviously kubrick's last film uh, let me just say by the way uh, let me just t- take two seconds yeah. on that i think it's very fitting on the wikipedia page it says the year 1999 film included stanley kubrick's final film eyes watch out that's the first thing that's mentioned uh Obviously, we're huge Kubrick fans. Do you remember uh, when that, that movie came out? What time and year? It was in the. Uh, it was July. July. I'm yeah. say the summer, which is think, so right? random to me because everybody is it a Christmas movie? No, because it was released in the summer. July sixteenth. By the way, that's how you always look about is a movie a Christmas movie? When was it released? That's mm-hmm. where that's what you go to. By the way, because uh, Die Hard. When was that? In the summer. The summer. Yeah. There you go. Batman Returns. When was that? Summer. It was June. The summer. Think, there yeah. you go. Uh. But. 
there's but like Fight Club, The Matrix, being John Malkovich, a lot of these movies Magnolia. that are Magnolia even, which sadly is not as heralded as it should be, especially compared to those films. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them anyway, especially Fight Club. Uh, that I can't think of two movies more dis- different than Fight Club and Magnolia, which we know all, we'll talk about that yeah. in a little while. But I think that those are just movies that uh, felt big not only stylistically but politically and socially. And entering, I think that's another thing is people's obsession with Y two K. Yes, I was going to say that's a big part. All, of all this. boils into. Well, the year that that was going to be, and what did the movie say about the end of uh, the millennium? I'm sure well, they'll so be... just looking at the year one nine nine nine. It's like a countdown. I mean, literally right. look at the year, and you're like, "What's going to happen when it's two zero zero zero? You know, and, yeah. Uh, that feeds into Y two K things we've talked about in a yeah. very direct way until the end of the world was. You know, obviously we talked about that Strange was ninety one, but it's yeah. projecting towards what Y two K is going to be and the fears right. of that. You know. Uh, and yeah, so that's part of it. I think is that people's obsession with that and the idea of what did these movies say about that. Interestingly, I don't feel like most of the movies actually had a whole lot to say about that particular time. Um, other than I think the biggest are like Fight Club and The Matrix are the two big ones. I think most of the other ones are just so happened to be released in that year. Mm-hmm. Um. But I think, especially with, well, to me also, though, it does feel like even other movies like Magnolia, which I is one of my favorite movies and I love, uh, or, um, my mind went blank, or even being John Malkovich, that, that is kind of a 1999 kind of movie, though, as far as what it's about. But it feels like a lot of these movies were very much about that or had these political aspirations or felt like oh everything's coming down everything's toppling down the only movie i feel like that stands out from all this which i still have yet to see and hope to rectify soon mainly because of my fear of it is the blair witch project which strangely says technology cannot save you this older primal form wins out over technology whereas it seems like the opposite of most of these movies is the technology like the matrix uh, is wiping out the old rather than, and that's like a totally almost different kind of weird yeah. uh, side statement. You know, it's fascinating though. I think um, that's totally true about the narrative itself of Blair Witch Project. The whole like release of that movie, which famously, and it's one of those things you shake your head yeah. at now, but as people were caught up in, well, they did the, the time, same thing with the McPherson tape. The idea too, that but, they would release a literal snuff film, basically, yeah. into a multiplex, is hilarious to think about. But the marketing of that movie, that blending of reality and fiction, yeah, survivors right around the corner is a reality show that's going to dominate the two thousands and you know be the so like this blending between reality and fiction, and I also the like idea that they use their actual names, yeah. in the movie, and so yeah, and um, I, I think that was something that was in the in the culture in the water cooler of the time. I mean, the real world was and Brett Easton Ellis being such a proponent yeah. of that, being such a Gen X yeah, uh, and, person in years before. Yeah. I mean, again, the real world and reality TV was starting up, and again, the, the like a lot of these movies, and, and this is a very abstract thing to say, I know, but like. A lot of these movies are dealing with like reality versus fiction or appearance versus 
uh, internal truth. I mean, and so the, all these movies have different versions of that. Now, you could say, well, isn't that what most art's yeah. about? To an extent, yes. But, I mean, of this, I guess it's that very universal concept of what one of the major thematic things uh, you know, undercurrents of art generally, yeah. but in a very nineties context, yeah. dominates these movies in a roundabout way. Yeah. Know? Um. But my whole reading all all that is why I bring that up is that I do feel like yes, there are a lot of movies in nineteen ninety nine that were very much saying, "What is it?" Even a movie like The Virgin Suicides, which was set in the seventies, but is about. Uh, you know, that's a movie that I've randomly think about a lot since yeah, I've seen it. it. Is Actually, good. is one of the most haunting. Yeah, scary non-horror movies I've ever seen because it's a movie that lives with you in a way that the closing moments of American Beauty really makes a stab at trying to do as far as the voiceover narration. That's a movie that doesn't really have a lot of it, but you feel like it's staring at you and haunting you years after you've even seen it because of yeah, the subject matter and, and what and it is. Yeah, and another thing... And the inaccessibility of it. Right. Another way to talk about that movie too, which is very... This is random, but... The Virgin Suicides, when I saw that, was one of the last movies I watched at UNCW before the pandemic. And so when I think of that movie, mm. I think of the day I watched it, which was randomly the spring forward oh, evening right. of yeah. that Saturday. Yeah. I watched that movie, and then I watched The Abyss that mm. evening. And I just remember a lot about those few days because it was right before I was going to yeah. come home for spring break. And then when I was at home for spring break, when COVID, COVID happened, yeah. I was in the middle of doing Ed TPA. There was just a lot going on then. Yeah. And I think a lot about, and it's a scene a lot of people talk about, but it, it, it's, it's like the, uh, the use of Freebird at the end of, th- uh, uh, the devil's reject. Yeah, sorry. I was right. about to say three from hell. Sorry. The devil's rejects of the use of, uh, Come Sail Away by Sticks in that movie where yeah. it's at that prom and the use of that because that song is so trash Yeah, and I actually do kind of like Freebird so let yeah. me say that but that song is so garbage but it is used of like the people when that when it's hitting that like the song's climax and it's the shots of the prom and everybody's dancing and it's like there's this energy building up it's like when I think about that movie, like I said, I feel that in this haunting way, too, of like, of when I watched that movie, yeah, what right, was going right. on in my life. And I, th- I think about that all the time. So it's funny you talked about that yeah. movie being haunting, because I do think a lot about that. Yeah. But but anyway, so that that makes me think of that movie, and it's like, that is memorable to me outside of what the movie was about in 1999, yeah. of it just being allowed to be a movie. But that movie does feel like, oh, it's a lot about uh, drug abuse and and depression and suicide in the 90s and and also that being even slightly similar or tied to Columbine the same year of the idea of high schoolers killing themselves. Um, Obviously that in a totally different context. But at the same time, and what we were talking about off-air earlier and what ultimately my whole reading on the phenomenon of 1999 is the greatest movie year ever, period, in between each and word. And again, there's like been books the written about yes. this literally. And, and as uh, you said, kind of around the 20th yeah. anniversary. That the problem with that is saying, to me, the greatest film year has to be a year that stands outside of the year itself and just said, what were the movies that were made within that year? How great were the movies made within that so, year? Similar to what we were saying earlier, um, that the 1999 in film year is a creation of millennials slash Gen Xers giving, like, 
assigning their own life self-importance to when they remember these were the yes. movies that were out and that they yeah. the nostalgia they feel for when that. they wore the seashell the seashell necklaces and wore hats backwards and all that and wore flip yeah. flops and shorts in public you know <laughs> that whole uh Really, and, I, and I'll say this too about when we get to American Beauty, a really garish, ugly-looking era of movies that I'll, I'll talk about later that I'm nostalgic for, yeah. but also think is utterly repulsive to look at. But anyway, we'll get to that. That's also because camcorders were a thing. Uh, but that I do not feel personally that 1999, of all of its movies, can stand on its own and say all of these movies together make the best year and we'll also talk about in a minute how i think even coming up with the idea of what's the best movie year is reductive and stupid anyway um but that as great as the matrix is uh, we were talking about this in particular all fair that the matrix i think is oh it's the most achingly obvious 1999 movie which also just so happens to be one of the best action sci-fi movie ever made yeah. it's clearly one of the best movies of that year, although it's probably three, I think, behind Eyes Wide Shut and Magnolia. But I, um, I would go as far as say I think it might be the greatest movie of that year. But I would also put those. I mean, those those three yeah. you just named, yeah, Matrix, Magnolia, Eyes Wide Shut. Those to me are like a cut above everything else, and yeah, the order of those to me are negligible and can move, be moved up and down. Right. My personal favorite of those three is uh, Magnolia. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I do, I just, the, the how far ahead the Matrix is, mm-hmm. and how far ahead of the curve, that to me, combined with what a master class in sci-fi action cinema it is, yeah. to me, puts it ahead a little further. But again, like you said, it's also it's like the last year of Stanley Kubrick ever, and we hadn't had, you know, obviously the culture hadn't had a Stanley Kubrick movie for 12 years. That's a huge event. Coming outside of Boogie Nights and how is Paul Thomas Anderson going to follow that yeah. up with his most achingly sentimental movie he's ever made. Fantasia I mean, 2000. We finally got that sequel to Fantasia <laughs> nobody ever wanted. I think you would agree, yeah. though. That, I mean, it is a great movie year. Yeah. Not necessarily yeah. the best, but I mean, it's, it is one of those movie years that I also don't think is necessarily the best, but... It does have a grand variety, I think, in a lot of ways. I mean, there's something for everybody. There's all these movies we name. There's at least two to three everybody loves, depending on yeah. what they are. Um, I also think a lot about being John Malkovich. I think that might be like my four or five would be on that list because that's just a movie that's so freaking weird and like on an island all by itself yeah. in terms of just like why and that to be the Spike Jones's debut as yeah. a feature filmmaker is yeah. staggering. Uh, Lakeshore would also be yeah. up there. Yeah, the and Those, it, that would actually be my yeah. top five. Would probably be those movies yeah. in some uh, order. But I think the point I'm trying to make by all that is to say some of the movies I think about randomly most yeah. about what they are are movies that don't exactly fit into that mold of 1999 yeah. in the sense of okay, Eyes Wide Shut. Very, I don't know. That could be any. Era, well, that 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 had been know. in development for a great many yeah. years. That could have that could have come out in the eighties. And based I mean, on Rimbo and yeah, you know whatever. But also, well, Kubrick also in uh, general, especially by that point, feels like he's on a literal. Well, he was that way. Of, he was yeah. that way in the seventies yeah. anyway. So yeah. whatever. But uh, a movie like Summer of Sam, obviously a period piece. I, from yeah, the 70s, does yeah. not feel necessarily like the twenty fifth hour 
Mm-hmm. does as far as oh this is of a time and a like it feels very much like no nah, this is about 1977 yeah in new york or like i said even a more 1999 movie that isn't quite that of like of uh the virgin suicides is still so much of oh but what's this over here what's this thing over here going on it's not as much of so like you said it happens more uh, to come out in that year than right well, yeah. that period pieces I guess naturally have a tendency to yeah separate themselves from yeah the era uh, or the time they're being but made so in. to me when nineteen ninety nine it's weird it is one of the first movies that pops into my head when people say what's the best film year only because so many people say that I think it's up there. I mean, there's but, also just a lot of movies that, for our generation, those a little older that are big, generation-defining movies yeah. happen to come out that year, several of them. Right. You know, so... And, of course, I guess now we should name what some of our other ones we think might be. Yeah. What, would you like to... You can start yeah, with so that. Yeah, so I'll maybe. even take us earlier to the 90s yeah. and talk a little bit about 1991. Yeah, that was because one Because, let me just go through some of these. And we've talked about a lot of these years already, funny enough, but... Well, let's even talk about the movies that we did for 1991. Right. Of course, uh, Brighter Summer Day and Till the End of the World, two staggering achievements in their own right. Yeah. Uh, Terminator 2, Judgment Day, the greatest action movie ever made. Uh, Barton Fink. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cape Fear. The Fisher King. Uh, Hearts of Darkness, the documentary. Yeah. Of course, Silence of the Lambs, big movie that year. New Jack City, The Doors. Defending Your Life, which mm-hmm. we didn't really, we haven't said anything hardly about that movie. Robert Brooks on this podcast yeah. was a really great yeah. movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one we considered doing that year, but we didn't. Even something as goofy and off the wall as like Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. I just have a lot of a feeling yeah. for that. JFK, uh, we've of course did a whole podcast on that. Uh, the Prince of Tides, The Naked Lunch, all those are both movies I don't necessarily think highest of, but are still interesting. So, Poison, also by Todd Haynes. Which oh, I'm, yeah. yeah. So I, I think 91 is um, a year that I have said, oh, what about Bob? Even America, the Adams Family, too. That was another That one. I just have a lot Point of break. personal <laughs> favorites. Beauty yeah. and the Beast, which I yeah. like fine enough, but was a huge hit. Yeah. And um, I think a lot of a lot of those movies. So, yeah, you know, that was one I thought of immediately. when Because to you, is a film year, part of a film year to me is like, to me, the variety of the movies, but most especially the variety of the movies at the top. Yeah. Like, not just the whole year, but like, you're talking about those five-star classics that might have come out that year. What's the variety? And when I think of 91, the first two movies I think of, and they're not necessarily the best, but the first two I think of are Barton Fink and Terminator 2 Judgment Day. And the idea that there was a time in American cinema where both of those movies could coexist and be things that exist. I'm like, man, that's the era I want to live in as far as that variety of those two things that can sit side by side. Right. So 91 was one that yeah. I immediately think of. Uh, I had a couple I wanted to mention. First of all, uh, 1977, we had Star Wars, Eraserhead, Annie Hall, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Sorcerer, Three Women, Opening Night, The American Friend, Smokey and the Bandit, Black Sunday, um, and then a couple other random ones, Hills Have Eyes, uh, Spy Who Loved Me, um, and even something like Suspiria, which I don't like, but... It's definitely you know, different. And yeah. uh, House, uh, that mm-hmm. Japanese, the Nobuhiko Obayashi movie. Uh, that's one. And then even if you look at uh, 
1975. I mean, you have uh, two tons of turquoise at Taos tonight. Race with the devil and rollerball. No, just kidding. Uh, <laughs> Jaws. One for the cuckoo's nest. Dog Day Afternoon. Barry Lyndon. Shampoo. Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mirror. Night Moves. The Man Who Would Be King. Uh, Nashville, I don't know if you said that. Right? Yeah, Nashville, yeah. obviously, that was another big one. Yeah, I didn't have that listed on here. Uh, Three Days of the Condor, Death Race 2000. Uh, but to me, one of the ones I always think of, one of the immediate ones, is 1971, which just, the, the immensity of this, I think, is hard to even quantify. Uh, the French Connection, Harold and Maude, The Last Picture Show, The Devils, uh, McCabe, Mrs. Miller, Straw Dogs, THX 1138, Two Lane Blacktop, uh, Carnal Knowledge, Minnie and Moskowitz, The Last Movie, Sometimes a Great Notion, mm. Sweet Sweetbacks, mm-hmm. uh, and then, yeah, those are the main ones. Well, and then Clute also, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Um, it's and then I kind of, I kind of joked about this one. Any year that had the Godfather in it, it's like <laughs> so. The Godfather, nineteen seventy-two. The Godfather, Solaris, Cabaret, Aguirre, The Wrath of God, The uh, Deliverance, What's Up Doc, uh, Oh, uh, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, King of Marvin Gardens, most of the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub movies. But another and last one I'll mention, probably 19... Well, I have two more. 1974. I think this is actually one of the stronger ones that I can think of. The Godfather Part Two, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Chinatown, A Woman Under the Influence, Black Christmas, Young Frankenstein, Phantom of the Paradise, uh, The Parallax View, Alice in the Cities, California Split, The Sugarland Express, Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, Freebie and the Bean, uh, Thieves Like Us, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, um, Man with the Golden Gun, no. Uh, and then lastly, one that I preach from the mountaintops all the time, maybe this is because I was there, was 2017. Also, not one well, not in the 70s. Right. Yeah. Uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry, it was just kind of the 70s was, you know, yeah. was uh, Get Out, Lady Bird, Baby Driver, Call Me By Your Name, Blade Runner 2049, Dunkirk, it, the first one. Uh, Logan, Florida Project, Mother, Good Time, Phantom Thread, A Ghost Story, Kong Skull Island, War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, The Big Sick, Columbus, It Comes at Night, Anger Goes West, The Meyerowitz Stories, The Beguiled, Personal Shopper, Lost City of Z, Colossal, which was just like, what the hell? Not Joe Vigilando. Yeah, Brawl in Cell Block 99, another real what the hell kind of movie. Uh, and the green fog, even. Mm-hmm. So, you know, just saying. Those are all great, yeah. Which a lot of people were saying stuff like 2018 or 2019. I think it was 2019 in particular because Parasite came out that year. And then also Midsummer and Knives Out. Uh, a lot of people in Uncut Gems and Little Women and a lot of, and uh, The Irishman. A lot of those are great movies, by the way. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. It seems like. To me, there's so much, and this all goes to the point that there's so much variety across all eras. In a year or two, um, yeah. That another problem is even picking sometimes what your favorite movie of a year is, because then it's like, 
oh well uh, there's this and that and that and then but then think about that on a scale of years of movies and then it's like I don't know it's kind of hard to definitively say a year mm-hmm. plus I think what people love about 1999 is thinking about the idea of oh uh, it was all a zeitgeist it was all planned and this happened and that and it's yeah. like that's just impossible it's kind of a happy accident yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know it is what it is but that's just something that annoys me is thinking about the best year ever. It's like, well, there's no way to really know that anyway, but right, whatever. I mean, and it hasn't been said, um, 1939, yeah. that's the old stereotype. Uh, one year once had the Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. That's yeah. kind of untoppable, frankly, that both of those Mr. movies Smith came goes out. goes to Washington. Roaring Twenties that year. Yeah. Don't I Die, which we've done before. Yeah, really, so. any movie, any year that has the Roaring Twenties in it, it's kind of like, yeah. And then like Wizard of Oz, you know. Yeah. So, Well, then you also think about even decade or uh, years like 1966 or uh, 1957 or some that pop out into my mind, which mm-hmm. I could look at quickly what those are, but those are just years I remember. We even think of like... That, I, Thinking of some off the top of my head, like 1960, you had like Psycho and yeah. The Apartment. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that variety of or even like great movies. You one know. I left out was 1980 with The Shining, Empire Strikes Back, Blues Brothers, Raging Bull, mm-hmm. The Fog, Ordinary People, Out of the Blue, Stardust Memories, Heaven's Gate. Like, mm, yeah. you know. A lot of great things. Uh, yeah. So. 84, I think a lot about too. Yeah, that's you had, one. Uh, yeah. Stranger in Paradise and Paris, uh, Texas. Mm hmm. Uh, but yeah, 66, it was a Good, Bad, and the Ugly, Persona, Blow Up, Andre Rublev, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf, Seconds, Batman, Grand Prix, Harper. Harper. Yep. Harper. Yep. 1957, 12 Angry Men, Seventh Seal, Paths of Glory, Throne of Blood, Sweet Male Success, 40 Guns, 310 to Yuma. Mm-hmm. Those are a lot of really good. Yep. 54 is another one I think of sometimes. Rear Window, Seven Samurai, On the Waterfront. Godzilla, Creature in Black Lagoon, Johnny Guitar. This is all to just say that movies are great. Go watch them. Yeah. Uh, I would, I, you know, I do think 1999, I, I do think it had something special about it with the certain collection of movies that it had. It special. But that doesn't yeah. necessarily inherently make it the best right. movie year ever. Um, but again, I think, again, is I was six going on seven years old when the you know 99 happened and so there's a lot of these movies that i barely remember seeing yeah uh or were aware of and saw the posters of and maybe saw trailers of but didn't see we haven't said oh really one thing about the phantom menace um yeah we, did, we gonna, should say something about yeah. that because that was undeniably speaking as a six-year-old so i was in yeah. a certain demographic that movie was the summer of 1999 that movie literally took over everything Everywhere you looked in the summer of 99, you saw Darth Maul or Jar Jar Binks or, I mean, that movie just took over, especially for my demographic. Or the Anakin Skywalker shadow poster. Right, I mean, those Vader, were a yeah. very iconic right. part of the 90s, and I feel like a big part of this 90s nostalgia, as far as certain critics looking back on it, is to say, <laughs> the movie that we thought was going to be the biggest movie in the 90s or of 99 was not. And it's like, well, it outgrossed all the Well, actually, other it was so, the biggest, and it is the biggest. I mean, not to say yeah. box office success is everything. No, but, but like, yeah. But that movie also, we think more of than most people, I think. I mean, it's got its flaws, but it's yeah. a good start. And well, and I was going to say, you know. I think that it is by far the most, uh, other than The Matrix, mm-hmm. the most influential and important movie of that year. And I'll tell you why. Because we point to it all the time. 
it's so strange to think about this way because my mind, having watched that movie and watched movies like it, is engineered this way already. The a famous part about that movie people talk about is the climax and how they felt about editing it. There, I think there's I counted earlier today because I was thinking about this. There's like four or five strands going on at one time of story, right? Yeah, there's five because I actually forgot one of them. So there's the uh, Darth Maul. Obi Wan and Qui-Gon. and Qui Gon stuff. Then there's the stuff of like uh, Padme and uh, going into the throne room stuff. Then there's the uh, Jar Jar Binks. Jar Jar, and then the space uh, battle, and then the space battle. So actually, no, there are four, yeah. not five. Okay. It's still four, yeah. Uh, four threads going right. On and once. so when I look back on that, that doesn't seem that radical in my mind. You know, because I'm like, okay, yeah, that's a Star Wars movie. This is how many things are going on, and you see that in Marvel movies now all the time, or, or any superhero movie or whatever. Uh, you even see that in like Nolan movies. That's a big. That feels very like Nolan, mm-hmm. kind of pre-Nolan, which the following came out this year too. Was a movie didn't mention. But it's Nolan's um, has a huge influence from like silent film editing right. and style sometimes, but very yeah. much so. That's uh, but the, that I think people forget how radical that was because I mean, if you go back and watch the documentaries of the making of that movie, mm-hmm. they're literally freaking out. Yeah, they're like, they're wondering they're like, if they went I don't too even f- know. And I they might have didn't. gone too far in and, some places right. very famously George Lucas And I don't says, think yeah. that they did, by the way. Yeah. Now, that movie has its problems. That's not one of them, by the mm-hmm. way, is that. Uh, well, I think by the that, way, that's how Star Wars felt to people in 77. Yeah. As far as the speed of the movie. Yeah. Was, yeah. I mean, a version of that in the 70s, and now mm-hmm. we're 20 years later, and so that's... Which is all a Godard influence on Lucas anyway, and I'm not trying to be too pretentious by saying that, but yeah. literally, of like movies can move at this speed. Let's get through it. Come on, yeah, let's go. Right. You know, Because they trust that the audience is there. They yeah. trust the audience has been there, done that, and that they can take it, and we can. Mm-hmm. That's why a movie like Breathless was so crazy, but if you watch it now, it's like, yeah, okay, I can, I can accept that succession of images in my mind which like i said that sounds crazy to talk about phantom menace in that way but it actually was radical of that time to say we're gonna trust you to be able to do this and people could do that and movies have gotten even further entrenched in that whole idea um i wanted to mention just though and so yeah that's an important thing two other film years that i forgot to mention 1968 2001 rosemary's baby Night of the Living Dead, Once Upon a Time in the West, Planet of the Apes, uh, Faces, The Swimmer, Targets, Where Eagles Dare, Skidoo, and then 2007, which the fact we didn't even mention that, I'm kind of shocked. There will be blood, No Country for Old Men, Michael Clayton, Zodiac, uh, Assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Hot Fuzz, Atonement, 300, Ocean's 13, Born Ultimatum, Trick or Treat, Halloween, before the devil knows you're dead, I'm not there. We on the night, shoot him up. My Winnipeg, yeah, shotgun stories. That's my personal yeah. favorite. In yeah. the end, that's actually where the Phoenix even because that uh, it speaks to what you said earlier. Like I was there for those yeah. movies. In particular, there will be blood, no country for old men, are to me the best films of that decade. And yeah. they came out the same year. Right, they were even filmed very close to the same area. So um, those movies to me, yeah. mean something special. So. 2007, I feel like, is a newer version of 99 in terms of that's a year that a lot of people mention yeah. anyways. There's uh, other ones I haven't seen, like Juno uh, mm-hmm. in the Valley of Allah. I always hear a lot about, yeah. but I haven't seen. But to so, me, yeah. what's staggering is a movie as great as Michael Clayton. Yeah. Right? As like third or fourth. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like a right. movie that great yeah. is still like third or fourth in that year. Also, um, you had Transformers and the Simpsons movie that year, too. Those uh, are the movies actually yeah. most... 
immediately think about sometimes because at, when I was that yeah. old, that was the movies that. Oh, and that World's End was another one too. I theaters. forgot. Yeah, yeah, that too. Yeah. That that movie season, that summer movie season was actually not good um, as far as the movies themselves, yeah. but the fall came right in big ways. So we just want to talk briefly a little bit about 1999 because. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know we threw a lot of. I know we threw a lot of movies and years at you. We're expecting a quiz. Uh, we'll send to you. No, just kidding. Uh, but yeah, I know that was a lot of rambling. But just to say that the idea of that is so entrenched now that it, it's so easy to poke holes into. Though it's just like, yeah, I mean, you literally any year you've got great movies. I don't, I don't know. Like, I think you know, um, but, I would say ultimately the most nineteen ninety nine movie is Fight Club. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we're not fans of that movie. No, I do respect it, yeah. but I'm not a huge fan of it. Um, and that's why I was saying earlier about the 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 division between that and Magnolia. I think is very interesting. Where obviously, as we said, huge fans of Magnolia. That's again my personal favorite, even though I think The Matrix or Eyes Wide Shut might be slightly better. But anyways, and that I think it was during the you know. I think it was while he was editing and wrapping up Magnolia that PTA saw Fight Club. And obviously, Magnolia was spawned out of his own father's death uh, yeah. around the time that Boogie Nights was being made, right around the time that's coming out and it's been a huge success. His dad's dying of cancer, which is, of course, where a lot of the uh, Robard stuff is uh, channeled through in that movie. And then in um, uh, Fight Club, you have Meatloaf with really big breasts. But there's it's a lot like, of jokes yeah, about so, cancer, right. and that movie's such a intentionally hateful um, yeah. uh, movie, Fight Club, that PTA saw it, and he was, I think, you know, in a very raw place making Magnolia, and apparently wrote Fincher this big long letter talking about how dare you make this movie and you know screw you and all this stuff. Yeah. That he, I think he's since come to regret and say that he's sorry that he did and that and he said, Fight Club's a great movie though. No, actually it's not. You don't have to lie about that part, but I do think but, that yeah. Fight Club is a sophisticated movie that has a yeah. very complicated yeah. um politics and point of view. Um but that movie's legacy is also wrought because uh, for all I should say, because um I feel like, you know, so much of the anger of the movie is oftentimes misplaced by its fans. And I feel like the movie itself kind of is almost predicting what the what the problems of the movie will be, but is nonetheless nihilistic to the point of being proud to call such problems. And that's kind of yeah. part of Fincher's larger point of view generally. Um, have you seen the trailer for his new movie, by the way? No. Uh, What's it called? Uh, the Killer. The Killer. Or something. I yeah. was. Uh, it looks stylish, but I'm. A, I'm actually at a point right now. I don't really care about a new David Fincher movie. I don't either. Uh, because and I say that yeah. as someone who's actually a big fan of some of his movies, yeah. in particular like The Social Network. But um, even yeah. Gone Girl was a newer version of that that was really great. But I don't know. After Mank uh, and yeah, I don't know. And also, yeah. always making a Hitman movie. It's like okay. And he has, it actually looks like the Hitman video game at some points. I'll say that. So well, you know, you know that's cool. But that's and it's Fastbender too, which I generally like. But I don't know. We'll see. We'll probably eventually be seeing that. And well, I know there here, was uh, another movie that was also similar to that. I can't remember what it was now that somebody's making that I've heard's been getting even better reviews than that. That's very similar. Gosh, I can't remember who it is. It's some other big filmmakers making it. Uh, and they both showed at Venice. Uh, I don't remember. 
But I know Fincher I said know. recently at a Venice uh, press conference that he wanted to make a movie that made you more nervous about the guy behind you at Home Depot. Okay. He's, he literally sounds like a teenager sometimes. I'm yeah. just like, grow up, guy. Like, I don't know. Anyways. Let me look and see. Hang on a second. I want to figure this out about... Uh, let's actually yeah, look at some of the movies that showed at Venice real quick while we're at it. I know that movie Poor Things by Yorgos Lanthimos has been getting these totally rave reviews. That's actually something uh, I'm interested in seeing just because the yeah. visuals of it look very yeah. like... Well, also, I'm interested in anything yeah, Lanthimos right. does. And I like uh, Emma Stone, so... Um, but there was... I want to see just like a good list of movies. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that... There were some... I guess, uh, when is Tiff? Tiff would be right around the corner, I know. Uh, yeah. Oh, that Challengers movie show, and I know that, uh, and Drive Away Dolls, and Maestro, I think. Uh, Tiff actually started two days ago. Um, or no, ahead. actually, yeah, right. Um, hang on, I'm looking here about... Because the new um, Miyazaki movies actually started to show oh, crap. that, and I'm thinking of... We shouldn't say too much about this, but uh, a new Luc Besson movie, Dog Man, is showing. Okay. Hmm. Only we know. Yeah. But Ferrari was another movie that showed, uh, yeah, The Killer was this uh, David Fincher movie. Uh, there was something else, though, that... Yeah, the Lyncher, yeah, the Richard Linklater movie, Hitman, That's, with Glenn yeah, Powell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I heard that got better reviews overall than... Uh, it seemed like then that was movie, yeah. yeah that's what it was yeah but anyway uh, <laughs> there's a movie <laughs> called The Promised Land that has Mads Mikkelsen in it that yeah. showed there that in Danish is called Bastarden which means <laughs> the bastard literally so yeah. anyway <laughs> I just think that's hilarious but oh and that Priscilla that uh, Sofia Coppola Elvis movie mm-hmm. is getting shown there and then uh, some new Ava David Verne movie. Um, anyway, yeah. Speaking of big fall releases, there's going to be a movie coming out soon. We mentioned on the pod called The Holdovers. Yes. Directed, of course, by Alexander Payne. Speaking of Alexander Payne, here is the trailer for Election. If you're one of the millions of Americans who still believes that honesty, integrity, and fidelity are the cornerstones of our democracy, we suggest you wait for another preview before getting your popcorn. In the nation's capital, a new leader has found a place in the halls of power. But her story began in the halls of high school. We'll move on now to the presidential race with three candidates running. The first is Tracy Flick. One thing that's important to know about me is that I'm an only child. My mom is really devoted to me. She likes to write letters to successful women like Elizabeth Dole and Connie Chung and ask them what advice do they have for me, Tracy, her daughter. The next candidate for student body president is Paul Metzler. I just don't think somebody would do something like that on purpose. I think you did it. And if you want to keep questioning me like this, I won't continue without my attorney present. I do not often speak with you and ask for things, but now I really must insist that you help me win the election tomorrow because I deserve it and Paul Metzler doesn't, as you well know. The final candidate, sophomore Tammy Metzler. I'm attracted to the person. It's just that all the people I've ever been attracted to happen to be girls. You should stop her. She's not qualified. We can't both run, can we? I mean, we're brother and sister, can we? Tracy and I are totally in love. In love? Yeah. 
So is this a moral situation or an ethical situation? When I win the presidency, that means you and I are going to be spending a lot of time together. <laughs> Cast your vote for Tracy Fleck next week. You won't just be voting for me. You suck! You'll be voting for yourself. Who knew how high she would climb in life? I had to stop her. Excuse me! Will you please be quiet? Now. Paramount Pictures presents an MTV Films production. Order! Order! Starring Matthew Broderick, oh. Reese Witherspoon. Hey, what happened to your eye? What happened to your eye? Are you okay, Mr. McAllister? I'm fine. On the road to greatness. Never underestimate an overachiever. Looks like you could use a cupcake. Election. Cast your vote. But don't vote at all! You notice about that trailer, it's got the voice of the Jeff Portnoy. Yeah. Jeff Portnoy. <laughs> like, from Tropic Thunder, but right. Portnoy's complaint, I guess. So, election from 1999. In case you didn't know by now. Yeah, you should know by now. Again, we would agree this is up there as far as the best movies of the year. Oh, yeah, definitely. You would think, yeah. right? It feels like one of the more organic ones, too. Yes, like, it's it, not trying right. to, I don't think... I mean, there are political statements being made in the movie, but I think it's the ones best made and most subtly made. I don't yeah. think it's like hitting you over the head, but also about some very specific things going on in the 90s, as right. we talk about. So, so election, election yeah, is a 1999 American black comedy film directed by Alexander Payne from a screenplay by Payne and Jim Taylor based on Tom Parada's 1998 novel of the same name. So this is a movie that got... Uh, rushed into production that happens with movies or books like that sometimes well sometimes uh, like also the novels galleys circulate right, Hollywood and, they get and they're bought, bought pre right. they're even like released. I know that happened with Jaws that was a big example yeah. of that uh, and that happens a lot it so. should just be said Tom Parada has already been adapted in a variety of ways and times whether it be Little Children as the movie or The Leftovers as the TV show so he's got a, he's had a lot of success in Hollywood and I'd say he's actually a novelist who adapts very well very naturally to yeah. cinema or yeah. television. So uh, The plot revolves around a student body election and satirizes politics and high school life. Uh, the film stars Matthew Broderick as Jim McAllister, a popular high school social studies teacher, and Reese Witherspoon as Tracy Flick, an overachieving student whom he dislikes. When Tracy runs for student government president, Jim sabotages her candidacy by backing a rival candidate and tampering with the ballot count. Uh, obviously, we're going to have a ton of things to say about this movie as teachers, it should first be said. And I think this is one of the best movies about mm -hmm. teaching randomly from people who would not really identify with this man in certain, in most ways. No. Um, but do in others, just by nature of being a teacher. Mm -hmm. But, um, so yeah, this movie is essentially about, now here's a guy, anyway, uh, about, the, the, the ha -ha, everybody laughs. Chris Collinsworth reference. Yeah. <laughs> Football is coming. Yeah. Um, but uh that yeah, as, uh Matthew Broderick is this uh guy, they're in Nebraska. Uh as this high school teacher, teaches mostly like civics and stuff like that. Uh it says American and, history and right, current yeah, events. Says social says studies teacher, yeah. Current events uh, it also right. says, which oh, I think it's always right. funny to hear as a because it's so not what we do now. Yeah. Um real uh uh Clyde or Claude Brewer war is hell in Ford, uh, Fred T. Ford High School history. Yeah. Um, but uh, that he's just pretty unassuming. Seems like nice enough guy. So really loves his job. Uh, is uh, but then is presented with this well first of two problems I think ultimately which is this 
Reese Witherspoon character, Tracy Flick, who has this affair with his friend, a math teacher uh, named uh, Dave Novotny. Uh, and they have this whole, yeah, this affair that happens, and he gets fired for it, you know, rightfully, and, and uh, is outcast and everything. And she basically, it doesn't come out, and so she's pretty, you know, shielded from the whole thing, which I think relatively rightfully. I mean, I don't think there should be big things made about, and as far as at her age, you know, whatever. There's no use in that. It's all the man, the adult's problem, you know, fault. fault yeah. Uh, but that, uh, he's, he holds this kind of strange, you know, grudge about that, about like, oh, well, my friend was, this happened to, and even though he was at fault for doing that, but he holds this thing over that, and also just doesn't like her in general, because she is a, I think a relatively annoying character. We can talk about what, like you said, I think you wrote down this litmus test for you as a person, how do you feel about Tracy Flick? Um, but that he decides that since there's a student government election coming up, he kind of just gets this wild hair to say, you know what, I think I'm going to sabotage this. And mm-hmm. kind of quietly goes about doing that in this very unassuming and silent way to kind of uh, encourage other people to run, uh, mm-hmm. one of whom is this, probably my favorite overall character in the movie, well, one of my favorite characters in the movie, uh, which is... Uh, this character, the uh, what's his name, uh, Paul Metzler, who's this kind of football star, is really who's really stupid, but very but really sweet and nice. A good guy, yeah, he's like an actual tell. good person. Um, Which is part of the joke of the movie. Right, you can tell that he's genuinely that a good guy. He's but recently he's really dumb. broken his leg and won't be able to play football, so he needs some other uh, outlet. And one of my favorite things in the movie, by the way, is when it's introducing him, and yeah, it's right. like, uh, and it shows him looking off. On like a, oh, right, like, like a, a lake, yeah, right. like Randy Savage in that famous picture. <laughs> yeah. He's like, "What am I going to do with my life now that I can't do football or whatever?" Yeah. And that he's basically encouraged by Matthew Broderick to be like, "Hey, maybe you should run for student council president." Even though it's like, "Oh, Tracy Flick's going to run," and it's all pretty wrapped up. And he's like, "No, no, but just you know, maybe think about it," and yeah. encourages him to do it. Meanwhile, his sister who's probably my favorite character in the movie. By the way, he's played by Chris Chris Klein, who's, who's not related to... Who's known, uh, who was known uh, for the American Pie movies. Yeah. He was one of the main Who's not related to Kevin Klein, by the way. I looked into this. But anyway, Jessica Campbell is his sister, who tragically died a few years ago, actually, uh, that actress. Yeah. Uh, is Tammy Metzler, who is secretly kind of a, a lesbian who's in love with this girl. Well, she, uh, she was in, basically friends with and in love with this girl who... Right kind of flirted with and hinted that she might have a relationship with her but ends up with Paul. Uh, right. You know, I think her name was maybe Diane. No, yeah. no, I'm sorry. No, that's somebody else. Uh, Lisa? Yeah. Yeah, Lisa. Lisa, yeah, and, yeah. and that she starts dating her brother to be just mean about it, I guess. I don't know. Uh, and anyway, and so then she decides, well, I'm going to run so that, I, so that I can sabotage my brother being president. And so there's this whole kind of, you know, this quartet of people who have all these different reasons for doing things uh, which are all flawed and complex and mm-hmm. have all these different reasons. Yeah. And kind of is showing all the different personalities just in this one school. So it's a great high school movie to talk about. There's all these different kinds of people. Not necessarily, I think, on the that level I, I, of The Breakfast Club exactly, yeah. which is a more obvious yeah. version of that, yeah. but is similar. I and think. I think why it's so great is that it has empathy for 
all the different types of people in yeah. this equation, right? That Paul gives them all voiceovers. So and that's that, another thing right, too is yeah. I think this movie has one of the best uses of voiceover I've seen in anything. That it's mostly Matthew Broderick, but it it also Tracy gets a decent amount of voiceover work. Uh, Paul does, Lisa does, or yeah, Lisa yeah. does, and so no, if, uh, Tammy, sorry. Tammy, excuse yeah. me, the sister. So it like kind of those are the four main characters pretty much that it goes through. Um, and what I love too is oftentimes, especially I find this with Broderick's character, the disconnect between what he's saying and what's going on on screen, mm-hmm. and also the whole thing should be said. It's like being told in this past recollect, you know, the people looking back on what happened. Yeah, you know what I mean. So there's this past tense, which is true with most narration, obviously, but. Um, that distance between what Matthew Broderick's saying versus what's happening on screen is very funny sometimes and yeah. played up for comedic effect. I think this movie, though, is hilarious. I think it's got such a great point of view about high school, about the trivialness trivialness of this situation and yet how it's being taken so seriously yeah. by so many people. I, again, and Alexander Payne in general has a really great sense of finding the drama in the comedic situations and you take all the characters seriously in terms of what they feel and I don't feel like anybody's exactly being punched down or kicked down at yeah. but it still is finding mockery in each of their individual right. decisions yeah. and behaviors and whatnot. Yeah. I thought the movies would be most behind um the sister. Yeah. Uh and kind of cuz that's the most like it's the most cynical slash world weary character, yeah. right. and that she's like, oh, this is all dumb. And she would really appeal to a certain Gen X crowd watching yeah. this movie, anyways, um, that would have been seen in Lucy Dacus looking, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she does, yeah, thing yeah I was thinking about, like, yeah. Like, yeah. But, yeah. Um, and again, I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Alexander Payne. One thing about him, and, you know, we're Southerners, so we're not Midwesterners, yeah. but his movies in general, like, really capture small town life very well I think mm-hmm. in a way that is funny but doesn't condescend which again yeah. is a very hard thing to do Yeah, I think about this and also and it's only in moments of it and most particularly in the beginning of it but um, in downsizing um, like scenes of this movie take place at Godfather's Pizza Yeah, you know what I mean and just like you know, in these places that it's like unashamed to like be in a quote lowbrow place that sometimes you don't see depicted in movies in a regular way, or even think like Applebee's. Yeah, <laughs> I swear the amount of money that Applebee's had to have spent in the two thousands to be a the only restaurant it looked like in uh, Friday Night Lights and to be in Talladega Nights is just right. insane to me. Yeah. Anything that had to do with night, they mm-hmm. were like, we're there. Uh, don't you feel like, especially in Tally Nights, it's like also kind of making fun of... Oh, no, it like, is, yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. I would imagine not in Friday Night Lights. No. That's just like where no, characters yeah. meet. Right. It's like a central yeah. location. Like, yeah. And more but so there that. actually is in Friday Night Lights, by the way, a like little grill that people go to and eat that's like very generic. But randomly, there's like a lot of scenes in Applebee's, though. Like. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in well, but that's what's one of the funny moments in Talladega Nights is like, let's go to a small family place that's real special, and then just a shot of Applebee's. Like, and you know, that demands a yeah. laugh, and it is funny, but there is yeah. part of me that frankly resents that moment too, because yeah. again, where we're from, there are a lot of people going out to Applebee's is a big deal. Oh, no, it is. I'm not trying to make money. this, yeah. I'm not trying to make this a huge class warfare thing, but yeah. like, okay. 
Adam McKay, who I generally actually like, uh, actually because a lot of people hate him. Yeah, but like, no, I, I like. Are, but that's what people mean when they see like limousine liberals who are in these yeah. cities and they think they're they're getting punched down and kicked down. It's moments like that. Yeah. But what's funny is most viewers of Taldega Knights who don't even know to the extent to which they're being made fun of would probably even like that moment. So that yeah. just no, it is, and it is quality, funny. You know I think I mean? it is funny. And let me just say, I but, said limousine liberals yeah. in a smug way. Like yeah. I am myself am a liberal, but like yeah, right. you know, yeah. in a rural environment. Yeah, but so no, that is something. That. Like, well, the honest. Honestly, the better joke is at the end when they're flip the cars are oh, flipping, yeah, right. and it's like anyway we got to go to a break, and it's like <laughs> the quickest ad of all time of like uh, kind of uh, a bad case of love and you of like some Applebee's mm-hmm. thing, and then it cuts back and they're still flipping like yeah. that's one of the funniest but, random things um, ever. This but, is yeah. a little different. Yeah, Sideways is a temperamentally different movie than this. I think that's his greatest work, and the yeah, and I love this too. But um, like of M C Ganey's crotch. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> a little bit after that, yeah, um, is towards the end of that movie. You know, earlier in the movie, where Paul Giamatti um, is, you know, he's the woman that works at the one bar slash you know, bar in the wine country that he's yeah. flirting with and is implied maybe wanting to have a relationship with. That um, he's um, he's. You know, he taught he, the, the best scene in the movie, the best scene in Payne's career, in my opinion, is the scene where he talks about he's got this one bottle of wine that he wants to save for a special moment. And that also feeds into the moment where he's talking about how, you know, there's certain wines that are just special. You, they're not just accessible to everybody. He's talking about himself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Very clearly. And I think that's the power of. Payne and Taylor, Jim Taylor, his partner's writing is just, that's yeah. the best thing about most of their movies is the writing. They're well made, but particularly the writing. But anyways, later on, after he finds out his wife has been married or going to be married, that bottle of wine he takes, he's literally in like a fast food restaurant and like hiding the wine beside of Malietz's burger and like drinking from that wine. And there's something about it that's like obviously deeply tragic yeah. and like, oh my God, like. This and this, and that's what's great about movies. Sometimes are and they depict these very private, sad, tragic moments people have in this accessible visual right. way. And you would see, like, if you saw that person in real life, you'd just be like, "Why is that guy drinking wine at McDonald's?" Like, and you don't know but, that whole backstory right. behind yeah. it. But like, it's also funny. It's also kind of funny that yeah. you're drinking wine, and you know what I mean. And so that represents like the to me the pain ethos in a yeah. in a nutshell is that idea um and just like you know the casual use of coke and pepsi in these movies i mean it just feels like real life to yeah. me in a way that movies usually do not feel like real life you know, even in a way that i yeah. love other times well, but a moment kind of similar i think to what you're talking about there's <laughs> a part in this movie in election where he's like at the hotel or at the motel, I want everything to be perfect or whatever. And it's <laughs> yeah. like those shots of him, I think about it a lot, that shot of him like real fast taking a cup out of like the plastic. Like, oh, yeah, that crappy plastic. Yeah, like crappy so he can, little plastic and he put, cup. And he puts the champagne in the like, uh, he like fills the, the sink with ice and puts champagne. But he's like, I have to get the plastic cup just right. And yeah. it's like, I said, it's moments like that that we think are deeply hilarious, but for that man in that moment, that plastic cup, yeah. It's got to be in that spot because he's going to have sex with this woman, like you know. Right. And so it's like, like I said, there's like you said, I think that's what you're talking about. Is like there's moments like that that are very particular that you don't see in certain kinds of movies. I think sometimes that it's like, 
But it's not even in a sense of like it's this ain't saying the movie Cinema Verite or something. No, like no. it has a, it's made a, a very accessible, an accessible pop style, way, especially yeah. this. Like, yeah. And I mean Sideways actually yeah. is different because it's not made in that like accessible for young people ish way. I mean yeah. it's a little bit of an older, more Right. I like mean, I will steal money from my own mother. Yeah, I remember. Kind of uh, vibe, I remember like, a former teacher of ours <laughs> once mentioned. He's like, "Yeah, we're seeing that moment and thinking, oh my god, what kind of man is this?'" <laughs> yeah. Just like, just like you know, which is not yeah. wrong. But no, it's just no, like, yeah. It's but, just, I remember yeah. how offended he was by that. Which makes you know what mad. I think about that? I've only seen that movie once, but it is really great. One thing I think about that movie a lot though is the opening and the ending of the movie, where it's like he's sitting in the class, another teacher watching people, watching them take the test, and he's like, "My life." Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, also too know, with that just... movie and this one too, election. A lot of talk about um, my novel, yeah, and that right there almost represents another small town phenomenon of I'm, I'm living here, but I've got all these big yeah. grand ambitions. Will they ever see the light of day? Now, sideways is not exactly in a small town environment, but like that idea of being quote stuck somewhere and wanting to get out of where you are, and you know because. I think one of the fun, probably top three funniest moments of election is when uh, Tracy's graduating and she talks about Mr. What's his name? McAllister. McAllister's like, I wonder what he's up to now. I wonder if he finished his novel and it immediately cuts to him working in a supermarket just like putting prices on cans. Oh, no, you're talking about Novotny. That's right. Oh, Novotny, yeah. excuse me. Yeah, yeah, Novotny, sorry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, she yeah. does mention him too, McAllister. Yeah, she says, but, I don't even think about him anymore. Right, but she yeah. mentions, I wonder if he finished his novel. The guy she had the affair yeah. with. Him, Which is funny. Just By the way, a geometry teacher is writing a novel. It's like, you're not Pinchon. Or was he a uh, math teacher? Yeah. Was it? Or was geometry. Oh, geometry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, no, you didn't... No, no, you don't write novels. Excuse yeah. me. Um, but no, that's such a funny yeah cut. That, I yeah. mean, and that's the simplicity of the pain filmmaking, which it sounds quote simple. I'm not saying it's not sophisticated, but it's just like it's not doing anything like a lot of these big grand tracking shots or anything. It's just like a cut like that. It just yeah. it packs a punch of a joke in of itself. You and know? can I say about the ending of the movie because I have a lot of thoughts about that about the kind of epilogue, which is of him. Uh, working in New York City at the uh, Natural History Museum, and that's what he's doing. He's saying he has very ha- he feels like he's very happy with it. I feel like that's genuine. That yeah. he's like, oh, I feel like I'm where he's I need to be, and I've got a girlfriend, and and you know, and he seems like he's happy. But then it talks about when he goes down to Washington D.C. and sees her uh, with the uh, is like the Republican senator from Nebraska that she's like an aide to yeah. him, and there's a moment where. Uh, he's basically saying he basically it's implying this whole like Monica Lewinsky type thing. Um, and I think that is what Payne is sort of implying there. But at the same time, I feel like Payne is also saying, uh, is also making us assume things that he that Broderick's character himself is assuming about a life that he'll never know about assuming. Oh well. Yeah, she's just still the conniving little weasel, and she'll do anything. And specifically, and, him as a former civics teacher who right. quote knows all this head knowledge and yeah, and taught the kids about this world, and then she's in the world, and right that separation that he's and on the knowing, outside of, and knowing that oh, she had this affair with my friend, she's surely doing that with him, is making all these assumptions that are uh, either unknown or just outright false that we don't know for sure that that is what's happening because there's that particular moment 
that I think about, and I don't know how to read it, where the the senator says something to her and turns away, and she's kind of standing there, and her face is like this, yes, like kind of thing of, oh, I I have made this inroad to do this or whatever. And it's like the the frankly perverted parts of our mind and his mind would think, oh, there's some sexual thing going on there. And it's like, no, it could literally just be as simple as she's still that same person doing this thing with this person, and there's nothing really going on there other than she's just being successful doing well, what she wants to do. that's where I want us to kind you of know. take this discussion next yeah. and this last little bit about election maybe we could talk about is yeah. Tracy Flick as a character versus also Matthew Broderick's Mr. McAllister, like the Rorschach test of these characters, right? Like, yeah. who are you, quote, rooting for in election? Or is there such a thing as you're rooting for characters? As far as the narrative um, itself, like... And what does that mean, do I, yeah, you think, as far as what do you think the movie's trying to make you It's complicated for? because in one sense you see a situation like this and you think, okay, well, like I said, I think he he has empathy for everyone and I feel the... the, the you I feel, he, you're talking about pain? Right, and yeah. I feel like, I feel the same way mostly, but... Um, I think objectively, if we look at Matthew Broderick's character's behavior, it's pretty despicable. Yeah, no, that that's bad. the thing that is like, yeah. We haven't said either one thing to the meta nature of Ferris Bueller's now right. a, uh, teacher. Yeah. I mean, that that's an in-baked thing that anybody seeing this movie in 99 who grew up with Ferris Bueller's Day Off, this meta thing that the movie never puts front and center, but obviously using him, casting him in this, it obviously creates that tension of, oh, that great Ferris Bueller, this is where he is now. You right. know, that's obviously, I think, a, a metatextual great thing about this movie is that element. Right. You know? Yeah, and so... Uh, that he's now this dissatisfied establishment figure after what he was before. Right. But, you know. And so, yeah, anyway... Uh, but, yeah, I feel like with Tracy Flick, it's one of those things... I both look at her in contempt and a sort of innocence because it's like, yes, I think that Broderick is right in recognizing she is that type of overachiever person, that, uh, you know, annoying, tinny, like, uh, just, I don't even know how to say like, overachiever. Just like, type A is right, going to do yeah, whatever she right. can to get to the top. And um, I think, the, the, the like, it's weird, like, he almost forces her to prove that. Yeah. Like, because of the restraints he's putting against her, and the and like her put him pushing other people to run drives her even more to be the person he thought that she was in terms right. of she tears down the posters and you know that's like quote maybe the worst thing she does yeah but in the grand scheme of things it's not all that bad compared obviously to what he does which yeah. is literally defrauding the democratic process of the high school you know what I mean right yeah obviously uh but. yeah and 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 that's what's I think so funny about that whole point of the movie is that it's this election for student body prison and how low stakes all of it really is. But the rabidness that people, that those two especially have in the race points to the, and that's the satire of the whole thing is by saying like, this really doesn't mean anything. And also using it as a looking glass for how we think about politics and how we in general, also it really all doesn't matter. Ultimately, 
in a certain way. But also, but, to an extent, how misogyny works in terms yeah. of why do we hate Tracy so much? Is it because yeah. she's a woman, or is it deeper than that? And that gets to the Hillary Clinton nature yeah. of Tracy. Yeah. Tracy is both at once Monica Lewinsky and Hillary Clinton, which were the two women of the moment in the late 90s in terms of Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky and that obviously is, as you said, very much the implication that she is the Monica Lewinsky figure at the end of the yeah. movie. But but you feel like you're watching the origin story of Hillary Clinton through most of the movie, and I think that's been written and talked a lot about it, especially in 2016 when Hillary was the nominee for president, that that was something that was talked a lot about. And this gets to, this is going to be, a, you know, getting to talking about Hillary Clinton and your ideas about her in terms of, is it an institutionalized misogyny or is it something deeper about her particularly? And undeniably the answer is both. Right. You know, and that's the same of Tracy Flick, you know, yeah. too, you know. But what are your what are your thoughts on that tension or that dynamic? Yeah, I think it, like you said, I think it's kind of both of those things and it's a reflection of uh strong female presences in politics in the nineties in particular. I mean, you had seen that slowly happening over time, and obviously the power of the uh, uh, the first lady mm-hmm. be, uh, has waxed and waned yeah. throughout the history of the presidency. But um, but yeah, particularly even with uh, you know major uh, female voices in politics, like even like Shirley Chisholm was early in the '60s, yeah. and then and then obviously with Hillary Clinton um, or even Janet Reno has been yeah. part of that too. But yeah, I think I think that is. Uh, and there was also, um, and even as a sort of lapsed fan of some things, Michael Crichton, there was a book he wrote called Disclosure in the 90s, which I think now should be viewed with extreme controversy about a uh, female uh, executive in kind of a company basically uh, sexually assaulting a male uh, um, work uh, worker there. And then that being like a whole thing, like a mirror of what always happens of the man and the woman. And it feels like it's very like randomly anti-feminist and very like, oh, this woman's doing this thing and she's in power and blah, blah, blah. Not to say those things haven't happened, Mm -hmm. but just saying of like, okay, why are you randomly overblowing this information? Like it seems kind of Wasn't he an early climate change denier too? Yeah, I think that that was at a time where it was weirder though about that or now yeah. i think he would probably come around but he seems like he's randomly a little more of a conservative kind of guy or was he yeah. passed away now but a uh, great writer in certain respects but also like i said yeah there are problems with things of like that so i feel like that was a thing that was in the ether of the time of like oh these women are in politics now and what are we going to do about that and it's like uh, i suppose nothing yeah. like you know um but I think Reese yeah. Witherspoon is terrific in this. Oh yeah, as she's well. really I good. Mean, this is a great, really kind of teenage, younger person performance, um, and I feel like that tension of what we just said is caught up in the moment of when the guy, the kid, gives her the thumbs up through the door, and she's so happy, she's so excited, she's like, "My dreams are coming true," and she's so happy, she's jumping up and down. And then Broderick looks outside and sees her, and that's one of those freeze frames in the moment. And he's like, "Isn't that the, I'm not uh, letting her win. I'm not I don't care what it is. I mean, like the final straw is, for him." I, I'm, I might be misremembering this. Is that a part in the movie where the ah, 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 music is going or whatever? Because there's like different points in the movie where that music's like. Ah, 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 I think that was earlier. Yeah, think, never mind. But, yeah. but I imagine but what that is in my funny mind. too. Like but, yeah. one thing that stuck out to me is there's 
where the window that she's at, there's a picture of the Freedom Rider bus on fire, and then she's jumping yeah. all excited, and it's almost like <laughs> yeah. a prediction right. of what's about to happen. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, but yeah, I think, and that's I think one of the major points of the movie is like, uh, but at the same time, I feel like the Tammy character is its own representation of another kind of. Uh, Femininity and to be a queer that, character, right. by the way, at this stage, at this big of a profile, in the trailer. I mean, the trailer of the yeah. movie said she is lesbian, she's gay. Right. I mean, that was a big risk to do back then. I right. think one that pays off, but certainly one that was, as you said, that that presents a contrasting view Which, of femininity. And I want to be very particular about how I say this. I think is the most is also another thing to dislike about Tracy Flick in a certain way, which is to say that people like Tracy Flick, sometimes that uh, go-getter, and not that they shouldn't be, but uh, present this image of a woman in power that neglects another type of femininity yeah, right. that doesn't exist. Well, this, I mean, like, we know, you know all or that about does the, exist. I mean, it's a that different doesn't. dynamic, but right. the dynamic between Peggy and Joan on Mad Men. Yes, Man, right. The idea, the assumption, oh, they'd be best friends, or but they both want right. better things. It's like they both have very different visions of what success right. Is yeah. and, and I so mean, this is a version that, of that is too. not so much a problem with Tracy Flick's personality as it is that her uh, omnipresence as a school leader neglects another certain kind of femininity that is not it, that is so radical and outsized mm-hmm. to and ultimately correct to that that that's not even regarded by men as anything at all which right. is its own tragedy there is a the part movie, of me but, and i know that that's you know. like an important moment of the movie when they have the like give their speeches in front of the student body yeah and um tracy gives a very you know a very reasonable you know high quality speech yeah. that doesn't really raise any enthusiasm paul like stumbles through his like, i oh. i will not <laughs> let you down like i didn't let you down in the in the game last year when i broke my leg in three places but still got the touchdown please vote for me paul metzler like, you know something like that <laughs> and then, yeah. um his sister comes up and like everybody goes crazy oh my god yeah. the speech like There's their balls a part are of me, clapping yeah. like kind there, of vibe, i mean yeah. and, I, and i get I get her frustrations channeled by that and why she would say all that. But there is a part of me that I see Tracy's face and I see the crowd and I'm like, all these loser slackers, like, yeah. shame on them. Where yeah. I'm like, because of my own, I guess, beliefs and ideas about things sometimes, like, gravitate towards her in that moment to go like, what a bunch of losers. Well, and I, like, I want to... I think I've told this story before, but I want to tell it again. That This is actually connects to this exactly. I was at a uh, Beta Club convention, state convention oh, in North Carolina. You've told this story one time, before, I know, on and, there, I think. And but. there was the guy that there were, you vote every year yeah. for this sort of Now, I've told the stories out the, you know what, about the, let's take a trip oh, down memory lane. Thinking, okay. No, I'm not going to tell that story. Which but, I, I'm yeah, all for the, telling it as many times oh, as yeah, one but wants. But. That guy was like one of the... Uh, he was at January 6th. <laughs> well, he probably was, actually. But um, but that... that that guy, I think, was a well. Later on, he he's was like now the a guy who shakes Mitch McConnell awake when he's a right. giving press conference. Uh, a page yeah. in a Senate page, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it looks like the Senate doesn't flip Talk through about. enough pages, yeah. <laughs> like as in they don't like, read. <laughs> uh, Senator McConnell, are you still alive? Like that's, yeah, that's where yeah. we're at right now. Uh, same thing with Diane Feinstein. It's yeah, like yeah. 
hello. No, like, I think you should have a battle to the death, and whoever dies, preferably both. But, you know, <laughs> just like, but whoever dies, yeah. like, they're out of the Senate, obviously, yeah. and the other one. It's like uh, it's like the the fight in uh, Game of Thrones between Pedro Pascal and the mm-hmm. Mountain. It's like they both die. Yeah. So it's like whatever <laughs> one of them does come back, though, is uh, obey a queen. So Gregor, like, yeah. uh, but, um, effing die. Um, right, so Blade Club Convention. Anyway, Blade Club Convention. At North Car- the North Carolina NC Beta Club Convention at the what Sheridan. Year, what year would this have been? Uh, this is probably twenty. This is probably twenty sixteen, I think. So it was the last one I would have went to. And there was a guy that basically got up there and he's like, "Everybody's going to make a speech, but I'm not going to do that." Basically, doing the same thing of like going to appeal to people by saying, "I'm not going to make you sit through this crap." And I'll admit I voted for him because I was an I was more of an idiot at that age and I was like yeah whatever but like that's dumb like as a dumb thing to do and that's something I, re- I well you know, know like, you know I really regret voting that way in that beta club convention that really, but like that really threw everything in flux yeah but that's but, and so that what I'm saying is yeah. I don't care that doesn't matter yeah, right. but I do recognize that was a stupid thing of me to do well at the time, again like, like Tammy yeah. I like her as a character so like. I don't really necessarily even resent her for saying what she said, even though I don't agree with the sentiment behind yeah. it. But again, the the audience reaction, yeah, we don't want to be here anyways. And I'm thinking, what, you want to be sitting in the classes you're so eager to be in all the time? Mm-hmm. And again, that's the part of me where I'm, I'm, I become Tracy in that moment where I'm looking at them thinking, what a bunch of slobs, what a bunch of losers. Yeah. Yeah. And then even the scene later on towards the end where it shows her in college where she's just trying to get sleep you got these losers smoking, smoking pot, pot yeah. in the hallway. And again, that's another one of those moments I empathize with her where I'm like, what a bunch of losers. Well, and I dealt with that in college to, too, so yeah. This, that ain't what right. this place is supposed to be about, even though it undeniably is. So, you know. Uh, so I, I find myself, there are moments where I'm like really on Tracy's side. Um, yeah. But I, I think that's what makes her such a fascinating character is it's like it's not easily boiled down to who you quote root for because, you know, it's making the statement that everybody here is at fault in some way and that yeah. there's no easy well, answer for who you would want to be the, quote, president of this. And my know? kind of final thoughts on her, I'll say uh, that getting older and also being a teacher and so being part of the... I wanted us to transition you know, last bit of this to us talking about yeah. our thoughts on so this I'll, teacher, Yeah, so, so I'll yeah. talk about this in relation to her specifically yep. and then we can talk about it in general. But I've had a lot of regrets... Um, not too few to mention, as Frank Sinatra would have said. Great song, don't agree with the message, but anyway. Uh, that uh, I've I've regretted a lot of things, and I tell my kids this actually a lot too. I mean, uh, not to get too specific, but there's I've had a lot of conversations with kids where I've said there are a lot of things when kids are like, I don't know that I want to do this thing, or you know, blah blah blah. And there's been a lot of times where I've said. I regret that I did not do band and I regret that I did not do sports in certain ways. I regret both of those things. I said, and now I wish I would have. So all I'm saying is sometimes when you're in those situations where you're doing those things, I'll I just say, I like, it might feel like, oh, I don't want to do this in the moment or whatever, but someday you'll regret you didn't do this thing. Or maybe you won't. We don't well, know. I'll say on the other but, hand, there are people you know, that regret probably doing those things. And that's for their true own too. Reasons. I'm so, just saying either so way. So that's yeah. what I'm saying. I'm like, but in my mind, I'm like, get the best of both because if you do both things and you're going to be exhausted but 
Um, and that's well, and then part of me says, well, I don't totally regret not doing those things because that's why I'm more of a cinephile because I spent a lot of my free time watching movies and doing those things. So that's fine, but I do regret not being not I think learning. Everybody does, and yeah. Though, so and, and that's normal. Yeah. So I'm saying that, but so I that's have those one too. thing that I regret. Another thing is the way that obviously I treated certain people at that age and thought about certain people. So there's this one girl that I knew. I didn't know her really well, but mm-hmm. she was the top of our class. She was somebody that uh, I wasn't friends with at all. I didn't get along with at all. That is very much like Tracy Flick in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. And, that I, and we all and, probably know yeah. those people in our own lives. And know? I'm not going to say I her can think of one or name, two obviously, myself, yeah. but... She was somebody that was top of her class. She went to a lot of the same bad club conventions, and I knew her kind of, and we didn't really get along. And uh, I was a big personality. She was a big personality, and so it just whatever. But I think about that person now, and I think, you know, uh, not that I ever, like, treated her very badly or anything. I wouldn't even say that, but just, like, um, there's just things you regret with certain people you think back on in your life. That person really wasn't bad. They were just... I said, I look at Tracy Flick and I look at this person I'm thinking of and I think they just wanted to make the best of their life at that time and do what they wanted to do. And maybe they were a little annoying and isolated a lot of people by doing certain things. But I don't know. We we all weren't trying to do that either. So it's like, you know, I don't know. You just think about people differently when you're older and you just think. It's the like I say about, it's like a real life version of what I say about hating music certain types of music. You get older and sometimes you just realize, eh, being a hater is just kind of a waste of time. Mm-hmm. And, eh, yeah, I kind of like that, whatever. Like, you know, you just, as you get older, you, you realize just... realize there's just not enough time or energy. Yeah, that's, much a, that's what I'm saying. That. So it's yeah. like, so you look back on things like that and think... Just but then on, time. But then on the same way, you think, yeah, maybe they wasted time doing those things and they regret that too. You know, I don't know. So it's like... Well, ultimately, but, this movie... Because I think the movie early on, like we're not sure exactly whose perspective this is from. Yeah. Uh, is it is it McAllister's or is it Tracy? By the end, it's clearly McAllister's point of view because we don't know that other end of Tracy. That's what I'm saying. The unknowable you know, point of view, right? Because yeah. her her point of view stops around the it was like college. Like that's the yeah. last we get of what she thinks from the uh, voiceover. And so from that end, the end, we don't know what. Her reality yeah. is well. We can only look through McAllister's eyes and see her from afar and uh, make assumptions, but we don't know, you know. Um, and I think in that way, this is a very uh, wise, perceptive movie uh, in terms of its view of people and the regrets that we have, and also the certain prejudices that we also refuse to let go of at the same mm-hmm. time of certain people. Yeah, we're both. Uh, employees of North Carolina uh, school system. Mm-hmm. How does this movie stick out as a movie depicting school to you? Uh, what I like about it is that it is from multiple perspectives of teachers and students. It's not all just from the students, you know, because that's the most common version of that. I mean, if you think about something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is one of my favorite that's school one, movies, yeah. it, uh, I mean, it views the teacher as this crabby old man like you know mm-hmm. uh although there is the scene when he goes to spicoli's house that does feel like it's saying that's probably my favorite scene uh, yeah movie, it yeah. is really funny but he's like you've wasted my time so now i'm going to waste your time like <laughs> which is like 
totally maybe illegal by the way but anyway um but uh but the funny thing is spicoli is so dumb he's like man i guess so like you know it's like which is its own joke you know that he wouldn't just be able to say, no, you need to get the hell out of my house, you know. Well, then there's no adults uh, even. Yeah, there's nobody to insane. stop this man from hanging out in his room. Yeah. Uh, but, the, yeah, that's all told from that. Or even from, like, uh, the Breakfast Club or whatever where it's, like, seeing the principal as this guy and, like, you know, and it's all seen as this, like, uh, student versus teacher thing and there's no real teacher interplay there whereas this does both i feel like relatively evenly although it's a little more in the teacher vein i think um but what i like is is that each of the characters is thinking about the future um of the kids the main three kids of tracy Paul and Tammy are all thinking about the future in various ways. Tracy's thinking about it in this very like, I want to do this thing in my life, and I think this but is going to be the blah, stepping blah, blah, stone right. to this and that. Yeah. Uh, Paul is this. Which we don't really say much about her mother in this. She's like this no. figure who's kind of in the background, but is very much feeding like Tracy a lawyer or something, or paralegal, or, or paralegal. Says, yeah, yeah works for her, right. Yeah. Um, and then Paul is this very like you know everything's going to turn out well for him kind of guy like and you don't even like, necessarily resent no, him though because no, yeah. he's a nice yeah. enough guy but, it's but things like, typically work out for him we're meeting him at a point in his life where things didn't exactly but you right. know that he's going to be and fine. that also is a point of and he's, he's also a white guy well that's what I was going to say he's man. a white man so it's going to work out for him and that's its own problem you know but that uh, he's very like, just like I don't really know what I'm going to do but we'll see you know yeah. Uh, and then Tammy is the most interesting because she's somebody that it's like she is interested in, first of all, being in love. That's its own thing that the other characters aren't as interested in. It was weird because she's kind of on the same level almost as the adults in the movie because they're all worried about that um, in good and bad ways, mostly bad ways as it's shown in both instances. But um, with her, she's just very much being like, oh, I just want to live a life outside of this. Kind of like what not to bring it back to Brett Easton Ellis, but what Brett Easton Ellis talked about in The Shards, which was this idea of, I have to play this role in high school to be the popular guy. I'm dating the most popular girl, so I have to be this kind of guy. But wanting to be as far away from all this as possible, maybe not even liking the friends he was friends with, wanting to move to New York and be a writer. And he didn't want to do with anything of like prom or homecoming or any was of that, that he saw was yeah that i mean he's is, playing is himself queer in the book, in the book? yes okay, very much so okay. that's like a massive part of the book okay. is saying like i am a queer man yeah. who does not feel like he cares about these people and that he's dating this woman but or this okay, girl but yeah. he doesn't care yeah um and that him saying i i am participating in all these things like i am part of this it, that And that's one of the problems of that book is that becomes very nailed in mm-hmm. over and over. We're playing the role. We are the, you know. But him saying, I want to be this thing, and this is who I really am and who I really want to be. And that, that, and that Tammy is that in this book, but she never even tries to play the role. Mm-hmm. She's just like, well, I just want to be me, you know. Um, and I think that's the most interesting part of that, of like the future for her is just like, well, I just want to do what I want to do. And then that she's even locked into going to Catholic school. And then she later and, fi- falls right. in love with this other girl. Yeah. They have a, there were a couple. Right. And, um, yeah. And 
and that I think that's all a really, really complex and amazing way to view the the way that students view the future. Like, what do they see the future as? And a lot of boys see it as money or sports or something like that. And that strangely, Paul is different in that way of saying he kind of wants to do both those things, but he he's realizing he might can't do that actually with sports. Um. And then it becomes, well, what do I want to do? And then it becomes almost like a almost like a Zen Buddhist philosophy of I'll just do whatever, who knows? And you know it'll work out either way. It doesn't matter. Um, and then I said, well, Tracy, it's this very like very set. I want to do these things. And then Tammy, just like I just want to be, yeah. you know. And so all that is a very I think fascinating way of viewing students from the teacher point of view. That's totally different though. So I want to see what you think about that first, as far as the teachers in the movie. Well, um, I think I mentioned this last week that there was that uh, there was that um, the moment early on of like executive, legislative, judicial, and yeah. like explaining those three things. And like I mentioned this last week, there's been a few times where I found myself being, oh my god, I'm Matthew Broderick in election explaining yeah. these things. Um, or other things. I feel that but, day with I feel that within one day sometimes. Yeah. Um yeah. that and it is weird. I this is gonna be a very personal thing that other teachers will probably identify with former students might be shocked by this. You do have favorites. That's oh, the yeah. reality. You have oh, favorites yeah. as kids. You try to hide it as best you can, but you do. And not only do you have favorites, you have these kids you do not like. Yeah. Um, those kids that I've never because I, I I generally teach general level kids, so I normally I've not had a lot of instances where I'm like, I wish that kid would just stop being the stop saying all the right answers. Like, yeah, um, I've had other things that have been frustrating, but not exactly. That I've phenomenon. had kids where I have had yeah. some though that are that volunteer and say the right things and not and I don't resent them but I just want other people yeah yeah well that's and so normal. I've had that situation that's in this movie where her hand shoots up and he's like lightly looking around and like waiting for any that's other hand that's probably my favorite like, shot right. in the movie is not the shot of the cl- the kind of shot of just her doing it it's the kind of shot where yeah. he's at the front and you can see her doing it, but he's literally looking everywhere. Else. Yeah. <laughs> I, like I feel that way all the time. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Um, and the thing is he resents her not only for that, but also because of this other thing yeah. that happened, this personal, right. it's not even thing. any of his business either by um, the way, but yeah. And so there is that like tension. And so I, I can relate to that in terms of not like resenting or hating the kid for doing that, but just wanting other kids to, Participate, yeah. Part, you know, participate. I also love the depiction of the kids answering that question between moral or ethical behavior. The difference, how they're all like kind of onto something, but they all can't quite articulate it because that's a very specific thing you don't see really depicted in movies very often. Yeah, that type of thing. So I really like that. Um, like him and uh, Margaret. Also. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Matthew Broderick and yeah. Margaret. Guys, what are we doing? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, but, or that moment you talk about all the time where they're arguing about the poem Margaret yeah. in that. 
and that he's like listening to him and he's like drinking juice or whatever. There's a like, few yeah. shots that just keeps coming at him just drinking the juice. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's just, that's funny. And I know that specifically with that, Kenneth Lonergan has read other critics or heard people talk about, oh, he was wrong and that, that high school kid was right and he's like, no, he wasn't. Or no, yeah. that kid was not right. right. Matthew yeah. Rogers' character was right. That's not really the point but the like, scene, but yeah. But the, the movie does a good job in that regard of depicting his impotence and his inarticulation of being right. Yeah. Which has led some to think that the movie itself is... Um, well, and that's an accurate that, representation you know, to me. Representation. Rep, that should be a word. Representate? <laughs> representation, yeah. yes. Representation of uh, Californication. Uh, representation of things that happen naturally in a, in a setting of school is the loud kid... And a teacher like me, who's going to be patient enough with them to hear what they have to say, but where they're going to speak louder, even though I'm going to be right. And so it's this thing of like, okay, well, then eventually you just give up and just shrug and say whatever, because you know that you're right. But the loudest voice in the room is not always the most correct. Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's something that people obviously don't I really love the principal in this movie. Uh, that's like one of the funniest performances in this. That I can't remember that actor's name, but he's really funny in Veep as well. So uh, we should totally get rid of her. It's like, like oh, we can't do that. And he's like, dang it, you're right. Yeah, dang, it. you're right. I just yeah. like that, that. I've been in various conversations with teacher with other teachers or other administrators where yeah. that almost to a T is a version of that has happened. Yeah. I was like, why can't we just do this? And somebody's like, uh, well, we can't. And they're like, well, whatever. And just yeah. And just well, was like, another one of my favorite moments is where they're booing her up front while she's giving the speech and he's like hey if we're gonna act like children you're gonna be treated like children yeah. like and he's like anyway go ahead and like, uh but. let's talk a little bit about the custodian in this movie who is the yeah. secret silent killer uh, as it turns out um he doesn't have a word of dialogue nope. uh that but the, the very beginning of the movie broderick's character is like you know reshuffling some stuff in the uh, and, to- and actually tossing out some stuff in the refrigerator and the faculty refrigerator, the faculty, yeah. and uh, like you know, thinks he's throwing like a box of Chinese food in the trash, and it falls on the ground, and he doesn't immediately pick it up, and the custodian happens to be walking by, sees it, and there's like a close up of him looking at it, and then moving on. And it was and funny it, is yeah. like the, the, I remember the very first time I saw the movie, I thought that was just some one off gag, you know, like, yeah. you know. But then that guy is the one who reveals the two ballots that Broderick tried to, um, you know pocket throw away. or throw away yeah. that he found and proves that he was committing fraud. I say that in air quotes, I guess. I yeah. know it is fraud. Yeah. But like of the student election. And again, he doesn't have a word of dialogue. And I love that scene too where it's cutting between all the people when, in when the Roderick office and then comes it's got in the his office face. And it's shown everybody's face and then he's there. <laughs> he's the last <laughs> yeah, one. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we talked about this. Do you want to start with this or you want me to start you with You go ahead. Okay, so there's this whole... Uh, and. Okay, custodians are important, y'all. Let's go ahead and start there. Yeah. I want us to know that. I want to start and end with that. There are so many things in this school that custodians put up with. Oh, my God. Like, the messes that are made, the maintenance they have to do is insane. However, Uh-oh. there is a certain custodians amount. Your ears, yeah, I know. And, and the custodians I work with know I love them, and I appreciate them very much. But uh, So if you're listening, you know, those folks love yeah. you. And you're great and awesome, and we we all love you very much, and you're all very popular with us. Anyways, but. anyway, but 
Anyway, screw them, no. Uh, but there is this whole idea that I always heard when I first came to you, become friends with custodians. It's like... They know all the secrets. They know all the they secrets. They go through your trash. Yeah, and it's like... Okay, so first of all, there's a certain point to this is is true, which is the idea of they get they get around, yeah, they get around, mm-hmm. yeah, get around, woo, <laughs> get around. I'm, I'm wasting as much time as I can before I have to say this incendiary stuff. Um, getting bugged driving up and down the same old strip. <laughs> um, love the Beach Boys, by the way. Just going to put that around. out there. Yeah. They get around. Yeah, yeah they get around. Um, did you see that picture I tweeted of, uh, I think you did, of uh, yeah, Brian Wilson? Yeah. So, yeah, is this Lionel Messi, literally, like, that big beard? Anyway, all right, I'm finally going to talk about this. the pictures of him in Miami, by the way, of how his, how his uh, just the way he's dressing now. It's just, like, looks yeah. very, like. Well, there was that picture of him going to, like, a Publix or a Whole Foods yeah. or something. And it's that just, like, what I was thinking yeah, of, it was just yeah. funny. But anyway, anyway. But the thing is, like, yes, that custodians, they get around, yeah. <laughs> but custodians get around, yeah, so much that they hear a lot of things and gossip, and I understand yeah. that. Yeah. Uh, well, it's also uh, noted, let it's me just also, say, I've heard plenty of times they've gossiped about each other. Right. Say that. Well, it also negates the fact that that's not something you should do, no matter who you are, mm-hmm. is gossip about people. So, and, and go through people's trash. By the way. Like, but, yeah, and also, then there's that whole idea they go through the trash. It's like, so what if I throw something away? They're gonna blackmail me, like yeah. you know. And it's like there's this whole idea of like that, like we live in fear of them or something, yeah. you know. Like, right. I, and I'm not saying that that is true. I don't think that is the case with most co- most custodians. I think that is a is an assumption we have about custodians that I think is false and frankly condescending, uh, condescending to them. So mostly what I'm saying, mostly what I'm saying here is for them, but. Yeah. Like, um, but also it's like, well, we teach and they are custodians. We do three and, shows a day, right? I'm I'm not saying like one's better than the other, but it's like, but but, but I'm, I don't know. I'm not saying that. Uh, not, 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 I didn't not, say not. it. I didn't say that. Nobody, nobody. I get around you. Nobody on this podcast yeah, that, said that. No, we didn't. No, we didn't. Uh, but actually, really. I get around, yeah. Uh, as <laughs> imagine him like at a karaoke uh, bar singing, like uh, I get around, yeah. Like, <laughs> I get bugged down up down the same old strip, yeah. Like, <laughs> nah, nah, nah. I ain't getting bugged again. Uh, uh, anyway, custodians, uh, <laughs> they're great people. Maybe we. Uh, anyway, who um. Did? Yeah. Have you heard that there's a chance that there's maybe going to be a sequel yeah. to this movie? Yeah. Well, isn't there? Yeah, isn't there a novel sequel? There might be. Actually. I think they. I think, I think he wrote that in the last few years. Here. Tracy Flick must win, can't or, win or can't win. Yeah. Uh, film adaptions that works at Paramount Plus with Reese Witherspoon set to reprise her role as Tracy and Alexander Payne set to direct. Mm-hmm. Do you care about seeing that? I actually, I'm, yeah. I'm mildly interested. More in out of just a, let's see what they do with it kind of vibe. Well, know? also, Alexander Payne doing TV will be a little different. Yeah. He's going to be doing, he's going to be looking at school and teachers yet again with the holdovers. That'll be yet another. Yet son another of a big, get back. That was one of my favorite moments in any trailer recently. He said something, he's like, son of a big, get back. <laughs> Paul Giamatti. Yeah. yeah. Well, also just the ending where he jumps America's on that problem. trampoline. And falls, oh, and he's right. screaming. He's like, 
Yeah, and that freeze frame. The holdover. I mean, is Alexander Zander Payne the master of the freeze frame? I mean, freeze I mean, there's frame. a lot of great freeze frames in this movie. Sorry, excuse me. Freeze frame. Real musical episode. But that one, uh, you know the one early on, it's like one of the first ones where like she's talking, giving and her she's answer, like, and she's like, it kisses her, just really like yeah. awkward moment. Yeah. And I, there's a little interview on the Criterion Blu-ray of um, Reese Witherspoon talking about seeing the movie for the first time, and she was, was shocked by that, and she was like, what? And she, and this is very telling, and she yeah. said she learned a lot from this, that she took her character very seriously, which I think, and she said that all these people were laughing throughout the movie, and she was like, what, what are they laughing at? Like, yeah. I'm being serious. But then realize, like, oh, like, you know, she was younger then, and she realized, like, oh, like, I am playing a preposterous character. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Didn't really understand that making it, which I think is the best, that's the best thing, because I think if she played it another way and really l- took it with the sense of... Uh, goofiness. That goofiness, be, yeah. that it would not have been as right. successful as it was. Yeah, but what's funny, too, about that moment, because it keeps cutting back to it, of her in the middle of that, and there's a whole scene in the middle of her answer of, like, right. talking about stuff. But then it cuts back... And it goes back, and she's like stops making that face, and kind of stops like it was all this performative answer in and of yeah, itself. Right. Like yeah. you can see through the performative answer by stopping there. Well, Broderick is that in right. Broderick's yeah. perspective is, right. and so that's that's relayed to us. So. I also want to bring up two other major moments in the movie that I think are hilarious that we haven't talked about before we move on to a movie that's not good. Is uh, Kevin Spacey can't win. You know that's the name of his, that should be the well, name of his memoir. Well, miss me. Uh, <laughs> no, actually we didn't. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, Look closer. Actually, did we miss him? No. We're, I'll uh, get into that. Yeah. When, um, when we get there. But anyway, that the two major parts in this movie is that well, first getting stung by the bee. We laugh about right. all the time, but mm-hmm. he's like. Ow! Yeah. Like, and then the, that great moment when he's trying to call Linda Novotny on the phone. No, we didn't really talk yeah. about that yet. Yeah, yeah. He's trying to like cheat on his wife, who is a non-presence throughout yeah. most of the movie. Um, With his friend who had the affair's wife. Ex-wife. Yeah, uh, and that he's like trying to call her on the phone after that happened. He takes the champagne bottle and yeah, puts right, on his right, right, on his yeah. eye. Like, just so funny. One of my favorite but, moments, too, is when he's in the hotel. He's being kicked out after his after she went and ratted him out to his wife. That's, you know, yeah. should have should have happened, basically. Uh, and he's, like, in the in the hotel, and he's trying to get, like, what's it like? Toothpaste, toothpaste a toothbrush, and, and, and a comb, and, like, yeah, shaving. right. And he's, like, and he gets stuck, and he's, like, trying to hit the it's like he's 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 fed up which is the next part i was gonna say yeah so the dad of the metzlers is i feel like i've seen him in something else but i can't remember what it is but he's like this real like serious guy but there's a scene where they're basically she gets suspended for lying about stealing the posters which she didn't even do Yep. But and she's kicked out of the race or whatever. Which deep down but, she kind of wanted anyways, just to be yeah. out of the whole thing. And then there's thing. that funny moment where it's the shot of them marking her off of each ballot since they printed them, and they have to do that for every one of them. They have to mark her Which name out. Like, like, can we just delete her name? I don't know how they would have. Well, they would have done it on a word processor back then and printed. Yeah, I guess I don't know, but I guess they printed them all, and they're like, let's just mark through each of them. This is random, but but that uh, that he's talking to her about what you did. Or whatever, and like yeah. said, I just got a phone call from the principal. He's fed up 
fed up like, and that <laughs> specific line reading because it's OS by yeah. the way off screen of like cuts back to her face hearing him say it and she's kind of just like sitting there like mm-hmm, yeah, yeah yeah whatever but he's like he's fed up fed up we're just obsessed with that line yeah. reading like fed up you know who else was fed up Alan Ball was fed up with Alan America. Ball was fed up with America and it's beauty or lack thereof. So here's the trailer for American Beauty. And by the way, you need to look closer. Morning, Jim. Morning, Carolyn. I love your tie, that color. job description that way management can assess who's valuable and who's expendable my parents are trying to take an active interest in me why can't they just have their own lives i'm so proud of you you didn't screw up once oh my god it says psycho next door jane what if he worships you i didn't mean to scare you i'm not obsessing i'm just curious why does he dress like a bible salesman Today I quit my job, and then I blackmailed my boss for almost $60,000 past these pairs. Your dad's actually kind of cute. I think he and your mother have not slept together in a long time. Shut up! You think you're the only one who's frustrated? I'm not? Well then, come on, baby, I'm ready! Welcome to America's weirdest home videos. This is for your own good boy. There are rules in life. Yes, sir. Don't give up on me, Dad. Smile, you're at Mr. Smiley's. You are so busted. I love shooting this gun. Sometimes there's so much beauty in the world. I feel like I can't take it. I rule. If I had to leave tonight, would you come with me? Yes. And I really felt the need to say, look closer. I mean, because we don't get to see. The trailer know, said it enough times. I felt like it needs to be said one more. Well, yeah, it doesn't really say it audibly, but. No, but it but it says it, though. But it, but even if you didn't see it, you felt it, you know. American Beauty. You hate to see it, genuinely. Is a 1999 American black comedy drama film written by Alan Ball and directed by Sam Mendes in his feature directorial debut. Kevin Spacey stars 
as Lester Burnham, an advertising executive who has a midlife crisis when he becomes insulated, or I'm sorry, in, well, he is insulated in some way, but infatuated with his teenage daughter's best friend, played by Mina Suveri. Uh, Annette Benning stars as Lester's materialistic wife, Carolyn, and Thora Birch plays their insecure daughter, Jane. A lot of insecurity going on here. Wes Bentley, Chris Cooper, and Allison Janney co-star. And then the next thing it says here yeah, in the I'm first paragraph, academics have described the film as satirizing how beauty and personal satisfaction are perceived by American middle class, perceived by the American middle class. Further analysis is focused on the film's exploration of romantic and paternal love, sexuality, materialism, self-liberation, and redemption. Uh, this movie actually has a very extensive uh, themes and analysis section. Which is hilarious because why would you need to write about it? It's all right there. There has to be some like late teen, early 20 something who was really wrapped up in this movie at some point who had to go on yeah. here and help write all that up. Um, the movie was made with a $15 million budget. <coughs> Excuse me. And Made $356 million, which is a pretty big hit. As we said, it was in the top 10 of 1999. This movie has so much import behind it. Um, at the time, and then even later on, the hate of it. Um, Liv, I was this only your second time seeing it? Yes. Maybe I believe it was mine as yeah, well. Yeah, I saw it, uh, I think back around 2016, something like that. It was a later, uh, I was still in high school. That was like my senior year. Uh, but yeah, it, it had it wasn't like a big formative movie for me in the sense that I saw it at a younger age as a cinephile. I kind of came to it for me, yeah, January of uh, twenty sixteen. Uh, which strange to say that at the age of like seventeen, I was like, oh, I I was kind of past some of my formative years as a cinephile. But that only speaks to just how many big movies I had seen at a younger age. This one was not one of them, so... Uh, well, did that kinda... end... How did, how did it initially affect you, and then what was this most recent viewing? How did it affect you? Well, I liked it at the time. Uh, I gave it four stars, but not a like, I saw. So I don't know what was going on back then. Yeah. Uh, but I also remember that was around the time I first saw Amazon Women on the Moon, so I remember a little more <laughs> about that. That's a genuinely really good movie, so yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't know. It just didn't really connect uh, much at all. Now, this is also important to note that this is before I saw the first season of Six Feet Under, which I quite liked. And which Alan Ball's probably probably has held up the best in terms of his career, in terms of critically and uh, yeah, pe- from and people. Of course, True Blood I haven't ever seen, but uh, this whole uh, I kind of think of this movie and American Psycho. Funny enough. To American in uh, similar uh, veins, in the sense that uh, when I think of these movies, I think of like that turn of the century, sick. Like it, it's weird. It's like everything's clean and orderly and designed, but it all looks like it's sick. Like it's yeah, gonna, uh, everything in the frame it wants to vomit. Like it's weird, and so. That's this whole kind of. I mean, you look at the poster and it's the woman with the, the rose at her navel. And, like, I think about that and I think about the opening of, like, the opening credits of American Psycho and how 
it's all very pristine and order. It's kind of like Tom Ford. Some of his films look similar. Now, I like Tom Ford's yeah. version of that. Yeah. It's a little more modern. But this particular version of, of and style of movie um, at this time, I just hate looking at visually. I think yeah. it's ugly mm-hmm. um, and hasn't aged well. Now, American Psycho, that works a little bit in the sense of that's kind of what that story's really about. And uh, it's in the 80s, too. Yeah. It's, it's a period piece. This, I know that that's what it's going for, and that's what it's saying it's about, and it's saying, oh, this is this, like, how how everything's so orderly, but it's all so garish. And, and, Look closer. And, yeah, but it's, I just think that's stupid. And so watching it again, I was struck by that most of just how, how, un, how much I just didn't want to look at it, literally. Um, and it just didn't age well at all. Whereas even movies like Scream, for example, which is a big 90s movie that looked sort of similar, ages well in the sense of, oh yeah, that was the 90s, that's the way things looked, and it kind of went along with what... Also, that's just, also, it should just be said that normally if a movie is good definitively, we're not going to have this problem. American Psycho, not all that good, really, or fine, it's kind of weird. This, definitely not good. So if a movie can be good, I can get past that. But when I'm only looking at... Because, once, like we said, I don't know why there's this long of a section about... Uh, well, what are the topics things. again, just real quick? Okay, so uh, multiple interpretations. <laughs> that's pretty open wow, shot, you yeah. know, understanding. Now, that's know. funny. Yeah. Now, that should have been the black comedy part of yeah. the movie. Imprisonment and Redemption... Conformity and beauty, sexuality and repression, temporality and music. Yeah. Uh, so that's just to say that when everything is so see-through and so translucent, yeah. that all I'm looking at is the the visual. All I'm caring about is the visuals, and then that's when it all breaks down. Like you know, I was um, really puzzled over this movie. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned Scream, this, and American Psycho all together because I think they have one big thing in common. Which is that they're all satires um, yeah. to varying degrees of success. Of course, Scream being the most successful out of those three by Actually far. A great, a pretty good to great movie. So, yeah. uh, but you know, because I liked this movie when I first saw it years ago. Um, mostly at the time, even as a portrait of literally what this era looked like and the preponderance of themes. This was around the time I was starting to read like more Don DeLillo. So there was just this idea, again, not that it was this great towering work of cinema, but it was just this like, it was about trying to be a little bit more of, again, of, of a more literary form of cinema. Um, this is before I'd seen Lolita, which I think this shares a lot of also not um, similarities with. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, now, this time going into it, and I said this last week, like I, I'm a great lover of the problematic drama, the drama that doesn't quite work, the drama. You know, I feel like problematic dramas are the island of misfit toys of cinema because we remember like the really great movies in any genre, and then even like we remember the really bad horror movies or the really bad comedies that fall flat. But I feel like the really bad dramas like just kind of slip through the cracks and are not really celebrated. Now, this movie's in an interesting spot because it was widely celebrated when it came out and is now widely hated. So it's like, you know, has seen quite the transfer transformation of its own legacy over time. But so going into this, I was like, okay, so like, 
how is this going to hold up in my own memory and how does it hold up in the cultural memory and what's the problem, right? Like, if is there a single diagnosable problem for this movie? And I do think the movie's problems and most movies' problems are deeper than a single thing. Look closer. But <laughs> I do think that the biggest thing is, like, the tone is just the tone of the script mixed with the tone of the acting mixed with the tone of the direction there's like a minimum of three things going on at once almost none of them in concert with one another right because i feel like there are moments where sam mendes is thinking that he is directing like blue velvet and that no one's yeah, done blue velvet or like too. ooh, yeah. this small town well, what's really what's really beneath the cracks of this small town? Try that in a small town, is you know dot dot dot. But um, even before Blue Velvet, I mean something like um, Peyton Place, both the book and the movie and TV show. I mean it was uh, of the old small town life. What's actually under the surface? Now there are a lot of versions of that kind of thing that I love. I mean, you know, almost every Scooby Doo episode in its own way is a version of this. Um, Look closer. But I feel like again the script thinks it's um, that it's a satire, and I think and I, there are things like about Alan Ball's writing, not necessarily even in this, but what I've seen of Six Feet Under that I really quite like in terms of finding the dark comedy and in situations right um this movie thinks it's a dark comedy but also takes itself far too seriously to exactly be comedic or a yeah I, what i appreciate about six feet under is the uh, we keep using this word but the garishness and the the macabre of it but it's still pretty funny mm-hmm. um well i guess it's and, also about a world that you're inherently not exactly used to that's the novelty right. of the show is yeah, it's about, oh it's like make, about a funeral home well, also family, it's about a funeral know? home in los angeles so it's like it's not even like a funeral home in like uh, Indiana somewhere. Yeah, right. It's like a big city funeral home, and that's just kind of strange because you're taking something that should seems like a relatively rural concept and saying, "Well, of course there's funeral homes in Los Angeles," you know. Right. Uh, but and then kind of like I said, blowing that up into the idea of and also maybe even I don't feel like the show was always about this but the idea of Californians constantly trying to cheat death and right. what is that literally what is the death uh, you know industry in uh, in Los Angeles and kind of uh, that's all very interesting like I said it, it it's that I feel like his garishness works there yeah here it's just so basic it's it's not about well, that's what i was getting ready to say is that i've not even seen much of true blood i've seen very scattershot amounts but that's like vampires in the south like there's a, yeah. there's another like oh this world and this t- you know what i mean this is again the american family but what's actually underneath there's a billion and one things that are about that and by virtue of literally stepping into the arena of that kind of story you're almost inviting the criticisms Especially when you're not bringing your A game when it comes to trying to be the Clinton era representation of that, because uh, I'm going to get to reading some an excerpt from Chuck Klosterman's The Nineties book uh, where he talks about it in context of Clintonism and the Lewinsky affair, which again was when the the context the movie came out in was similar to what we were saying with election earlier. Yeah, but. Um, the movie, a lot like watching 
as the movie does itself and the characters do, watching a plastic bag fly through the wind. I mean, it's like the Forrest Gump, fly, the feather flying through the air, like, is it all an accident or is it all meant to be? And, like, um, the voiceover narration itself, both the beginning throughout and the end of the movie from Lester's character. Oh, my uh, God, the Kevin ending Spacey. where it's like, uh, you might not know is that but you will someday yeah like, oh my and god I, I will like, say when i first saw this movie years ago i was like oh man nice very deep, yeah very deep like yeah. i remember thinking now i'm like okay well especially after being checked out of so much of what the movie's trying to do throughout and that ending is just like okay so what like what do you you really think I, you're in i the will deep say end of the this pool? as far as the the i feel like where alan ball's whole concept works most in concert with what Mindy's is wanting to show and spoiler of course when uh he gets shot in the back of the head and uh the Yellowstone kid I'm just gonna call him I don't remember Wes his name. Oh well yeah Wes Bentley uh comes in there and see and looks at him and it's like him laying on the table with the Ricky blood Fitz everywhere. Name, yeah. And he's just got this kind of smile on his face because he was happy when he was shot. It was like a I feel like that image gets what the... It's kind of like the ending of Midsummer. I've always said, where it's like that image or in Midsummer when there's the guy who's literally burning alive, screaming, but just continues to sit there mm-hmm. because that's the sacrifice he must make or whatever. It's like moments like that really work in movies that don't overall, I think. And it's like, okay, well, that's what you were going for this whole movie, and you finally got there, but what was the point of all that yeah. to get here, you know? Another thing um, about this movie, too, is every character is a plot device. They are yeah. not in any way a fully realized character. Um, Lester Burnham, portrayed by Kevin Spacey, who we we mentioned a little bit last week, I want to talk about a little bit again here, um, is the ultimate sad sack, meaningless, nothing burger. And it's like... Yeah, and it's like, the way I can describe him, it's like his character watched, we didn't see it, but he watched the Choose Life seen in train spotting on VHS in between there somewhere and was like oh yeah and then he's like running and working out welcome to America's weirdest home videos moment you know well to Uh, that end too uh, something I was going to mention earlier about this clashing of tones like how Mendez shoots this movie that it's about like the secret interior lives that America it's like it's secretly going on in America like one moment of like I think is pretty inspired filmmaking, which um, still points to the banalness of the movie, is like when you know through videotape he's watching uh, his neighbor and her friend kind of prancing around in her room, and he's like looking at uh, the friend for a while, but then he like zooms in on the mirror of her um, smiling, yeah. Jane played by Thora Birch in the movie, and it's like her smiling. I, I I actually do like sometimes how the movie goes between the videotape and the film portions, but again, that's a very underdeveloped or underutilized concept. Yeah. Um. You just feel like the movie's really like thinks Ricky Fitz actually sees the world for how it is. He sees through the crap. Well, he's a like, filmmaker. Yeah. Right. And Literally, again, you yeah. see that a lot with. Look closer. You know, young directors or directors who like who are they framing as their protagonist literally and figuratively and of course you know it's who looked the, closer? would be filmmaker. David Hemming in Blow Up. 
mm-hmm. looked closer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hint, hint. Some you will someday. Yeah, but uh, but what you I was wanna, yeah, go ahead. Sorry, but no, no, no you're yeah. good. Uh, but sorry, like, I had to bring up blow up a good movie. Yeah. Sorry. Anyways, we'll bury that. Anyways, yeah. where it belongs. But yeah, <laughs> Lester Burnham again, total sad sack. Yeah. Um, that again, I do think, like I said, I, I want to be careful how I say this because Kevin Spacey's again seems like in real life is a total scumbag and manipulative and uh, shouldn't be allowed to work in the extent. Miss me, no. <laughs> but he's really good at playing awful people. Yeah. Uh, and in the nineties, he's really good in Glengarry Glenn Ross. I feel like that's a really good performances for it randomly in a movie with a lot of big performances yeah that's kind of a more low-key one but i think it's really good and i think especially he he like plays the banality of evil characters really well like this um you think about him in the usual suspects which is not a movie that me or you held no, hold in particular no. and i never regard have, yeah. which a lot of people do though yeah. and um, it's not even a Brian Singer thing exactly even with that too uh, but um, that doesn't hurt yeah exactly but um, now his Lex Luthor was whatever you know yeah. but I, I do think his um, what was his name Frank uh, in House of Cards what was his character yeah, name yeah uh, whatever Frank uh, something Frank McHugh. Underwood Frank McHugh yeah Frank Frank yeah. Underwood is yes, actually what yes. it was um, I think I mean a lot of people hated the smugness of that show and I kind of get it but in its own way, it was like, again, I don't feel like David Fincher gets enough crap for that show either, too, as far as kind of creating the visual style and the visual language. And Fincher, again, is one of our most cynical cinematic voices in general anyways. Um, of, like, similar to this in regards to the Clinton era, this is doing, that did that for the Obama era. Like, hmm, you think things are great? Well, actually, this is how power really works. And it's just like such a, yeah. again, a, a thinks it's so deep, but actually an eye roll worthy, pretentious thing to do. But again, all that being said, he knows how to ham it up, and he actually plays these characters really well. Doesn't mean the character's exactly well written, but I do think this is going to be one of the performances he's always most remembered for, not just because he won an Academy Award for it, but and not just because he was a sexual predator. Well, right, too. That's yeah. another thing, too. The movie, like, by the end's like, but he didn't really. He. He didn't. He didn't have sex with the underage girl. He's not that bad. Like the character, you know what I mean? It's like and that's such an insult. I feel like it's like really like all this predation yeah. that presides over the whole movie, and that he gets to quote die this happy life, or he's just not exactly happy life, but like all this beauty he just acknowledges in his final moment before he's shot and murdered and killed. So like the uh, opposite of the horror, the horror. Like yeah, yeah, and. Uh, and like I said, that's why the image works, mm-hmm. but the the what it takes to get there, it's yeah. like why. As far as, but I do want to say there are some parts he is pretty bad in this though too, and I think that's partly the writing, some of it. But well, anything that, that sticks out in particular. One thing, well, the whole scene is kind of bad, but where he's uh, masturbating in bed and his wife and Annette Bennett, oh, we'll get right. to Annette Bennett in a minute. Yep. But uh, is like, what are you doing and. Then they start arguing, and there's that one line reading I keep thinking about. He's like, well, come on, baby, I'm ready. Like, yeah, yeah. oh, my God, yeah. this is so bad. Like, like I said, I think a moment know, like that is the intersection between imprecise direction, yes. uh, melodramatic or melodramatic acting, and 
uh, shallow writing. Yeah, it's no, like it's all, all three of these things yeah. come together in and, that. Yeah, which so, I would categorize all three of those things as again melodramatic acting, shallow writing, uh, unfocused direction in yeah. terms of you know that. Right. Because um, too, like in his final moments, where it's like it shows these glimpses of you know his whole life before. I mean, things yeah. that we had no glimpse of prior to the movie, like. Part of me like wants to get caught up in those moments, but again, they feel so calculated. And it's like yeah. you've not earned any of this. You're just like literally pulling out of nowhere these things that anybody can relate to, which I understand. But like, and w- I'm sure we're watching that and thinking about our own versions of those moments. But again, it feels it all feels so calculated, and that's what well, this whole the, that's the whole yeah, rap on this, this movie is. Getting, is yeah. It's a calculated emotional pulling well this is probably getting too specific uh, as far as this goes but also you know they literally have the images of oh trees my daughter yeah my grandmother's hands and it's like it all looks like a jpeg like that they found somewhere it doesn't look like someone's personal remembrance it looks like it's just like and I know part of the intent of that is to simply say, okay, this is everybody has these memories. It's like, yeah, but I want something more specific because mm-hmm. everybody because that's something that also is a problem. It's like, yes, it's true. Everyone has or a lot of people's experiences are the same as others. But you know what's great is everybody's is different too. And so when you're just making them that generic, it doesn't well, that matter. that goes to the point too. Like you know, you see this in art all the time, like. When you see in a in a novel or a film like something that comes from such a specific place that feels as though it could only be relating to, you know, the quote characters in the movie, that's usually it's that specificity that draws us in and might make us relate in another way of like, well, I didn't exactly have this experience, but like I had a version of that experience or I know what that character felt even if yeah. I didn't go through that thing like this is like pulling out of the box the game of life and saying ooh what if on this turn of life this happens it's like it's all very generic out of the box doesn't have that specificity in that yeah. way you know right. um, to go through some of the other cast here real quick Annette Benning as Carolyn uh, Burnham the single worst thing about this yes, movie is so, this entire character. Yeah. They have no clue what to do whatsoever. She's, I feel like, purely written as like, well, he would be bored too if she was like this and going around cheating on him. Mm-hmm. And just, um, again, I genuinely think a lot of Annette Benning. I mean, her in 20th Century Women is one of those performances that, you know, I regularly think about and feels like a real person. You know yeah. what I mean? By contrast to this. Because... Her in this, and again, I think she is a great actress generally. I don't, you know, I think she's maybe not giving her all. Well, no, not exactly that. Not necessarily not giving her all, but like not exactly sure what she's doing in this. But again, the writing is atrocious. The direction of this character is atrocious. Everything about this character is atrocious. And I do think her performance is bad, too. I'm not trying to give her too many outs, but I'm just saying there's a. This was made to fail from the page. I mean, this. Oh, there's no way you can do anything. There's no way. There's no way. There's no way you can do anything out of this. Uh, Yeah, she's definitively the worst thing. Uh, it's interesting that 
the attempts to make her be a thing. They have the Peter Gallagher character, and they try to do all that. By the way, it's hilarious. They get Peter Gallagher to come into the movie, and they open the movie the way... I want to talk about the opening of this movie in a little bit more specifically, but all this like sex, lies, and videotape crap going on. It's just hilarious to me. Um, but uh, Which is a really good movie, by the way. Uh, well, it and, runs laps around this. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the, uh, it's like, yeah, but then you're going to do that again? Like, right. No. But, uh, yeah, that Benning, um, it just comes off as very, see, it's like, that's the problem, too, is that I feel like the movie views her the way that Lester Burnham views her, which is this annoying, shrill crone. And it's then it's weird because then they're trying to do oh well what about her life and what about and her? that feels just so and it's like well what about it and, well, what about it I don't care yeah. like and you're not making me I don't want to care you know yeah. even though I want to but again but, it's like the movie's interest is out of habit instead of general genuine interest right. in who she is you know which is and it's honestly almost like they have those scenes just so they can have the scene we played last week of welcome to Mr Smiley like you know and. Oh, he called him, like, you know. They got and, the saucy uh, other woman that's yeah, working there, you're too. so busted. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, she, uh, it's, you know, I've never said this in this way, but no notes because there would be too many notes yeah. with her whole character. In a like, negative way. Though, right, right like, yeah. no notes, I don't know. Yeah. It just sucks. Like, and, and it's a shame to see an actress or any actor this good just right. be wasted in such a way and even waste time themselves. It, it's pretty it's pretty pitiful, actually. But anyway. Thora Birch is Jane Burnham the daughter. I feel like she's the most like not bad in the same way that Carolyn is, but the most empty vessel oh, in the yeah. movie in terms of um she's Lester's daughter, she's Ricky's girlfriend she, you know what I mean? She's just in known by association to everyone else, or even Angela's friend, you know what right. I mean? Like, she's just a character without a purpose in a meaningful way, that she's just kind of stuck in the middle of the narrative. And again, this movie's in its own way, and I don't know how shocking this would be to say, a misogynistic movie or yeah. a misogynistic work. I mean, and she's at the center of that disinterest, I feel yeah. like. Yeah, well, she know? reminds me a lot of... Uh, uh, Lauren Ambrose in uh, Six Feet Under is a very similar character. Like, she drives around in the old hearse they used to use, and she's a bad girl. Yeah. Like, and uh, it's a very similar character. I felt like that Lauren Ambrose really gave a lot of herself and her own personality into... Because you had time with that character, too. Like, it... it it does the whole thing of oh she drives a hearse and she's she's weird like yeah but I mean it gives enough time to say oh she just wants anything like anybody else I don't really know what this character wants yeah um I mean because it's like if I were to go to New York would you go with me yeah okay and oh they're both weird and it's just like okay it's it's like uh it's like Lydia Dietz without wearing black you yeah. know it's just very like why am I watching this like I, I don't understand this like. So yeah, she's. Uh, I think you're right about that. Is that she's not even that bad? Yeah, it's not no, that I bad of her that, performance, yeah. but she's just not much of anything. Well, like I said, this um, whole character is defined by her relationship to all these other people. Yeah, right. And in that way, she should have been the protagonist. You know right. what I mean? And yeah. if that makes any sense, like she should have been the center of the movie. Obviously, you would have had to re- rewrite so much well, and recontextualize it, it. But like <laughs> yeah. this feeling of alienation. Again, it says a lot about the 
uh, this gets to like the zeitgeist stuff of the movie of this whole idea that it's um you know it's a it's a dramatic film of the 1990s competing for academy of wars whose perspective is it from the white dad you know what i mean it's just yeah. like that's it's like you know if homer simpson had a higher iq you right. know what i mean it's like it's what this whole thing's about and he wanted to watch the uh he wanted to watch the uh james bond marathon on tnt well that right? was mentioned yeah, yeah at one point i would too um Not. Wes Bentley is Ricky Fitz. We've already talked about him a little bit, but I mean, again, this is the character you can tell. So many guys of a certain generation went to see. And they're like, oh yeah, that's, that's who me. I want to be. It's see, like, I'm yeah. like them. I'm a creepo who tapes things. I actually understand and what's I smoke going pot, on. But I'm also really smart, and I see beauty. So much beauty. I just like Trump. There's so much beauty. I just can't take it. Okay. Like, I want to be know. careful how I say this. Um. Do you, how much do you think that there was an unspoken thing among critics and people who saw this movie in late 1999 that their minds in some roundabout way went to the Columbine shooting? Because early on, the tension is he's going to be the one to kill. Yeah. I mean, you remember how the movie begins. Well, yeah, like, I want to talk about you that. Said, yeah, like, but, but there's this yeah. whole idea, I think, of when this movie would have come out, and even, obviously, it would have been conceptualized and shot before the Columbine shooting. At, at like scream as you said is like you mentioned that oh that's you know that's roundabout funny way is yeah because about that too because i you know what's funny though is i never even not even remembering i always like oh that ain't gonna happen though it'll be somebody else the whole movie i yeah. felt that way and i didn't even remember who exactly killed him at the end at the whole time i didn't really remember i was like was it his wife was it uh, i did i did remember who like, it was but but yeah. so even knowing that i was like oh yeah it won't be him whatever. no but i mean the but movie's no, clearly that's wanting you to think is that yeah. that's how bankrupt it is is that it doesn't even make me think that like right. the implication doesn't even work yeah. but yeah no i never thought about that i think that's interesting though is that yeah this whole idea of Oh, he's the weird. Everybody calls him weird, and he's the yeah, like similar to the. And then that. again, I think by this point, I, I don't want to speak out of school on this. I think that some of the VHS tapes that they had made were out and circulated in the media by this point. Um, you know, before prior to the Columbine shooting, in terms of just not of the shooting, but like of their them. What were their shooters' names? I can't remember. Uh, Clay Bold and something else. Yeah, but like yeah. of them just goofing off and being them idiot sales basically i think that stuff was already circulating by this point um oh that after the shooting that they yeah like, put I, it I, mean, out. I think the, yeah. the shooting happened in april of 99 this right. this movie would come out in the fall but i think some of that stuff was already out there and then again how you know of their home movies they had shot their home they, movies yeah. they had shot and just the idea of them as voyeurs who were creeping on people or like you know just outsiders from society again i would say you know Ricky, he's a strange depiction of white male loserdom because he actually doesn't have a lot of rage in him. That is, no. a, that is kind of a difference you see in reality, oftentimes, but also just and that's this almost like of young he wants to be the era. exact opposite of what his father is, and he's just full of rage all the time, like you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's an interesting difference where. But again, there is yeah. that tension at the beginning. Oh, he might be the one to kill him, even though that's not what happened. Right. But that's still yeah. circulating in but the But you normally, the water. I feel like you sometimes see that with a lot of the, for example, I don't know a whole lot about the shooters of Columbine, but you hear about that a lot, though, with a lot of these parents. They're just like, you know, I had no idea. 
or these like basically just non-entities, kind of like his mother is in the movie. Allison Janney. Uh, but who I almost didn't recognize. This would have been the same exact year the West Wing began, and I and it was literally she looks twenty years older in this than she does as uh, C.J. Craig yeah. in that, which was a shock. Yeah, but, that's wild. Uh, but the, yeah, I mean, and I, I think is she's literally actually the greatest character in the West Wing. So I just want to shout her out. And she's definitely the, the best character in this movie. I don't know about that. <laughs> but, yeah. but anyway, yeah, no, uh, uh, but that all I'm saying is normally you see that in those situations where it's like the parents were just like, well, you don't know, you know, not like these crazy military dads. Not that that doesn't happen too, but yeah, uh, yeah, so that is a difference, uh, like I said, that is, but I didn't think about that until you just mentioned that because that is a big part of that. Uh, so that end, yeah. we want to talk about Chris Cooper a little bit as Colonel yeah. Frank Fitz, who is the angry military dad. Got the Which buzz is cut. really close to Frank Fritz, who used to be on American Pickers. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we said this back with Lone Star. Chris Cooper is actually one of my favorite actors. I don't like randomly put him in that category a lot, but every time I see him, I'm like, ooh, he's great. And even in this, he, I think he's actually working the hardest out of anybody to try oh, to yeah, find him. Yeah an interior soul to this character in terms of this, you know, angry military dad who's clearly it's I don't I feel like it's a little vague about what's going on with Alice and Janie's character if she's been almost I don't know I know even by this point electroshock I guess was like not as widely used as a thing, but certainly she's medicated. Oh yeah. Um and have been abused to some extent by him. Um he obviously is like sees his son as a loser, sees his son as a pothead who he's trying to quote save from that, um, and he there's even speculation that he thinks his son might be gay, might be having a gay relationship with Lester, uh, Kevin Spacey's character. But then the big twist at the end of the movie is that he's actually gay and he wants to be with Lester's character, um, and upon being rejected, then murders Lester at the end of the. What, what do you think of that whole depiction of queerdom, especially coming from a queer writer? You know what I mean? In well, Alan Ball, it almost feels downright homophobic, which sounds like a yeah, strange thing uh, right. to say about a queer well, writer. I said the but, same thing, and I've said it for many years about Ed Wood with uh, Glenn or Glenda. Right. <laughs> it's like self-loathing queerness. But yeah, it's like, uh, and and you know, by all accounts, it seemed like Ed Wood was a heterosexual, but was a, a transvestite, liked to dress in women's clothes. And uh, that it's weird because he, it's like he outed himself about that. Right. But then by the end of the movies, this can be cured. It's like, and that, I mean, that's a very 1950s, you know, it's not a surprise to me that's the case. But when the movie is already so outside of convention, convention is uber independent that it's like, you're already making a movie that was supposed to be a biopic about the first uh, sex change ever. Yeah. And then you make the movie about all this other stuff, which is really racist and sexist and homophobic, yeah. all these things about, you know, all the stuff he loves to do, Ed yeah. Wood. And oftentimes, and, by modern queer audiences, is frankly not labeled as all those things. No. You know what I mean? He's well, usually right. just blanketly celebrated now well, right. by a lot of cult yeah. or queer audiences. And you could say the same thing with John Waters in a lot of right. ways too, although I felt like he always had more of a handle on like that sort of stuff. And has been alive and had enough of a voice to yes. talk right. about things changing And actually is a competent filmmaker, even despite... Even in, even right. in his insanity. Uh, yeah. Sure. But that 
that's it's the same thing I think where it's like why why would you depict this this way it, it just even for 1999 it feels so behind the times of just like wow really that's what you're doing huh like you know and, and there's, there's a lot of queer stuff other, going on in TV and in even in other movies yeah. I mean of this era and this again again this is what's so puzzling about it from a queer writer it feels like such a step back you know right that's what I and that's what I don't understand and about, I knew and, I had to know there were there were probably uh, maybe even some queer audiences even in 1999 thinking oh this is really brave you know this is really yeah. different I, I I mean I, there had to be others that were watching this thinking this a version of what we're saying yeah, now well, but like and he did and he did a, once again a way better job about this in Six Feet Under as far as the gay characters in that show I really feel like you could make a whole show just about uh, Michael C. Hall's character literally being a deacon in the church yeah. and being closetedly gay and being like how do I like navigate, navigate that, that yeah. literally? And it's not always the most elegant, elegant, Which, or, yeah, is impossible or subtle, in any era, by the or way, subtle really. way to do that. But it's an actual character, yeah. And it's that from the beginning. That's never the mystery. Well, again, that, going back know. to what we were saying earlier, he's uh, he's purely um, a convention and an right. idea manifest as a character. I mean, it's not really a fully fledged living, yeah. breathing character because it's so obvious too that it's like. The, and that goes into the don't ask, don't tell of the Clinton era too, of, of yeah, a lot of that true. stuff. Yeah. Of oh, I'm a marine and I'm this gruff man, but I'm also gay. It's like it's too, it's too obvious, and it's it's just, it just doesn't work. I don't know. It, it's it, everything about that character. Like I said, he tries really hard. I mean, he's like overdoing it at points. At points to just be like, I'm trying to make something out of this. Yeah. But, uh, which it's strange though, like I said, you had him be in Lone Star, then he's in like this, there might, he might have been something else in between there, he's in this, and he's in like me, myself, and Irene, which is like, why? And what's funny in that and, is I think, I instantly think of Jim Carrey's flat top in that, so, yeah, yeah. I know he doesn't quite look like him and that, uh, yes, but. and then... And then there he's in some other stuff, and then he's in like Syriana for like a few scenes. Something about adaptation, remember him in oh, that? Oh, right. That's like one of his best performances. Yeah. I forgot about that. Him and I mean, adaptation. That's a total transformation. Him too. and adaptation is so good. Like yeah. that, and that whole movie's really good. But he is really great in that, and that's rambling one of the best Meryl Streep performances too. I yeah. think is really good because that whole movie's good. But I actually do. It's very conventional, but I actually do really love the stuff that is that stuff in the movie, which is the the orchid thief stuff adaptation. Yeah. Because you could eat. Because I mean, there's all the stuff in adaptation about. Oh, the Nick Cage brothers and all that, and that's what people leave the movie thinking about. Charlie I'm Kaufman's like, brothers right, in the movie, right? Yeah, yeah. but, but yeah. I actually really do love the the stuff that is the okay. Let's try and do the Orchid Thief, and what is this like? You know, yeah. Uh, and I'm fascinated by, it and I think is really great. Um, so yeah, he was in a, a adaptation. I forgot about that. I yeah. feel stupid now. But then even him in like Syriana is like mm-hmm. the Connex Colleen guy yeah. who's always like, eh, whatever, all this sucks. It's, yeah. just, it's funny, it's like even a role like that, which is so throwaway, is like so great compared to whatever this is, you know. Right. But And again, this is what, like I said, it's what feels so strange. It feels like... Um, His Wikipedia picture always makes me laugh. I don't know why, but... Been married to the same woman since 1983. Uh, Marianne Leone. Oh, that other that actress, she's been in yeah. things. Yeah, she's Chris's mother in The Sopranos. 
Oh who's yeah, 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 right, yeah. A little bit funny. But yeah. Somebody smacks some GD sense into him, you know. You know, great by own mother, blank, blank. You know, you blank and blank. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> October Sky, don't forget. Also ninety nine. Ultimate yeah. dad, like. I don't like what you're doing. I think you're wasting your time on this <laughs> Werner von Braun. Brown. Brown. Uh, yeah. Also, the Patriot oh, 2000. God. He's barely in that. He's not in yeah. that much. Uh, the Born Identity. Literally, look at how many awards that either won or yeah. he actually won the Best Supporting Actor award for that movie. Really? Which I had no idea. What? Well, he should have. I didn't know that. Yeah, I just no. didn't even know that was nominated. Right. Honestly. Uh, what else? Jarhead. Never seen that. Born Supremacy again. Capote. I haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, what's he doing recently? Can I ask you a question about Capote? Because I've yeah. always wondered this about it. And the I, movie? Yes. No, I know about Truman Capote. Yeah. But as far as that movie, is it literally just like this is about in cold blood? Is that literally the whole movie? Well, it's about him writing cold blood, right. like over the the process like, of yeah doing that. I mean, know? not that that's totally disinteresting, uh, because as a big you know that's a big kind of new journalism book and and yeah. uh, while also being a novel and that is potentially interesting. But I'm just kind of like, why don't we just do think, a um, Truman Capote uh, movie though? You I know? think um, Kathleen like, Keener plays a uh, Harper Lee and has actually yeah. got a pretty big role. In the movie. Well, wasn't it also the case that there was that other Truman Capote movie yeah. made around the same time that had old uh, Toby Jones, Toby Jones in it or whatever? Well, and that there's there's a random better. people yeah. who say that he's either he's better or the movie's better. Yeah, and I can more easily believe the movie's I probably better. I think they've better. said the same thing and this, about and him when he played Hitchcock right. and uh, Anthony Hopkins also played Hitchcock, and in both cases. Those bigger actors were more known than Toby right. Jones, and so he kind of got buried because of those things. Well, you know what's but, funny about that too is like the that uh, the whole Hitchcock thing. It's like they had the girl was the name of you the know, birds his movie, oh, right? That had Toby which, Jones in yes, it, yeah. which was like okay, yeah, that's an interesting title. And then Hitchcock, <laughs> <laughs> it just sucks so bad. Well, also, like, uh, and I've never seen either of those movies. And, well, but, it, like, and again, this has nothing to do with Psycho, the movie itself, yeah. but it's like the making of Psycho. It's, it's like, like it's the most like standard, like, like yeah. big, it's like one-upping that other thing, but also not as interesting as the other thing. Yeah, it's like I'd way rather watch a movie about the making of the birds and Tippi Hendren in general. Like, uh, yeah. and not that uh, Janet Lee isn't great or that Psycho isn't a great of movie, amazing, but yeah. it's just like, yeah, I want to hear it's about that. It's just the most obvious right. Hollywood studio <laughs> thing. Hitchcock. Hitchcock. Yeah. <laughs> just, I did I'm laugh sorry. about that. I've too. always laughed about that because it's just, and then you see the poster and it's, and it's like, he looks more, <laughs> you were thinking that Anthony Hopkins looks almost more like, like, uh, uh, Ed Sullivan than he does Alfred Hitchcock almost the way he arches himself around and he's like oh I'm Hitchcock or whatever and it's just so stupid anyways uh, back to American anyway. Beauty I, I want to read a little bit from the multiple interpretation section if you That's don't mind hilarious. the literary critic and author Wayne C. Booth concludes that the film resists any one interpretation no quote, just one quote American Beauty cannot be adequately summarized as here is a satire on what's wrong with American life. That that plays down the celebration of beauty. <laughs> it sounds like Wes Bentley's character in this rightness. It is more tempting to summarize it as a portrait of the beauty underlying America's miseries and misdeeds. But that plays down the scenes of cruelty and horror and balls discussed with mores. 
It cannot be summarized with either Lester or Ricky's philosophical statements about what life is or how they should live. This all sounds so teenager. And again, um, I wanted to draw attention to a, a really high-quality piece of writing I found about this movie from Guy Lodge, who's typically a really great critic. Um, is he normally write for The Guardian? or is he? Writing? Yeah, he's British, okay. I know. So okay. he, he, he writes for a lot of British publications. Um, he wrote this... And I want to start talking a little bit now about the movie's legacy because okay. that's one of the most yeah. contentious things about it. American Beauty at 20 is the Oscar-winning hit worth a closer look. Now, what I love about this, he he, he starts talking about um, he saw this when he was 16 yeah. years old, right. and he basically says that's the ideal age to see this movie when you don't have a fully formed idea of what the world yeah. is. and that, Like I said, you know, not to be too like, ooh, whatever, but I was like 17 and was like, yeah, yeah, eh, like you know, and then yeah, now I'm like okay, but um, but then he goes on to say actually the you know the movie's got a bad reputation now it's actually not as bad as everybody says it is which I don't entirely agree with everything no. he says with that but I do think that he gives the movie a fair shake frankly a fairer shake than it sometimes gets um again that what we said earlier this movie was widely praised when it came out now is hated what do you account for that? Well, part of it is just as easy as the Kevin Spaciness of it. That's partially. But yeah. you haven't seen that with something so like. So look closer. Yeah, you haven't <laughs> seen that though with the Usual Suspects, which had also Brian Singer attached. You haven't seen that happen with that, which is strange. There's been some. Yeah, well, that has like, the double whammy of them too, I right, guess. But, but that's what I'm saying. You haven't seen that happen yeah, with right. that, as far as oh no, we love that movie too much. Like, I mean, <laughs> Gabriel Byrne also. Is the lead in that? Why don't you just shut up? Which, by the way, we don't think he's done anything necessarily cancelable. You know what I mean? No, 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 no. But his performances. No, I'm not saying no. Gabriel Byrne's fine, other than the fact he's just not a good actor. Uh, Because I don't like Miller's Crossing either, and that's. I actually do think he's really good in Midsummer. He's the only person not losing his effing mind. Or not Midsummer, excuse me. um, in uh, hereditary. Yeah. Hereditary. No, that actually is his best performance, I think, very definitive. No, I love yeah. too just specifically as that movie goes on, he's literally kinda of going like what is wrong? He doesn't literally <laughs> yeah, say this right. out loud exactly, but he's like, What is wrong with everybody? And then he literally catches on fire and dies, so you know. Yeah. All right. But no, so so a real one. He burned Gabriel burned. <laughs> but I guess You know somebody like, somewhere when that happens, oh man, Gabriel burned like <laughs> I never thought about it until now. Uh but no, it's like I don't want to just trash on Gabriel Byrne for no reason, but uh, any movie he's the lead of, it's like, oh yeah, nah, like we ain't doing that. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, because Miller's Crossing, I hate that movie too. So it's whatever. Um, which is a, I, uh, I also which, do not like, yeah. but it's a hot take. I know. For oh a yeah. Lot of oh people. yeah. Screw that movie. I don't care. That movie's a joke. Yeah. Like, anybody who thinks that's genuinely great is is an idiot or they're a liar. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> um, happy nineties. Yeah, happy nineties. <laughs> uh. Because, you know, by the way, I'm going to crap on that movie a little bit. So I think a lot about that scene in Ocean's 12 yeah. where, and people talk about it too, but they talk about, you remember the scene of John well, Turturro? Of course, look into your heart. Yeah, and he's like, yeah. I cry every time. It's like, you know what's so funny about that scene is that whenever I saw that scene, parts of it, before I saw the movie, I thought, oh, he kills him yeah, right. in that scene. Yeah, right. And I was like, okay. And then he doesn't. You know what John Turturro's character does literally after that scene? Goes back to the exact same behavior he had the entire movie. Yeah. So it's like, what was the point of any of that scene? Not that that's unrealistic, exactly. Or can't be artistically right. But it's like, what is that? Yeah. Why? 
why do I care? It's like yeah. that to me sits at the center of a movie that is totally fraudulent and ridiculous. But anyway, well, especially uh, from an era that produced like Barton Fink, one of the Cohen's greatest movies, yeah, you know, and and that, which is no, widely praised and loved, yeah. but not as much weirdly as Miller Crossing. Well, that's what's so funny. It's like, love. yeah, we didn't know what to do with Miller Crossing, so we went and wrote Barton Fink. <laughs> it's yeah. like we're well, one of the yeah. greatest screenplays oh, yeah, of all definitely. time. Definitely, it's like I mean, the Fishmongers, you know. Yeah. Uh, but, Probably the uh, single greatest film about the creative process. Yeah, uh, uh, adaptions another. And before one we too. finally get back to the usual suspects, and then back to right. Kevin Spacey, I swear I, th- I know I talk about it all the time. One of my favorite lines of dialogue ever is, "I love writing, don't you?" No, you know the yeah, like yeah. John Mahoney basically being yeah, right. William Faulkner, and he's like, uh, "Totoro." Yeah, like, I think it comes from great pain or whatever and he's like oh no writing is not great at blah 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 and he's like really I just like making stuff up (laughs) (laughs) but uh, anyway so I think it's easy for this movie for some reason I think also because it is connected to the idea of the uh, the the predation of the movie which then lets him off the hook Right, people yeah. have rightfully seen as inauthentic and smug and, and cynical. But I think also, I don't care for The Usual Suspects, but I don't remember that movie as being, like, it was written by Christopher McQuarrie, it should be said, obviously. I don't remember that movie being so just like unbearable to sit through dialogue-wise. Like, it's a well-written movie, yeah. enough, dialogue-wise. This movie... is th- themes, 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 yeah, right. themes and it's out loud. all so thin... I mean, literally a lot of people thought it was so great at the time, but literally the opening of the movie of I'm Lester Burnham, and within one year, I'll be dead. But you could say, I'm dead already, is literally one of the worst, <laughs> literally one of the worst <laughs> opening gambits of a movie I've ever seen. It's like, oh, you've already lost me. Because yeah. right? I was rewatching the movie, you know, I hadn't seen it in a while, and yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. screw this. <laughs> like, immediately, like, you don't do that, you know. Uh... Do you think part of the the hatred of the movie too? Obviously, it has to do with that Me Too stuff. Um, obviously, even outside of the Me Too stuff, we have you know, in some ways better, some ways worse, but like nonetheless, clear vision of calling out sexual predation in things more clearly now. Outside of even just Me Too, but just awareness about these things a little bit more so later. But also, since the stock of 1999 as a film oh, yeah. year has went up, so has the attention on this movie going, wait a minute, well, there's all these other great movies that come out this year, and I, again, I would agree with this to an extent. Like, this can't be the best out of that yeah. whole crop, and also that it was so widely praised when it come out. And that is also the trajectory of any movie that starts off being praised. Yeah, There's only one way to go, and it's down in terms of the critical, you know... I think, yeah, Adoration. and I think that if you talk about Oscar bait, which is something that does exist relatively, but I honestly don't know that it exists as much as people say it does. I just think people make dumbass movies half the time, you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll take that, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, well, a movie like uh, this really scrapes for middle brow respectability and middle brow uh, artistic merit, whatever. Yeah. You know, people it doesn't challenge anything. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's very like uh, well, it acts as though it is, the right? Whole time. Because yeah. it's like because they were like this movie is like look even Chris Cooper look look closer. Yeah. Even Chris Cooper in the totally 
insane featurette oh that we God. watched some of and we'll talk about that in a little while yeah. but uh, I, I didn't even get through it I was like this is awful I'm leaving and you watched all of it but uh, and all, all all kudos to you that you can make it through um, <laughs> it was only like 27 I didn't minutes, hear but, uh, I didn't hear you throwing up any that night so I'm I'm glad to see you could do it yeah uh, but with uh, that I know he said something like it's about a lot of controversial ideas it's like what making something bad like you know it's like well you know from his yeah. angle specifically he was probably thinking yes. about the queer elements yes. of it yes. uh, and that's fi- and it is it is about certain things but especially when uh well also you know that's also a problem i didn't think about you know the queer cinema movement really took on in the 90s as like even a mildly commercial independent venture i mean you had Kenneth Anger in the 40s and 50s doing versions of that or or uh you know uh oh god well even Fassbender's films yeah, right. in Germany or uh Flaming Creatures that one movie there were a lot of movies that were these totally underground or John Waters obviously Todd Haynes. these boy I'm getting yeah. to him I was going to say all these totally underground underground to the point of it wasn't even independent cinema it was just like so this is stuff that's shown in yeah. midnight movies and like at Bleecker Street and whatever yeah. you know and uh, but then you had people like Todd Haynes like Gus Van Zant to make to really break through that yeah. in the 90s in a big way uh, I mean I don't think I was thinking about this movie yesterday I don't think we've really reckoned with the fact that Velvet Goldmine mm-hmm. was it a studio movie now did yeah. it make a lot of money no was it real successful it had that no. level of attention but and that shot is to be a something either. wild ass movie yeah. to be like oh yeah let's let's do this as a glam rock and how inherently Uh, perverse that was as a I don't even say that with like judgment just like no yeah as an art form how perverse that was Uh, compared to the mainstream culture of the day and so in the midst of all this especially in the 90s like we've seen with uh, even with uh, Stephen Frears' films too with you know uh, My Beautiful Laundrette or uh, and like I said uh, with uh, Gus Van Zandt with My Private Idaho or or Todd Haynes' movies with Poison, which was very independent, but uh, even like I said, with Velvet Goldmine, uh, movie like Safe, Safe obviously has queer themes, but is not well, exactly it's, explicitly it's themes queer. are about AIDS yeah. and kind of yeah. that, and that's its own thing, but it's not explicitly. What about a that. great movie that is! Oh yeah, no, that's, that's, yeah, yeah. We'll I, you know what's funny? I didn't even probably. think about Todd Haynes at all, actually, yeah. in the conception of this movie, but you got to mention it in terms of that continuum. Well, and so. his, and that's what I was going to say, is some of his uh, conceptions of these things are more, are similar to what I said about Alan Ball's work as far as American Psycho and, and Scream, that way everything looked. But his was different in the sense also that it was a little more DeLilloan, like as in Don DeLillo, and was a little more like looking at consumerism in a more colorful way yeah because that's another thing i was gonna say about this movie it's like it's so flat looking visually and uh it's got the big rose palette that's throughout it through you know because even you see with like white noise for example which noah bombach just made is a colorful movie that movie is so colorful yeah because that could so easily have been that's not even how i imagined that book 
Mm-hmm. I imagine it very bland and monochrome. But I'm like, no, yeah, that's what consumerism is. It's this big, flashy yeah. thing. And I think and, that, that was know, in that way it was a faithful, yeah. while also inspired direction right. to adapt that book. But yeah. uh, American Beauty doesn't do that at all. So anyway, that's all to say that in the midst of the new queer the queer cinema movement, which of course had predated the 90s, but was becoming more of a thing pop culturally. Also, Greg Akari's films too. I, f- I forgot to mention mm-hmm. he was a big part of that. Uh, that uh, that's just in this is in and then oh yeah, Chris Cooper in this whatever. It's just so. Uh, and this is not to say that like Poison, for example, isn't rife with tragedy, mm-hmm. or or Velvet Goldmine doesn't have tra- all these tragedies and and all these terrible things happen. But it's more to just say this is like in such a mainstream way saying this is homosexuality on screen a raving lunatic military man murders another man like that's just so uh outsized in its wrongness of its depiction that it's i said controversial like now it is definitely you know so anyway but yeah and that's the thing i think like i said what we're kind of getting back to is what's the legacy of this movie i think is just saying that it's so so basic that it's i think it was easy for people to see through like you said when you're looking at okay this one best picture and there's all these other movies why did this win and and that's the question then you start poking holes in it and it's going to deflate like a balloon immediately i mean that's the way it is so I know um, some people have also talked about the, you know, it is a reflection, again, of 90s culture, the 90s zeitgeist in terms of the trouble of the nuclear family and the trouble at home and this depiction of it in a a pre-9-11 world. And that there has been criticism since the movie's come out that, oh, see, this is what pre-9-11 America either looked like, sounded like, felt like. Um... And just how trivial the domestic drama feels in the you know on the eve of such a cataclysmic um, moment. And to that end, I want to read a little bit from again Chuck Klosterman, who's a writer that I quite like. I don't always agree with his takes on things, but I think he's a very thoughtful writer. He recently, a few years ago, came out with a book called The Nineties, which is a series of essays of him kind of walking through the decade, basically, and kind of talking about it, what it means now. Um, I'm going to read, I'm going to skip around a little bit. This is towards the end of the book um, in an essay called I Feel the Pain of Everyone, Then I Feel Nothing. And up to this, he's talking... That's the most uh, 1990s thing I've ever heard is that statement. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Surgeon X. Near the end of the Clinton administration, seven months after... He'd been found guilty, not guilty, by the U.S. Senate. A movie titled *American Beauty* was released to tremendous acclaim. It was all me- by all measurable stand most by most measurable standards the premier film of 1999. He then goes on to talk about all the Oscars it won, yeah. uh, the uh, how much you know money it made. It made 350 million dollars at the box office and was praised by every kind of critic, including Bill Clinton, who found it slightly quote disturbing, but mostly amazing. Those accolades are startling for two reasons. The first is that 1991, or 1999, excuse me, was one of the most competitive years in the history of cinema. 
The second is that American Beauty is now regularly cited as despicable, embarrassing, problematic movie. Because of its blissful ignorance, American Beauty is a movie our culture can no longer afford to lie nigh, Sarah Fonder wrote in 2014, a criticism speciously operating from the premise that such lionization was still occurring. Uh, American Beauty is hated for what is now assumed to symbolize and justify, which only matters because it was well made and well acted. Had it simply been boring, no one would care. This is part of his own ideas about it, not necessarily yeah. ours. Its technical achievements make it worse, and it's now exceedingly rare to find new consideration of the film that aren't mostly or exclusively negative. I'm going to read the last paragraph of this, skip ahead a little bit, because he talks a little bit about Kevin Spacey's you know, real-life situation and cancel culture and all that. Yeah. Of that. I think this is the heart of his argument here. The retroactive rejection of American beauty has nothing to do with art. It's a rejection of what could reasonably be classified as a problem in 1999. This somewhat hilariously is also why it's all, it was so acclaimed. When it was new, American Beauty seemed to address uncomfortable domestic conflicts other movies were unwilling to confront. Lester's midlife crisis was viewed as a multifaceted existential concern. There was a sense his character pursued a dream many men silently desired. The modern reading is that Burnham's behavior is the juvenile manifestation of unearned privilege. Bending's career-driven character has an extramarital affair and is portrayed as shrewish and cold. The modern reading is that this depiction is sexist and that her character is heroic. Lester's infatuation with the teenager is presented in the film is uncomfortable and tragically comic. It now seems criminal, disgusting, and ineligible for use as a comedic plot point. The fact that Burnham quits a lucrative white-collar job to happily work the drive through window at a fast-food restaurant seems oblivious and insulting to the realities of class struggle. Almost every key point in American beauty, dissatisfied with traditional livelihood, the invisible loneliness of a sexless marriage, the shame of homosexuality, the longing for one's past, even the difficulty of buying pot, have come to represent pathetic dilemmas younger audiences consider opulent micro-concerns. Modern people hate American beauty for the same reason 1999 loved American beauty. It examines the interior problems of upper-middle-class white people living in the late 20th century, the kind of people who voted for Bill Clinton twice and perhaps saw fragments of their own lives within the problems he created for himself. And it was, in all probability, the last time in history such problems would be considered worthy of contemplation. Now, I don't yeah. agree with exactly everything he said there, because he's almost writing about it like, almost in a judgmental way about why people wouldn't like it now. I feel like a little bit in that. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think he's right that what people object to is a sense of 90s progressivism, a sense of, ooh, see, we're different, and we've got it all figured out, which, you know what? Every era of progressive thought feels dry and tired 10, 20 years yeah. later. That's true of any era. But in particular, the era of Clinton, which in general has by the political left, and I don't even think this is necessarily a bad thing or an unjustifiable yeah. thing, see that as a failed era of missed opportunity in terms of politically. Again, to get into politics ever so briefly here, you got to remember that Clinton came after 12 years of Republican yeah. presidencies. And also at the end of the uh, Cold War and simply just uh, almost like a <laughs> an American caretaker president in that sense of, all right, let's get us to the... 
21st century, and uh, of course with 9/11 and everything after that, that became its own. Like I said, then that was a whole other kind of so, America. So all I mean to suggest is, and I agree with the ultimately what he's saying here that I mean one of the reasons the movie's aged bad is because our own thoughts about the 90s have problematic aspects of them. I feel like as we've been talking about this in a roundabout way, maybe not with this specificity, but in a roundabout way over the course of all of these podcasts in terms of how we contextualize and remember the 90s. um, That's not to say the movie's not without flaws, because certainly it is, and we've talked at length about what the flaws of the movie are. But I would also contest that the legacy of the movie and how it's declined is not even totally wrapped up in the movie itself, but is part of this larger cultural... It was a, it was a different time. Yeah, as we like Look to say closer. a lot. Yeah. yeah. Do you agree with that, though? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I think, yeah, uh, it felt normal for people then. Uh, and I think that's the case of a lot of movies now. Of course, people felt that way about Love Story at the time, too. But that movie 70, has yeah. taken on uh, even further levels of that mm-hmm. now, of people hating on it. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, there's, there's versions of that all the time. Uh, but there was almost a startling uniformity of what people said about this movie when it come out. Uh, there had to be people that weren't into it even then, and I guess they just got silenced over the praise. And now those are the predominant of voices. Screenwriting that happened in the nineties yeah. that normally we think of Quentin Tarantino being a big version. And, of well, again, this and, is a version of that uh, yeah. that slick, self conscious Gen X breaking the rules for breaking the rules' sake moment in time that this is yeah. clearly a byproduct of. You know, yeah. And, and in that yeah. way, that's why Magnolia feels like it's such a like a uh, turn down the road in terms of PTA being like, because I feel like Boogie Nights, I think we would agree, we're not huge fans of Boogie Nights, has a certain slickness and confidence about itself yeah. that uh, Magnolia almost, obviously Magnolia has this massive ambition to it, but is like the ambition is not in genre conventions and genre flipping. The The ambition is how vulnerable can this be? Yes. And this is a movie that cloaks itself in acting like it's vulnerable, but when in reality there's yeah. that distance well, that's separating well, think it about, from for actually example, being What's vulnerable. great about Magnolia is is it has a lot of young people mm-hmm. in it, right? But what's my favorite stuff in the movie, in a movie that's one of my favorite movies, so I love everything about that movie, but one of my favorite things, and I think I think about it all the time, and everybody talks about it, is the Jason Robards monologue yeah. about his regrets. Yeah. I mean, the GD regret. I mean, literally. But We kind of laugh about that, but that's a very hard-hitting Oh, I just go back know, and watch monologue. that monologue right. every few months just yeah. to see it. Yeah. I mean, and it just breaks my heart every time. I mean, yeah. and it's... it's uh, But that's taken, like I said, a lot of these movies are like, oh, are, the, are the kids alright? And it's like, well, is the old man alright? You know, and saying, well, what what about this guy And again, over that's here? a very like, 1999 you know. preponderance right. of the legacies yeah. and the end of a certain right. era and a time and, and place and the regret of right. that. And saying, that. what about what this man regrets? What about how, and basically saying it doesn't get any better, you know, as you age. Like, it, that I hear that all the time. I, something that I've heard more that I agree with now. And, I, you know, there's certain flaws about this, too. People say... You grow older, but you never really grow all that wiser, you know. Because people say that all the time, but it's like, 
it's a lot of the same problems you deal with your whole life. And so that was a movie that, to me, and uh, a lot of things about that, and that also comes from the literal life experience of watching his of PTA watching his father die of cancer, and that obviously I'm certain that uh, that his dad didn't have the same sort of lifestyle or regrets that that man had. I think they were actually pretty right. close and in they reality. Were, yeah. yeah, but I'm just saying like... He had a more difficult relationship with his mother, I think. Yeah. <laughs> that, uh, Which is depicted to an extent in Boogie Nights with the right. mother and that character. Yeah. And that. But the, uh, that although feels very personal and real... Raw. And raw. Vulnerable. And like I said, for it's normal for all these old... Uh, I'm young or oh I'm middle aged and then like I said to have that older character that makes the movie something else where it's not just the oh we're all young and we don't know what to do you know it feels real uh, in in uh, and I could even say there's versions of that with Burt Reynolds in Boogie Nights it's not always that effective and well I think yeah. well, the most but, a lot of the most heartbreaking stuff and that's the William H Macy stuff in yes, that movie yeah. in oh, particular yeah, you right. know. But as far as what I mean is like some of the, the older old, I mean, old man right, is yeah, what I'm right, saying. Yeah. Uh, and so that's always felt, uh, and he does that throughout his career. I mean, he's done that w- even with the master versions of that, of like the Philip Seymour Hoff, the Lancaster Dodd and the Freddie Quayle, like the older man and the younger man. And, you know, but it feels like that was really successful at, universalizing these truths rather than what's going on with these young people or these middle-aged people or whatever, you know. And um, I'll only bring up, um, if you talk to me and Levi long enough, all roads lead back to PTA in a roundabout way as far as films go. Yeah. But, like, all I mean to mention with that is that's a movie that is is positioning itself in a very vulnerable light. And this, by contrast... Is positioning itself, acting as though it's vulnerable, but in reality has this smug distance, which is yeah. what I think ultimately this um, thing that we're reacting to, and yeah. what a lot of people over the court. And again, I'm not trying to make excuses for the movie. I think the movie has genuine flaws, but I'm just saying that I think some of the cultural mores, as it is depicted, are as much a judgment by people of 1999 yeah. as Klosterman says, as it is the movie itself. Which, while it is, it still is flawed, so don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, any other last thoughts on American Beauty? Uh, I want to talk about the opening. Oh, right, right, about right. That. We'll end with the opening. What a just piece of crap that opening is. It's like, it's literally like... And especially if yeah. you're coming at this like, yeah. I don't know what I'm going to think about it. You know what I mean? Like we were yeah. going into it. And then like you said, it immediately washes over. Well, even like, I'm saying know. even before the Lester Burnham stuff where it's like filming her and it's like, you want me to kill him? Yeah. And it's like American beauty after that and it's like well that like, combined with like the high angle shot of yeah. the neighborhood and the VO it's all so the whole thing's so far away it's not like ingratiating you it's like yeah. you feel like you're watching a diorama of America and you're like looking at like a so uh, you know it was like when you go to a museum and you see a work of art that's just meant to piss you off and be hateful for the sake of it yeah it's it's not meant it's not made with an ounce of empathy or actual interest it's just looking at everything with the sense of like contempt and smugness which again yeah. which is this movie's all about so but again as i said through everything it's a movie i have a strange little affection for and, and i say little because again it's 
somebody who loves no, flawed drama. It's a lot. Like, yeah. As a flaw, as a <laughs> yeah. lover of flawed drama, this is again. This is on the Mount Rushmore. I mean, this is this is uh, this is way way up there. You know. Yeah. So, uh, but again, not a good movie. I just want to make that. No, clear. it's very not. So that's it for our discussions. Everybody's like, but what don't you like about it? Election and American Beauty. What do you think is maybe the objectively quote best thing about it? That I would say Chris Cooper's it, performance, yeah. Yeah. not what the character is, but his trying to well, make his trying to work in through it. it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, that. I said some imagery I think is really good. Maybe but. some of the soundtrack, but even that's like a boomer. And I say this is somebody who loves a lot of boomer music, but like very much a boomer. Oh, getting back to basics, going back to the guy I was in the seventy early seventies. Which there's several conversations about that. So even that's like make sure you're into Pink up. Floyd. Yeah. Lester, as a fan of Pink Floyd, everybody's <laughs> into Pink Floyd, okay? Like, you know. Yeah, it's like it's like the most yeah, different oh thing Oh my ever, God, you're you know? into Pink Floyd? Oh my God, yeah. like, yeah. Anyways. We're going to run like hell away from these this movie. Mm-hmm. Not these movies. Jeff Probst. What have we got? Speaking of other bad movies, <laughs> what have we got? <laughs> next week. Stay tuned for scenes from our next episode. What am I... What draws my admiration? What is that which gives me joy? Baseball. A man. A man stands alone at a place. This is the time for what? For individual achievement. There he stands alone. But in the field, what? Part of a team. Looks, throws, catches, hustles, part of one big team. Bats himself to live long day, Babe Ruth, Ty Cobb, and so on. <laughs> this team don't field. What is he? Uh, you follow me? Yeah. No one. Sunny day stands up full of fans. What does he have to say? I'm going out there for myself. <laughs> but. I get nowhere unless the team wins. Team. Jesus Christ. standing on the sidewalk. If you're gonna be my girl, you're gonna have to swear to me that you'll never ever do that again. Hey, I'm not your girl, and I'm not gonna say that. I'm waiting. So am I. I'm never gonna run out on you ever again. Say the words. No. My coat? Well, I ain't never gonna run out on you, and that's a promise. Well, I wanna run out of here, so lady. (laughs) 
Hit the road, sport. Keep the tip. You ain't getting other people's hats and coats no more, neither. Why'd you do that? Because you're with me now. I don't know anything about you. I was raised on a farm in Mooresville, Indiana. My mama died when I was three. My daddy beat the hell out of me because he didn't know no better way to raise me. I like baseball, movies, good clothes, fast cars, whiskey, and you. What else you need to know? We've hit the green here day on we go. Right here. We've been talking. We're going to get well, the hate mail real bad coming up. I feel right. like, I don't, have we like talked about these movies yes. in particular together? I know yep. we have talked about doing both of these movies separately. I think separately, we have I mentioned like. over the years, oh, we'll probably do those together. Untouchables, definitely. Yeah. So you just heard clips from the Untouchables and Public Enemies. Um, both movies that purport to be about reality. Um, I feel like this also is it's a little bit of a redux for us to go back to the crime movies, you know, that we've yeah. been doing. Um, yeah, sorry we didn't get to the ones that suck. We're doing that now. Speaking of also Oscars, you know, uh, uh, Sean Connery, of course, very famously won for this movie, The Untouchables. Oh uh, one of the most over-the-top... Uh, you got to beef. For, <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even necessarily yeah. hate it because it makes me laugh. I'll Where, give it that. Where's the beef? Where is it? Right, you know. uh, let's start with The Untouchables, Levi. Uh, this is a movie that you so more than me grew up Oh, liking. I was crazy about it. I loved it. Uh, yeah. What do you think of it then, and what do you think of it now? And we'll get into that more next week, too, but preview. Well, we've talked us. about a bankruptcy of tone. Oh, yeah. This is the bankruptcy of tone. No, this like, is it right the here. scenes of, but, like, extreme bloody violence, and then, like, this score that would be, like, on a Saturday morning... Yeah, like cartoon, like it's and it's like happening within the spaces of each other. And you're like, what is this? Like, That's what I'm saying. It's like, and so, and then it lays it on way too thick with the drama when it happens. Yeah. Like, uh, and we voiced already. Well, I, I guess I'll go back and talk about what I thought about the movie then. Uh, I mean, I just loved gangster movies, so I was just like, oh yeah, I'm all of it, and it was more violent. At the time, even on AMC, watching it on there, you can only cut around the violence so much, you know. Uh, you still got the pace of the thing communicated. Right. I mean, um, and uh, I just was in love with everything about it. it was, I mean, it was the first thing I ever saw that was really about Al Capone, and so that was all new. Even though I'd seen, well, I'd seen Scarface, the original one, and that's you know about Al Capone essentially, but not. Um, it was just. Kind of everything I felt like I wanted in a gangster movie of the time. Now, I was also, you know, love, I always loved The Godfather more than this. I feel like relatively, you know, obviously. But it was just fun to see, like, oh, it's kind of sort of an action movie. It's a little yeah. more actioner, you know. Uh, this was all when I was, like, nine, ten years old. Almost the I feel ideal like everyone audience, else yeah. is still there. I don't know yeah, what's going right. on. Uh this is widely, obviously, movie, widely beloved. Oh movie, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, this movie is atrocious. I mean, it, it, it's another level of, like I said, just bankruptcy of tone. And um, we would agree that like our taste on Brian De Palma has improved yes. over the years. Well, that's what I was going to say too. Is that we've we're no, it should be no mystery that we're not big Brian De Palma fans. 
but I have seen enough Brian De Palma movies over the years to say, okay, there's something here. And Blowout is, right. I think, his yes. best movie. And he's made some good movies. I really like Snake Eyes. It's not great, but I do yeah. like it. And know? there's and there are some great scenes in this movie. I mean, obviously, everybody talks about it, but the uh, the uh, train station sequence is great. It yeah. is, but like I still think of like the Naked Gun parody of it sometimes more than I think of the well, when I see it. Yeah, I mean, I don't but, know. It's just been shown to death. I'm not as convinced of its greatness as most people. I'll genuinely, I'm not even trying to yeah. pose on this. Now, I'll be open to it and we'll we'll talk about it yeah. next time. So I think we'll it see. is really great and I do watch it every so often. I mean, it, but that's the thing about De Palma as, as a fan of Hitchcock, as the movie told us, um, is that he's a great director of sequences. Yeah. And, favorite word and it's all very slick and very oh look at this oh, look at this thing over here you know yeah. and, and oh and it's like a textbook version of that you know what I mean it's like very like yeah okay um so there are sequences that in the movie that are pretty good that's the main one most of the other stuff ain't that great and then there's the rest of the movie which is essentially a uh, overly dramatic overly sentimental yet incredibly morose and violent uh picture of law enforcement and and what law enforcement was at the time trying to hint at corruption but oh but these guys are good like yeah and oh why is sean connery still walking the beat because he wouldn't take the money it's Mm -hmm. like um and I do like Kevin Costner, but he does this movie no favors either. Um, and he would be better in JFK. He'd be better in Dances with Wolves. He would be better in Bull Durham. Yeah. Uh, that was made around this same time, right? Mm-hmm. Bull Durham. It was a little bit before. Well, I think way like maybe better, a year or two Way before. better performance. Yeah. Um, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, I, I, and maybe I'll watch this movie and not hate it as much as I normally do. But it took a lot for me to do that, though, because, I mean, that movie was such a big deal to me. But then it was like a light switch just flipped, and I was like, oh, this movie's yeah. dumb as hell. Like, you know. Uh, and I think it's just very simple. I think it's that people's obsession with the Palma or, or any auteur blinds them to a certain amount of uh, inauthenticity uh, and uh, just lack of, uh, lack of care narratively. Um, and uh, it's just goofy. Yeah, that's the only way. I, it's like Dick Tracy, but yeah, taking itself seriously. You know, yeah. Because even Dick Tracy, it's like yeah, it's just like cartoon movie, whatever. Yeah, it's not good. It's really yeah. bad. Uh, but this actually tries to take itself seriously. Public Enemies. Uh, talk a little bit about that too. Is we're talking about uh, self serious movie. Yeah, right? and um, a better movie. And we like maybe, we but. like Michael Mann, but um. There are some moments I see from this of his digital filmmaking that I'm like, this does not look good, I'll genuinely. Yeah. I mean, again, he's a visual stylist of the highest order, especially when he worked on film, but this was obviously him making digital movies. Um, Jonathan Depp, we're clearly no big fan of. Um, well, you know, it's funny. His depiction of John Dillinger. Collateral looked better, but it also wasn't a period piece. Yeah. And when you're shooting a movie, I think that's part piece, of it, too, is that it just doesn't look it's right. applying that digital aesthetic to a period piece, which just... It looks very yeah. awkward and strange. Um, yeah, this movie's failing is Johnny Depp, Jonathan Depp, ultimately. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's his big problem. Because some of the action scenes are pretty good. Yeah. I mean, 
the little Bohemia stuff's really yeah, good. Yeah, I really like that. And uh, I think it's a good cast overall, other mm-hmm. than him. But it's actually a really great cast, I think. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, Christian Bale's underrated in this movie. I think he's just great. Usually yeah, I do time, think but... that Billy Crudup is good as uh, Hoover. <laughs> yeah. He has some great moments that I yeah. laugh at. Right. Like, but no, yeah, he's uh, good. We want suspects interrogated vigorously, grilled. Yeah. Um, you know, same same was that like a year after him as Doctor Manhattan, right? Same year, oh nine. Or was it same year? I think okay. it's same year. No, that's right. Because yeah. I, I think that was actually the first time I ever became aware of who he and you know was. What's funny is both of those movies. are pretty. I mean, Watchmen I think is actually a better movie than Pokemon. Yeah. Just barely. Yeah. But that movie's not that flawed. good either. But he's great in both of them. Yeah. For what right. it's what he's given. Also he great does. in Twenty Century Women, like in that bidding. Yeah. Be but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just that movie is a lot more specific about. We had some problems with that too, like the over drama of a lot of it. Of like, I just sit sometimes and laugh and think about the biograph assassination yeah, whole right. section at the end of the oh, movie. Yeah, overall, and like, oh, they're all following him, and then they've got that guy that was like the dumb guy on Boardwalk Empire, yeah, right. like walking with the yeah. gun, and like, and then there's that moment where oh, he got shot, and somebody lights a like a flare mm-hmm. and holds it up. And then uh, you got like, uh, Stephen Lang's Bye Bye Blackbird moment. Oh, my God. That <laughs> ending. We'll talk all about Death by His Own Hand. We'll get there. I've got a lot of thoughts <laughs> we could, about that. You could write a book on that. Uh, yeah, I will, and, I, and, and indeed we will. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah. but, yeah, I mean, but again, it's a better movie than yes. Untouchables. But not, I don't know. They're not both, by a lot. But though. they're both these generally beloved crime movies. And, again, it's people who love this, like, this era of gangster movie and I mean like the depicted era not necessarily yeah. the eras in which they were made but like it's just really flies by night both of them and it's yeah. like these are well regarded especially when you look at the public enemies uh, source material yeah was like that's a really good book pretty good and it book. really went more in depth on everybody yeah. it wasn't just John Dillinger and or Giovanni Ribisi one scene as Alvin Carpus like two scenes yeah. maybe but yeah uh and, and, I mean, it has, like, also two Frank Nitti movies we can't forget because uh, Bill, Bill Camp, Camp is Frank Nitti. Nitti yeah. Oh, yeah. and the Frank Nitti depiction of Untouchables is outright fraudulent. Also. Oh, it's, it's awful. Well, yeah. that guy's just a bad actor, too. So it's Well, that, but also about. literally, like, how it, I mean, again, I know it's like neither one of these are, quote, going for truth exactly, but uh, anyways. Um, but also. No, and then Melvin Purvis is in both of them, too, I didn't think about. That's right. I forgot about that. I forgot about that. Um, in the Untouchables, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're also going to do a special commentary, though, in honor of these two movies. Of another flawed, fraudulent individual. Of the Geraldo mystery Rivera. of Al Capone's vaults. <laughs> so this is something me and Levi have joked about and thought was well, the funniest thing for a while. Well, everybody talks about this. I yeah. mean, it, it's one of those things that it's so known now that it's like not even a thing anymore. Right. But that essentially, Geraldo Rivera... <laughs> Did this entire, and this was a whole thing that he used the to TV do. TV special, the TV special, where the, he was going to open up these vaults underneath some hotel in Chicago that supposedly had a bunch of Al Capone stuff in it. Famously, there was nothing in the vaults. They <laughs> built. I think they, they, they it was going to be a two-hour special. They spent like the first hour, I believe, as we'll see, like building up. Oh, we got all these people here who are going to validate whatever's in there. Not once before this, off camera, looking in the vault and seeing if anything's there, checking in on well, that before they even try it. It's like it's not what you'd think, where it's like a safe. 
it's like these massive yeah like floor to ceiling mounds of dirt that they're going through yeah, and right. there's supposed to be stuff there yeah and it's like you know there's nothing so <laughs> you know i feel like yeah. you know we are in our own way don't exactly know what's in the vault right exactly yeah, yeah. Of, so there's like this, a meta thing right. and for then us. you know what it'll turn out there was nothing in there yeah <laughs> but we just thought yeah. you know why not watch that and give a little commentary the whole thing's on youtube so that's how we're gonna yeah be so we're it. gonna do that before uh our two movies don't worry we will get back to true cinema soon yeah after don't that worry. yeah uh but spooktober's around the corner levi yeah so we've got we already got our spooktober so spectacular open up picked. the vaults and it's geraldo <laughs> haranguing around so if like, you i know that this is not how you thought that this episode would end was a revelation that we're going to be doing the mystery of al capone's vaults commentary with not with geraldo rivera but i wouldn't really want to know, have him on here but uh tell you yeah He's one of those token semi-liberals on Fox News. I know. Yeah, it's like it's it's once it's like what you said about any era of progressivism. It's like never enough, you know. It's yeah. like yeah, you're getting somewhere. Yeah, but uh, no. Yeah. So this is Kyle. This is Levi. Take care. God bless the nineties. It's been real. It's been fun. But get the hell out of yeah, here. Yeah, and we lived it. I did very briefly. We'll be back, but. I think it was really the 90s that was the era that first truly asked us to look closer. Take care. God bless.